The Green Jacket by Jeanette Lee Chapter 1 The elevator boy tossed her a kindly grin as she stepped into the elevator, but she seemed not to notice. She was a small woman in gray, gray eyes and hair, and the close-fitting suit and small hat were of soft gray. Anyone passing her in a crowd would not have noticed her. There might have been the sense of something pleasant that had passed, a subtle perfume that came elusively, but nothing to recall. The only bit of color about her was a knitted green silk purse in her hand with curiously wrought gold fittings. It went oddly well with the gray dress and hat. The elevator boy looked back over his shoulder. "'Good morning, Miss Newberry,' he said quietly. "'Good morning, Joe. How goes the day?' "'All right, now,' answered Joe, with elaborate emphasis. She smiled a little and stepped out at the seventh floor. "'You've been kissing the Blarney Stone again,' she said reprovingly. He grinned and slammed the grated door behind her. His head, as it descended into the abyss, was turned admiringly to the trim gray figure going down the corridor to the left. At the first corner, she turned sharp to the right and was facing a ground-glass door at the end of the hall. The dark letters against the light in the room beyond stood out clearly. The Millicent Newbury Agency. Consultations from 10 to 12 and 2 to 4, or by appointment. She opened the green silk purse and took out a little key and inserted it in the lock and opened the door. The room was an ordinary small office with a desk and three chairs. A rather beautiful old rug covered the floor. The walls were gray. The only color in the room, besides the blended harmony of the rug, was the green shade at the window and a green blotter on the desk. As she came in, she lifted a small pasteboard box from beside the door and carried it to her desk. The lifted cover revealed a few flowers that she arranged in a light bunch and placed in a glass on the desk. She removed her hat and coat, hanging them in the closet. And from the closet, she produced a pair of paper sleep protectors and a dustless duster, with which she wiped the already spotless furniture. She straightened the shade and returned the duster and paper cuffs to the closet, and seated herself by the desk, arranging the inkstand and pens, erasers and pencils in exact order. All her movements were deft and precise, and still, hardly more than a passing of grayness. Yet there was nothing ethereal about her. She was plump and healthy, and a little stout. In her gray eye there was a look of keenness as it glanced around the spotless office. An artist might have liked to paint her as she sat beside her desk, so perfect was the setting of the room for her personality. She opened a drawer at the right of the desk and took out a soft bundle of green wool and spread it out on her lap. It was the beginning of a knitted garment. The needles were amber. She took them up, and dropping the ball of wool into the half-open drawer, she began to knit. The sunlight, shining across the many-colored rug, fell on the desk and lighted the glass of flowers and touched the gray figure warmly. The needles moving swiftly through her fingers glowed with the warmth. One could not have guessed, watching the bent head and the thoughtful gray eyes that followed the needles, what was the purpose of the agency on the ground glass door. Seen from this side, it was meaningless. A quick knock sounded on the door, and she looked up. She tossed the knitted garment into the half-open drawer and closed it with one hand as she turned a little. "'Come in!' She took up a pen from the desk and examined the point casually and glanced toward the opening door. "'Why, Tom!' There was a note of pleasure in it. "'How are you, Millie?' He came forward graciously, holding out a heavy hand. "'Sit down!' She pointed to the other chair by the desk. "'You are the last person I was expecting to see when the door opened.' 
She studied the strong figure with its broad shoulders and well-set head. He nodded back to her glance. You haven't seen me for some time. Two years, said Millie. Yes, it's been a good while. He sighed a little and glanced about the quiet room. Nice coop you've got up here to think in. I wish I had anything half as good. Always somebody racketing around or wanting something. He sighed again. Then he seemed to relax to the quiet of the room. He settled more comfortably into his chair. How did you find me? asked Millie. Went to the downtown office. You've got a first-rate staff down there. It was as much as ten minutes before I could find out where to get you. That's a good while for me, you know. She smiled faintly. Then I got hold of that red-haired one. Esther, he nodded. And she graciously permitted me to have your address, after she'd sized me up a bit. They're busy enough down there. He moved an expressive hand. Typewriters clack-clacking, call boys running, everybody talk-talk-talking. Millie laughed softly. You never exaggerate, but I suppose they are busy. That's what we want, business. Well, you've got it. I don't see just how you've managed it, either. He looked at her. I tell you frankly, I never thought you'd turn the trick. You told me that two years ago, didn't you? And I meant it. He seemed to muse on it. People don't like women detectives as a rule. Don't trust them. Won't hire them. You hired me, suggested Millie. Yes, but under me. That's different. You worked under my direction. Did as I said. He seemed to expand a little. I never said you weren't a good detective, he went on. Only I didn't believe the public would stand for a woman, giving a case over to her entirely. I've missed you, he added irrelevantly. I'm glad of that, said Millie. How's the business? Oh, so, so. You never ought to have left me, he said almost petulantly. You wouldn't let me have my own way, responded Millie. I never refused you anything, did I? No. What was it, then? I've puzzled about it more than a little. What was it you wanted? This, said Millie. She moved her hand, and his eye took in the quiet room. The room's all right, he nodded. But there's something behind the room you want, something I don't understand. She made no reply. He glanced at her placid face, almost irritably. Isn't there? Oh, bother. See here, Millie. I've got a case I want your help with. I've worked it over till I'm blue. Nothing doing. I've come to you straight. Will you help me? They sat looking at each other for a minute, his eyes in the dark, stubborn face with the little cynical line about the lips, staring into the quiet gray ones. She smiled a little and shook her head. You would not give me a free hand. He leaned forward. What do you mean by a free hand? You're always talking about a free hand. That's why you left me, far as I make out, a free hand. He spoke a little contemptuously. Well, take it. You mean you will do as I say? A little light leaped into her face. I want you to catch this Jim Hudson. He slapped a paper he held in his hand. I know he's guilty, but I can't get at the facts. If you can pin him down. It's a big case, big reward. And then there are others. You'll find a dozen cases hung up waiting for you. She seemed to hesitate. The room, in the morning light, was very still. The handful of flowers on the desk gave out a subtle fragrance. The man's eye rested on them gloomily. I suppose you'd want to keep this office. 
but we can merge the downtown ones. There's big business for us if we join forces. We'll make New York sit up. And you would let me have my own way, keep on just as I am now? Anything in reason. I've told you that time and again. I'm willing to do anything that's reasonable. She shook her head a little. You wouldn't call what I'm doing reasonable. You tell me and I'll see, said Tom craftily. She turned it over. Yes, I'm going to tell you. His face expanded. I wouldn't tell you when I left, because I did not know then whether it would work. I wanted a chance to try it out. Now I know. Oh, it works all right, said Tom gloomily. It works. I ought to have had that sergeant case. He turned to her. Yes, said Millie. She was smiling a little. Tom nodded. You did nothing with it, quite out of your range. His hand spread a generous circle. Then his face darkened. And yet Sergeant seems contented. I met him the other day. He said they dropped it, weren't going to prosecute Tolman. Of course, that means you couldn't get the evidence for them. And yet everybody knows Tolman's guilty. He glared at her a little. No, Tolman was not guilty, said Millie quietly after a minute. He wasn't? No. Who was then, do you know? Mr. Sergeant told you he was not going to prosecute, didn't he? That disposes of the case. He took the rebuff gracefully. Well, if you'll show me a way to lose a case and keep a satisfied client, I'm willing to join forces for anything you say. They're not always satisfied, said Millie. You mustn't expect that. I don't expect anything, declared Tom. I never expected to come to you and talk like this. But you've got the business, and I want it. I know you're straight. I've got the grip. He clenched his great hand as he spoke. But you've got something else. He looked at her meditatively. You can sit still in a chair and know who's guilty and where to look for him. I wish I could, said Millie softly. It's something I haven't got, went on Tom. Whatever it is, a kind of sixth sense, I'd call it. They say women have it sometimes. Men tell me things their wives say, that they can't make out how they know them. But they're so. I've thought of getting married, he said expansively. Oh, returned Millie. He ignored the gentle irony. I've made up my mind to get you to go in with me. Instead of marrying me? Instead of marrying anyone, retorted Tom, I can't be bothered. Tell me what you want, and we'll draw up a contract today. Millie's hand reached out to the drawer beside her, but before she could open it, the telephone bell rang sharply. A look of vexation crossed her face. I forgot to cut it off. I don't mean to let them call while anyone is here. If a client breaks off talking, you lose a week. He nodded understandingly. There's a lot in it, he said. The bell rang again, imperiously, with a little burr at the end, and Millie took up the receiver and listened. Millicent Newberry, yes. A long silence, punctuated by the changing lights in Millie's face. Very well, I'll come. She hung up with a little sigh and a look of reluctance. I'll have to go, Tom. It's the office, a case that can't wait. When shall I see you again? His face was a study. If I didn't know you, Millie... I should think you were faking it to get out of telling me. You've never been willing to tell me straight. His hands were thrust into his pockets, and his face was a little grim. She smiled at him. Why, Tom, there isn't anything I want so much as a good talk with you. Oh, all right. The hands came out of his pockets. 
I'll stay till you come back. I may be half an hour, said Millie. I'll wait, responded Tom. Can I smoke? He glanced dubiously about the sunlit room. She laughed out. Open the window and sit rather near it. She took her hat and coat from the closet. What will you do to amuse yourself? She was pinning on the gray hat, and her eyes looked out at him inquiringly under the brim as she thrust in the pins and straightened it firmly in place. I've got the case, said Tom, the one I came to you about. I've wanted just such a quiet place as this to think it over. Nobody coming and going. Very well, in half an hour then. She nodded to him and went out, and Tom Corbin, the head of what had been till two years ago, the most important detective agency in the state, was left alone in the quiet office, with a little bunch of flowers on the desk and the sunshine filling the room. End of chapter one. He went over and threw up the window and stood looking out. Presently, he lighted his pipe and drew a whiff or two and let it out, free, grateful puffs. His hands were thrust into his pockets. By and by, he strolled over to the desk and stood looking down at it. One hand came out of his pocket and tried the drawer at the right. It was locked. He returned his hand to his pocket. The action had almost been automatic, at the most, curious rather than intentional. Presently, he reached out and tried the drawer below. It slid back into his hand, and he was gazing down at the maze of green wool. He lifted it gingerly. An amber needle slid from its place and fell to the floor. Tom picked it up hastily. He glanced at the green knitted stuff a little dubiously. It struck him there was something wrong about one end of it. How was a man to tell? He replaced it with a little look of irritation and laid the amber needle on top of it and shut the drawer. He looked about him and crossed to a file case by the door. He knelt before it, fussing at the lock, and reached into his pocket for a key ring, from which he selected a curious bit of stout wire with curious curves in it and a little hook at the end. He inserted it in the keyhole, manipulating it with a light touch, his other hand pulling slightly on the upright bar that secured the drawers. The bar gave a little in his hand, and a look of satisfaction crossed his face. There was no guilt in the face as he pulled open the drawer and looked in. He was only playing a good game on Millie, paying her out a bit for leaving him alone. The drawer contained long iron rods strung with index cards, and his fingers pushed them apart. His puzzled gaze studied first one, and then another, and another. He shut the drawer with a motion of impatience, and opened the one above with the same result. He stood and glared at the innocent file case, and reached to the upright bar and drew it together. The lock snapped in place. Tom Corbin sauntered to the window, and stood again with hands in pockets, looking down on the teeming city. He was supposed to be thinking out the Hudson case, but his mind was filled to overflowing with Millie. He found himself a little excited. He could not rid the office of her presence. That green stuff there in the drawer behind him was full of her, and those flowers on the desk. He wheeled about and looked at them meditatively. He had forgotten how Millie made you feel. He knew he had missed her from the business, but he had not remembered she was just like this. He moved restlessly and brought a chair to the window and sat down, the smoke from his pipe drifting up against the blue of the sky. He was recalling Millie as she appeared in his office that first day ten years ago. He had been puzzling over the Babcock case, he remembered. Everybody called it suicide. He had had his suspicion that it was not suicide, but murder, and somehow his suspicion must have leaked out. There had been a mysterious hint in the morning's paper. He was vexed with the whole business, and not in a pleasant mood. Then the door had opened, and a young woman, hardly more than a girl, it seemed to him, had come hurriedly in. She had looked about her with a half-frightened air. 
She had something to tell him. About the Babcock case, she said. They were neighbors, not friends. She did not know them, but she had often seen John Babcock coming and going. She did not believe he had committed suicide. She had paused, breathless, and Tom had nodded, a little cynically, toward the morning's paper. She flushed quickly. Yes, that's why I came. I don't believe Wendell Payson is guilty. Tom could recall now the look in her face that had made him motion for her to sit down and tell him what she knew. But when she had told it, there was nothing you could put your finger on, nothing that would seem to be of the slightest use. She had come to him because of a conviction she had that John Babcock had been murdered, and by a woman to whom he was once engaged. She had no reason for this belief, nothing to support it, except that she saw the woman once in a streetcar. She knew, herself, that her coming to him must seem foolish. But when she read in the morning's paper that Wendell Payson was suspected, she had put on her hat and come straight to the Corbin agency. Tom Corbin, sitting by the open window of Millie's office, removed his pipe and blew a trailing, meditative cloud of smoke. It had been a long road from that morning, and the girl's half-frightened belief in what she told him, to the gray-haired woman who had faced him so quietly this morning, and who was now on her way to a busy office that handled quite half the business of the city. Yes, quite half. Tom nodded a little grimly and smoked on. He had followed the clue she gave him in the Babcock case at first unbelievingly, and then, as events developed, with keen scent. The woman had confessed to it eventually. She was serving her term in state's prison today. The case had brought glory to the Corbin agency. It had been a baffling case and well advertised. Tom knew he had handled it well, but he also knew to whom the real credit was due. After the Babcock case, he had employed Millie at times, first informally for shoplifting cases or salesgirl thefts, or as a seamstress or chambermaid in some place where a man could not go without suspicion. Later she had become a regular member of the force, and he had found himself depending on her more and more, not so much for facts and the combining of facts, as for a theory that would fit them. And then, just as he was congratulating himself that he had a tool to his hand, as fine and keen-tempered as Millie, and trusty, and that she would not always be making extortionate demands for salary or promotion, like a man, she seemed to love the work for itself. Just as he was settling down comfortably to all this, Millie had announced her intention of setting up an office of her own. Tom went back over it, the things he had offered her, better pay, promotion, half-time, and she had shaken her head at him. No, she didn't want them. What was it she had wanted, he wondered. She had got it, sure, whatever it was. He glanced about the compact little room. Phew, he would suffocate in a day of it, and yet there was something. He looked around him again. It was Millie herself. There was nobody quite like Millie. He had found that out in those early days when she first left him. It was as if he had lost an eye or an ear, both eyes, both ears, he thought savagely. It seemed to him he had begun all over again, getting at facts in the old, bungling way. And meantime, Millie's office had spread from a room to four, and from four to twelve. And this morning he had suddenly come to his decision to join forces with her. He would offer her a partnership. It was the one thing he had balked at. It had not been mentioned. But he had a conviction that if he had said to Millie that morning she left, See here, Millie, we'll go shares. I'll make you my partner. He had a feeling that if he had said this, Millie would have done it. Well, he had offered it now. The word partner had not been mentioned, but they both knew that was what it would come to. Tom blew a placid cloud of smoke. It floated from the window. He had been long enough about it. He could not understand now why he had waited so long. This morning, as soon as the idea had come to him, he had not waited a second. He had clapped on his hat and gone straight to Millie's office, the downtown one. They were surely doing the business there. His mind dwelt happily on the downtown office. 
and the smoke from his pipe drifted from the window and built castles in the air. End of chapter 2 And in the downtown office, Millie, sitting in a large chair drawn up before a table, was confronting a thick-set, clumsily built man, a Dane it might be, from his speech. I got to go, Miss Newberry, he was saying stolidly. My woman, she say, all time, you take job. She don't know I can't go new place. He stared at her almost resentfully, yet with a kind of deference in the slouching shoulders. Where is it, Mr. Bergman? asked Millie quietly. Milwaukee, said the man. Good work, big pay. My wife's brother, he say. Come quick, you lose big job. He don't know I can't go to Milwaukee. I got to go, Miss Newberry. The big hands that had been shifting his old hat through nervous fingers gripped it suddenly, and his eyes lifted themselves to her face with a dumb look of insistence. She returned the look thoughtfully. How long has it been? she asked. Ten months, said the man quickly. And you have been reporting to me every two weeks for ten months? He nodded with a hopeless gesture. And if you went to Milwaukee? He started. A gleam came into his blue eyes. I be good man, he said. I keep straight. I work hard. Big pay. A strong man. He stretched out his great arm. Yes, I know you're strong. If you hadn't been strong, you wouldn't have laid out Sergeant McKay with one blow. I didn't know he police, interpolated the man eagerly. I just hit. Anybody. All round. He waved his great arm dramatically. It swung past Millie's head, and the hand descended with a thud on the table between them. You know I good man, he said impressively. Millie nodded. But you struck down the sergeant. Yes. The blue eyes dropped an instant. Then they raised themselves, trustfully, to her. When you're drunk, you hit all round, he explained simply. So I understand, returned Millie with a smile. Now suppose you get drunk in Milwaukee and hit all round, and are arrested again. The man started a little. Yes, said Millie quietly, and then, when you break jail and escape, and they catch you again in Milwaukee, it means prison, six months, a year perhaps. Isn't it better to stay here and report to me every other week, better than being in prison in Milwaukee and no one to earn money for the children? How is Carl? she asked abruptly. The man's face was suffused with a quick glow of pride. He do grand, he said. He bring home praise card. They say Carl McFine boy. He hasn't had to stay out of school for nearly a year now, commented Millie. But when his father gets drunk and goes to jail or prison, and Carl has to stay out to earn money, he can't be the fine boy you want him to be. Wasn't that what you came to America for, Mr. Bergman? For the sake of the children? She asked it slowly, watching his face. The blue eyes were studying the floor. He was like a great overgrown boy, his sturdy figure standing erect before her. But when he raised the blue eyes shrewdly and looked at her with straight glance, they suggested Viking days and the strength of battle, and the Danish forebears whose blood raced in his veins seemed trying to speak in the broken words that crowded to the clumsy lips. I stop drink, Miss Newberry. I begin new man, Milwaukee. When they say have a drink, I shake head. I go way off. My boy, he stay school. My wife, she have nice shawl. He leaned forward with eager gaze. I try hard, he said simply. Millie's gaze was noncommittal. Why do you want to drink, Mr. Bergman? she asked. Why is it so hard for you to stop? Is it the taste of it you want? His eyes sought the corners of the room for answer, and his hand turned the old felt hat. His neck raised itself a little from the blue shirt band. I don't like it, that stuff, he announced. No? Bad stuff, he went on slowly. Bad, in here. He placed an appropriate hand. You drink it because you're bored, I believe, said Millie, looking at him shrewdly. He turned a grateful glance. Yes, 
He heaved a sigh. I get up. I go to work. I work hard. I mean be good man. But all time I feel bad in here. I want laugh. I want sing. I want something happen. I say, go take drink. And then things happen, said Millie dryly. Listen, Mr. Bergman, I'm going to put you on a long parole for six months. You are to go to Milwaukee and take this job. He started eagerly. She held up a hand. At the end of six months, if you have been drunk even once, you are to come back and report to me here. The man's gaze was thoughtful. That take big money, he said. It will take bigger money to get drunk, won't it? said Millie curtly. I may have to be in Milwaukee. If I am, you can report to me there. If not, you will come to me here. The man looked at it a long minute. He sighed heavily. Thank you, miss. Then said another minute. I don't get drunk, he said. I don't believe you will, replied Millie. If I thought you would, I shouldn't let you go. You have kept straight nearly a year now, with no excitement except coming to see me once in two weeks. Her eye twinkled a little. You won't have that excitement now, and I am going to tell you what to do. He looked at her trustingly. You are to plan every day something different to do. Something different? said the man vaguely. He looked helplessly about the room. What I plan? he asked. She shook her head. Don't ask me. You must think. That will help you forget the drinking. Listen. She leaned forward a little. You are going to have more money in Milwaukee. Big pay, said the man expansively. Yes, well, you must spend some of the money for good times. Good times? He scratched his head. Then he shook it without enthusiasm. For all of you, said Millie. Things for the children and for your wife. Every day be planning something to do when you get home or for Saturday afternoon or Sunday. Make a garden for them or take them on a picnic. Think of things, she said energetically. He gazed at her humbly. You think that good way? He asked doubtfully. I know it is, said Millie. You keep thinking about the children. Make them happy and well, and you won't want to drink. She rose and held out her hand. Goodbye, she said quietly. I don't think you will come to see me again. Something like regret was in the man's face, striving to touch the thick lips, and Millie looked at it with eyes that held a quick light, as if some joy came to her. Goodbye, she said. Write to me some day about the children. I shall want to hear about them. He took the hand awkwardly and dropped it and moved to the door. At the door, he looked back. Goodbye, he said. You write to me, said Millie, about the children. He held up a clumsy hand and looked at it. I don't know how to write, he said slowly. But Carl, he write. He learned in the school already. He looked at her as if the words were shaping in a deep place and groping toward her. I thank you, he said slowly. You make good man for me. I thank you. She nodded, and a little quick mist seemed to come between her and the clumsy figure passing through the door and closing it with careful hand. The man had kept straight for ten months. She had little fear for him now. And something passed with him, out through the door, a kind of grim will to keep straight that she had been watching shape itself for ten months. He was stronger than he knew. She turned with a little sigh and gathered up a handful of papers on the table and went out. She had suddenly remembered Tom Corbin in the uptown office, probably chafing and fuming at delay. She went quickly toward the entrance of the building, thinking only of Tom waiting in the office and Tom's impatience. But in the revolving outer door, she paused. A young man in the opposite compartment had smiled to her and touched his hat. They both moved forward, and the door swung round, and he was still in the opposite compartment, begging her, with a little gesture, to wait for him. She stepped back into the hall, and when the door swung round, bringing him to her side, she greeted him with a smile. Did you want to see me? 
I thought you wanted to see me, he said half whimsically. His shoulders straightened a little as he said it, and he looked down at her. It's my last day, isn't it? he suggested with a quiet look. So it is, her face lightened. I am sorry, but someone is waiting for me in the uptown office. I can't ask you to come again, of course. She held out her hand. So thank you, and good luck to you. He took her hand slowly. Thank you, he said, looking down at her a little quizzically. But you don't cheat me out of a visit like that. I shall come again. The words were deliberate, and there was a quiet intentness in his face. You want to come? she asked. A little flush seemed to travel across her grayness. I wouldn't miss it for the world, he replied. The quiet glance did not leave her face. A little look of reserve touched its flitting color, and she spoke half-doubtingly. I am not sure when I... But he brushed it aside. Oh, you can't put me off. When a man has been calling on you regularly for at least a year, he has some rights, surely. There was something almost grave in the laughing protest of the words, and she met it with a long, quiet look. Very well. She consulted the tablet slip that she took from her green purse, and he took a step forward, looking down at her and at the slip, almost with an air of proprietorship. Put it up, please, Miss Newberry, he said quickly. I'm not going to trouble a busy woman like you with whims. Perhaps you will let me call on you some evening? He was looking at her intently, and she returned the look, the flush flitting again in her face. Why, of course, she said cordially. I shall be glad to see you any time. Only, she paused a moment. I am often away from home, you know. Then I shall come again, if I find you out. You will not get rid of me so easily with an excuse. And he touched his hat and moved away through the swinging door. Her eyes followed the tall figure passing into the crowd. At the edge of the sidewalk, he turned and looked back and raised his hat gravely to her before he disappeared in the crowd. There was something almost significant in the gesture, and with a little sigh, she replaced the tablet in the green silk purse and snapped it thoughtfully. Then, suddenly, she remembered again Tom Corbin, waiting in the office uptown, and she hurried out. End of chapter 3 He looked up a little cynically. "'I hope you haven't hurried,' he said with stern politeness. She smiled at the gesture that accompanied the words. "'I was detained.' She took off her hat and put it in the closet and seated herself by the desk, looking at him tranquilly. "'Now can we talk?' said Corbin with satisfaction. "'Yes. Do you mind if I knit?' "'Not at all. Go ahead.' The response was light, but his eye had a cautious, waiting look as she reached to the drawer beside her and gazed into it. Her hand stayed itself and passed thoughtfully across the edge of the drawer before it lifted the amber needle from the top of the knitting and drew them both from the drawer. She held up the maze of green wool and looked at it with amused eyes and at the row of stitches that gaped helplessly along the top. Corbin fidgeted a little. Funny thing, knitting, he said. She assented and inserted the needle carefully through the gaping row of stitches. Her whole attention was absorbed in them. "'Anything wrong?' demanded Corbin irritably. "'No,' she replied. "'It is better to hold onto both needles when you take it up.' A little smile finished the row, and she held it up with the needle in place. "'That's the way it was,' she announced. "'Oh, bother,' said Corbin. "'I was just looking around,' he explained after a minute. "'Yes, I know.' Her fingers were flying nimbly through the wool, and her gaze rested on him placidly. "'Did you find anything that interested you?' she asked kindly. "'Not much. I should have to work on your cipher first. "'Yes,' she beamed on him. "'It's very simple.' "'Everything about you is simple, Millie,' 
He was tilting a little in his chair. Even the sergeant case was simple, I suppose. His tone was thoughtful, and his eye rested on the file case across the room. That meant a whole lot of money for somebody, he said softly. Not for me, returned Millie quickly. He looked at her and whistled meditatively between his teeth. Why not, he said. She rested her knitting on her lap. That's what I'm going to tell you, Tom. It's my method, she added, if you choose to call it a method. She sat for a moment in silence, looking at him. Go ahead, suggested Tom. She sighed a little and took up the knitting. I know you won't like it, she said hesitatingly. I can't tell till I hear it, can I? A little impatience slicked the words, and she smiled. No, of course not. I'm only trying to think of some way of saying it that won't sound so absurd to you. It's like this. She drew out a needle and turned the row of green wool and looked at it and smoothed it a little. You see, Tom, you and I don't want the same things. She raised her eyes. He regarded her mildly. That is why I left you. I want a chance to say what shall be done with the criminals I catch. He stared a minute. Maybe I'd like to be a justice of the Supreme Bench, he offered. She shook her head. I'd rather be judge of the criminal court, she responded, smiling. Oh, well, have it your own way. The irony was magnificent. I mean to. I couldn't have my own way and stay with you. He hedged a little. Well, she smiled and shook her head. You couldn't stand for it. No, I want something quite different, Tom. It isn't common sense to go on catching folks and locking them up forever, or for a little while, and then letting them run loose. And the punishments we think up don't really punish them. We put a man in prison. Of course he doesn't like it. Well, hardly, said Tom dryly. But after all, the worst punishment for most of us is living right along in the world and knowing everybody has found you out and despises you and thinks of it every time they see you. That's what his wife and daughters have to live through every day, and his mother. They have to face the disgrace everywhere they go. I'd like to fix things so it wouldn't come quite so hard on them. I want to say what shall be done with the criminal I catch, she concluded. Send them flowers the way the ladies do, sneered Tom. Sentimental bosh. We've got to protect society. That's our work. Yes, it's part of it. He got up irritably and moved across the room. Do you mind if I smoke? No. He filled his pipe, crowding down the tobacco with a stern touch. He lighted it and drew a whiff or two, and came back to his place and sat down and looked at her. Go on, he said. She glanced up. Tell me the rest, he nodded. There isn't any rest, said Millie, laughing. That's all. I should judge so. What becomes of him after that? Well, this is the part you particularly won't like, she said hastily. I decide whether they are to have another chance or to go to prison. You? She nodded. I told you you wouldn't like it. I wasn't sure myself how it would work when I began. I only knew I was tired of catching criminals to turn over to the police, and the police handing them over to the judge, and the judge handing them over to the prison, and the prison, well, you know, Tom, what they are when they come out of prison. It's a little better now under the new ideas, but not much. Why, you know and I know that half the men in prison ought never to have been sent there. It's bad for them, bad for society. He stirred uneasily. That isn't our affair, he said. Our business is to catch them. 
What becomes of them after that doesn't concern us. It concerns me, said Millie. I got so I couldn't sleep nights, thinking of men in prison that would never have been there if it hadn't been for me. Men that I knew weren't really bad, drunk or mad or something. I made up my mind that if I did the catching, I was going to have something to say about the punishment. The law takes care of that, retorted Tom. Not if it doesn't get to the law. She smiled at him disarmingly. That's where I come in. He made a little gesture, but she ignored the scorn in it. It isn't so hard as you think if you just try to see what's right and forget about the law. He laughed shortly. No doubt. We all slip sometimes, she went on. Everybody slips. You do and I do. He raised a protesting hand. She nodded. And it isn't fair. Just because somebody sees you go down or hunts around and finds out afterward about it, that you should be punished and another man who isn't found out goes free. It's the law, said Tom feebly. It's unjust, said Millie. And it isn't common sense. I've thought about it a good deal, she said mildly. Evidently, murmured Tom. He was smoking slowly and looking at her with half-shut eyes. It seems to me, she went on, that doing wrong is a good deal like the attraction of gravity. Everybody's liable to take a tumble sometime. Of course, if you sit still like a lump of dough, you're safe enough. But folks that fly around lively are liable to slip most of the time. Tom chuckled. And perhaps just slipping is punishment enough for some folks, she pursued. If they come down good and hard, maybe they won't slip again for a good while. Perhaps not ever. Perhaps not, sneered Tom. But who is going to tell? If a man tells a straight story, he ought to have another chance, said Millie firmly. And who's going to judge whether he's straight, persisted Tom. Her color rose a little. I told you, I judge that myself. He looked at her. You think you're competent to do that, I suppose? The irony was very gentle, and she brushed it aside. Of course I am not competent, Tom. Nobody is. But it's better than shutting them up in prison at the expense of the state and all the shame and poverty for his wife and children. Besides, she said slowly, you do know pretty well when a man's telling a straight story. You know better than you think you do when a man's sincere, and they want to be straight. Why, I've seen them sometimes, Tom, she leaned forward eagerly. I've seen them try, when they got the idea that all they had to do was tell a straight story. I've seen them try till it was pathetic. They are pathetic, she declared, and they are sick, some of them. They can't tell the truth, no matter how hard they try. A man that can't tell the truth ought to be in prison just as much as if he had a temperature. He's got a germ. He needs a cathartic or something. She fired it at him and his eyes twinkled. He's better off in a hospital. Only they're such pest houses, the prisons we have now, she added reluctantly. But they're the best we've got, and you can't leave a man with smallpox germ going around loose. Nor a confirmed criminal, not one that lies, she concluded. Tom laughed out shortly. You make out a good case, Millie. You ought to be a lawyer. She flushed. You say that for a compliment, but it isn't. How about your clients? said Tom abruptly. Don't they kick? They have to sign for it beforehand, said Millie. He stared. You mean they agree to let you... He broke off before the absurdity of it. 
They have to, she said tranquilly. She rolled up her work and tossed it into the drawer, and opened another drawer, at the right, and took out a paper. This is my form of agreement. She handed it to him, and he read it through and whistled softly. You mean they signed for that? He held it up, shaking it a little. She nodded. A smile broke across her face. I should ask you to sign it if we go into partnership, she said quietly. He handed it back to her with a quick, negative gesture. Not for me, Millie, he said decisively. I told you you wouldn't stand for it, she replied. She replaced the paper in the drawer and closed it. His eye followed the movement. I never dreamed of anything like that, he retorted sternly. Better try dreaming it for a while, she responded. There's more in it than you think, perhaps. He nodded gloomily. But not for me. It's a pipe dream. He removed the pipe from his mouth and looked at its deadness and knocked the ashes into the tray she pushed toward him. He stowed the pipe in his pocket. That's done, he said. She was looking at him with half-amused eyes. His elbows rested on the chair arms and his fingers were crossed protectingly across his person. He shook his head once or twice. Simply absurd, he murmured. I knew you would think so, said Millie. You don't want me for a partner, then? He gave her a slow look. I want you, yes, but not on those terms. He nodded toward the closed drawer. Those are my terms, she said gently. Well, he roused himself and got up and reached for his hat. He turned to her. I'll tell you what I will do, he said magnanimously. I'll sign you for a single case. The Hudson case, said Millie in surprise. He shook his head. Not the Hudson case, but one quite as important. One that nobody will ever solve. He said it with a little cynical smile, and she hesitated a moment. Then she opened the drawer and took out the paper and handed it to him. He reached for a pen and filled in the blank spaces and signed his name with a firm hand. It's for the Mason Emeralds, he said. He pushed the paper toward her. Find out who took the Mason Emeralds and you shall do what you like with the thief. The reward we split even. It's big money. Very well. She folded the paper in slow fingers. When will you give me the history? She asked. This afternoon, any time, he said promptly, that you'll come down to the office. We're full of stuff on the case. I'll turn it over to you and be glad to. We gave up the case two years ago after some of the hardest work the office ever put in on anything. I shelved it for good and all, I thought. But this morning I happened to come on a clipping in my mail announcing the death of a woman whom we had suspected. He opened his purse and took it out and handed it to her. It's only fair to tell you, Millie, that you will never solve the case. His manner was kind as he handed it to her. There was something uncanny in the way the Mason Emeralds dropped out of the world. And even as he said it, the mystery seemed tagging at him, beckoning him to follow it once more. He shrugged his shoulders with a little gesture of defeat and glanced about the quiet office and then at Millie, standing with the clipping in her fingers, regarding him with a smile. He shook his head slowly. You're making a mistake, Millie, not to come in with me. We are made to work together. You have a good mind for details, but you need me to handle the case as a whole. He spoke magnanimously, and she held out her hand. It's good to see you again, Tom. Yes, I'll come this afternoon. 
I can't tell, of course, whether I will take the case until I know more about it. He stared at her a minute. Then he chuckled. No wonder you have the business, he said softly. If you treat them all like that. A knock sounded on the door, and she turned to it with a motion of excuse. The man who stood in the hall lifted his hat. May I see Miss Newberry? he asked. I am Miss Newberry, said Millie quietly. Will you come in? And as the stranger entered and Tom passed out, he was wondering about the man. All the way down in the elevator, descending to the street, he was wondering what John Kingman wanted of Millie. Tom knew the man. He was a big serum specialist. He had heard him testify in a murder case last week. Millie certainly had luck, and she had the business. End of Chapter 4 Chapter 5 of The Green Jacket by Jeanette Lee This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Will you sit down? said Millie. She motioned to the chair by the desk. He looked a little dubiously about the room, and then at the quiet figure that confronted him. You are Miss Newberry? he said doubtingly. Yes, she smiled slightly. He seated himself and drew a handful of papers from his pocket. From among them he selected a business card and laid it on the desk. That is my name. She glanced down at the minute script. Dr. John Kingman, Serum Specialist, Room 136, Caxton Building. He was looking at her hopefully. You know my name? He asked doubtfully. A faint smile touched her lips. I have heard it. Is there something I can do for you? She pushed his card a little aside with her finger and looked at the man. He twisted in his seat and stared at the window. I want evidence collected for me. You do that, don't you? He turned to her brusquely. I do it sometimes, yes. He glanced at her sharply. I was told you are the best detective in the state for difficult cases. The flattery seemed to slip past the gray eyes. They were regarding him steadily. Is your case difficult? she asked. Damned if I beg your pardon. He chewed at the corner of his mustache. It had a short, crop look, as if it had been attacked in moments of perplexity. The woman's hand reached the drawer beside her, and it slid softly open. Would you mind if I knit? she said. He stared at her. Knit? Oh. His eye fell on the green wool with a condescending glance. Go ahead, he granted. He laughed with a little masculine ease, and watched the needles as they moved swiftly in her fingers. "'Women like that sort of thing,' he commanded. "'I believe if my wife had knit things like that.' He moved his hand to the green wool. "'I'd never be here.' Her needles had come to the end of a row, and they turned it deftly. She did not speak. The man's face relaxed a little. "'I want a divorce, you know.' "'Yes?' The word and the wool ran together in quiet assent, and the man stretched himself comfortably in his chair. "'My wife?' She lifted her eyes. You had better not tell me about it, she said. I don't handle divorce cases. He stared and sat up quickly. You're too high-toned, I suppose. It was a quick sneer. Not high enough, she returned. I should be glad to handle them if I knew enough. I don't. They belong to a very high grade of work. You take murder cases, don't you? He retorted. Sometimes. And you mean to tell me a divorce case is more difficult than a murder case? He moved his hand cynically. "'Much more difficult for me,' she added. 
Have you tried the Corbin Agency? I don't want the Corbin Agency, he said brusquely. He studied her face. You needn't be afraid of this case, he said smoothly. It will be perfectly respectable. I want it to be respectable. That's why I came to you. If you will let me tell you... She turned her knitting again. I'd rather not, please. I should be sure to get interested. That's what I hoped, he said quickly. Yes, but I don't want to get interested. It blurs my mind, takes off its edge for the cases I am pledged to carry. I will give you a piece of advice, if you like. I am willing to pay well for it, he expanded. This is not for pay. No matter what your wife has done, go home and do everything you can that will be for her good. The man stared. Stop thinking about yourself and your wrongs. I don't know what they are. I'd rather not know. Whatever they are, they are past. If it is best for your wife to leave you, then help her do it. Stop thinking about yourself. The man's narrow eyes widened a little as they studied the quiet face before him. She nodded. Help her to get away from you if you think she will be better off. The man's eyes continued to regard her with a puzzled look. But I'd be pretty sure first, if I were you, that it's best for her to leave you. It would be a silly sort of body, if its heart went wrong, that went to work planning to get rid of it, divorce it for good and all. That's a homely way of saying it. I'm a homely woman, and when people are married they seem to me one, just as truly as the body is all one. I don't divorce part of me, unless it's too bad to be made right. If it is, I go to a good surgeon and tell him to make quick work of it. She paused with a thoughtful look and smiled. But the best surgeons now, they tell me, don't believe in amputating. They bring their cases to a serum specialist, don't they? She nodded toward the card on the desk. And you find out what's wrong, and give them some more of the same kind, only different, and they get well. The look in the man's face darted, and broke in a little laugh. You think I'd better give Rose serum treatment? Spiritual serum? He chuckled. His face had cleared. I wonder what kind, he said thoughtfully. His voice had the keen note of the scientist attacking a difficult problem. Some brand of human kindness, I should say, responded Millie dryly. The man laughed and got up. I believe you've been giving me serum treatment. He held out his hand. If there's ever anything I can do for you, he motioned to the card. She glanced down at it and her face lighted. Someday I should like to come to you to study, she said. I want to know about this serum business. I think perhaps it would help me to understand human nature a little better. He laughed out. More likely you would tell me enough about people so I would understand my own serums better. I've been staring at my cultures for years, never suspecting what they might mean. He looked at her curiously. Do you know, this is the first time in six months that I have laughed. She returned the look quietly. It's a pity your wife couldn't hear you. She said it in a matter-of-fact tone, and he laughed out again. I am going home, he said. I came here with the idea that I was a desperate figure, a kind of modern Othello, blighted life and so on, due to infidelity. You've made me see I'm sick, a kind of spiritual invalid that hasn't sense enough to take care of a common cold, just goes around suffering with it. He paused a minute and looked at her thoughtfully. May I say that if divorce cases are difficult, they ought to be your specialty. You may not know enough to handle them, but you certainly have common sense. She shook her head. Yes, I have common sense but they require a higher kind of sense. Someday I hope to have a little of it, only by that time, she turned to him with a quick look, marriage may be out of date. She said it a little whimsically and motioned aside the checkbook he had drawn from his pocket. No, I do not want your money. The advice may not be worth anything. Try it and see. 
When he was gone, she went to the window and threw it up, and stood looking off at the clouds. Her face had a tired look, and now and then she passed her hands quietly across her eyes and down her face, as if she were freeing herself from something. When she resumed her knitting, there was a little smile on her lips. Her mind had run back to the days when she first began work, the mistakes she had made before she found herself and her work. In those early days, she had handled divorce cases. Yes, even after she set up business for herself, there had been one or two before she learned her lesson, that they were the most difficult work in the world for a detective who wanted what she wanted. And all that she wanted grew with every day of work. Her eyes followed the amber needles, and thoughts seemed to flow before them as if a pattern knitted itself in the green wool. At first she had tried to take notes while clients talked, but she found they grew self-conscious and began to embroider facts, or they ran dry and stopped altogether. But the knitting seemed to relax tongues, and she had fallen into a way, when she wanted to remember a point or reconsider it, of purling a double stitch in her work. She even, as she grew more skillful, made what might be called a rough little pattern of the case in the stitches that slipped so smoothly through her fingers. Many of her plans were wrought in wool, and the knitting was always in her hands when she was talking with a new client or thinking out his case. But it was confined to the uptown office, where the most important business of the firm was transacted. Here, whenever possible, Millie received clients for the first time. Many of her clients did not even guess of the existence of the busier office, with its rows of typewriters and swinging glass doors. End of Chapter 5 A shadow fell on the ground glass door and paused. Millie looked up quickly. She half reached out to close the open drawer with its ball of wool. Then she withdrew her hand and went on knitting. The shadow stirred a little and a timid knock came on the door. Come in, said Millie. She went on counting stitches. When she looked up, a tall, gaunt figure in black, heavily veiled, was standing hesitatingly by the closed door. "'Will you sit down?' she said. The woman moved forward, almost tremulously, and came to the chair by the desk. "'Are you a detective?' she asked doubtfully. "'I am Millicent Newberry, yes.' With a little gasp of relief, the woman sank into the chair. Millie went on with her knitting. Apparently, she had forgotten the woman by the desk. Her eyes, following the line of wool, gave no hint that they had taken in each detail of the gaunt figure, even to the hands folded in her lap. The hands were large, and the knuckles seen through the wrinkled black gloves were slightly misshapen. The fingers seemed to clinch a little, as if to hold themselves steady. Behind the veil, the dark eyes studied the woman who was knitting. She came to the end of the row before she looked up. "'Did you want to see me?' she asked as she drew out the needle and turned her work. The woman's lips moistened themselves, and she lifted a hand and threw back the veil as if it suffocated her. The face revealed was very pale. She gave a quick glance about the room, the flowers on the desk, the sunshine filling the room, and the gray woman with her knitting seemed to release some hidden spring, and she gave a quick, restful sigh. The pale face turned to Millie with a look of relief. "'I thought you would be different,' she said. "'No, this is the way I am. Can I do something for you?' The gaunt hands fumbled at the bosom of her gown and drew out an envelope and held it a minute. Then they laid it on the desk. "'I want to ask you about that,' she said it quickly. But when Millie's hand reached to the letter, she half darted to it as if to rescue it. Then she drew back, and a wan smile crossed her face. 
"'You must not mind what I do,' she said wistfully. "'I have been afraid to come to you.' The voice was full of gentle apology, and the lines of the face seemed to soften as she looked at Millie. They gave to the face the subtle refinement that comes only through suffering and experience. "'You must not mind me,' she said again. "'I'm not afraid of you now. I want you to read it, please.' Millie opened the letter with slow fingers. It lay on the desk between them, and she did not offer again to take it up. The woman's eyes seemed to follow hers as they read, with a look of questioning in them. "'Dear Aunt Helen, I am thanking you every minute for coming to me. I know now you do not blame me. I could not talk freely with you. I am under a pledge. But a great wrong is being done. You must not rest till you know. The nurse has told me of Millicent Newberry. I think she can help you, and she can keep a secret. Go to her soon, dear aunt. I am loving you always, Marion.' Millie read it through without comment and folded it and returned it to her. "'Who is Marion?' she asked. "'What is her other name?' "'She was Marion Mason,' said the woman. Millie's needles knit a double stitch before she looked up. "'Was?' she said slowly. "'Then she is?' "'She died,' said the woman, "'the day before this was mailed.' She touched the letter. There was a little quiver in her voice. "'She called you aunt?' said Millie, with a motion toward the letter." The woman hesitated an instant. "'I am not her aunt,' she said at last. "'She chose to call me aunt, but she was really my adopted daughter. "'We adopted her when she was twelve years old "'and gave her our own name, Mason.' "'Another double stitch slipped into the wool, "'and the woman's voice went quietly on. "'You see, she tells me to come to you.' "'She touched the letter again. "'That means I must tell you everything.' "'She seemed to shrink a little. "'You need not be afraid.' "'No,' It was almost eager. I want to tell you, but I have suffered, and it comes crowding back. She raised a gaunt hand to her breast, and hurried on, as if fearful her purpose might fail her. I am Mrs. Oswald Mason. We live at Lincoln. We have always lived there, and Marion lived with us until two years ago. Then she went away. I have not seen her since, until two weeks ago when she wrote, asking me to come to her. She said they had told her she was dying, and she wanted to see me. She paused, wrestling with herself. You went to her, did you? The voice was gentle, and she raised a grateful look. I went at once. I could not have kept from going. I always loved her dearly. Even when the trouble came, I loved her, though I was very hard on her. The voice dropped almost to a whisper. What was the trouble? asked Millie. A necklace of emeralds. They were mine, said the woman, and they disappeared. Something in the words and the voice knit a swift, flying stitch into the green wool, but the quiet face was unmoved. And you thought she took them? Oh, I didn't know. The woman's hands in the wrinkled gloves clasped themselves tightly. I did not think. They were gone. Was there any reason? She was in my room alone nearly all the afternoon before they disappeared. She was doing up some laces for me, and we had been looking over my jewels, cleaning some of them. She hesitated a minute. I do not look like a woman who would have fine jewels, do I? She raised her hollow eyes. But my husband thinks I am beautiful. She said it softly and half apologetically. He likes to give jewels to me. Something far within the woman's face, a certain wild beauty, seemed to shine out elusively. And Millie, over her knitting, had a sense of truth in the words and a quick curiosity about the man who had seen and evoked the beauty in its uncouth setting. 
I am old now, went on the woman slowly. It was when I was young he gave them to me, most of them, but none so beautiful as the emeralds. She seemed lost in thought, and Milly did not speak or move. Already her mind was busy bringing order out of the detached, chaotic words. I could not help seeing that Marion admired them, the emeralds, while we were cleaning them. She held them up to the light and played with them, and finally she put them on and went over to the mirror and looked at herself a long time. The woman seemed to hurry over the words as if fearful of their import. I put the necklace in the case and left it unlocked on my toilet table when I went out. I did not come in till just after dinner, and I had to hurry and dress. But just before I went downstairs, I saw the case and locked it and put it in the cabinet where I always keep it. She sat silent, looking before her. I did not look in it. I could not dream of anything. I would sooner have suspected myself. The hands in the wrinkled gloves were pressed tightly together. I could not suspect Marion, she said under her breath. When did you miss them? asked Milly. The eyes returned to her swiftly. It was in the morning, next morning. Mr. Mason was starting for New York, and I remembered a pin I wanted him to take to match a stone that had been lost, and I ran up to my room to get it. The minute I opened the case, I knew the emeralds were gone. She paused a minute. It was curious I should have discovered it so soon. Sometimes I did not open the box for days. Did you tell your husband? At once. I hurried down with the box in my hand. I knew how valuable they were, and I was so thankful he had not gone before I discovered it. He was terribly startled. I could see from his face when I told him that they must have been even more valuable than I knew. But he made light of it. He told me not to worry. He said I had mislaid them and would find them somewhere in the room. He made me promise not to mention it to a soul. Then he had to hurry to catch his train, and I was left alone. I hunted everywhere. But you did not find them? No, they had been stolen. The woman's voice was dull, but there was a quick crimson spot in either cheek that gave a wild glow to her face. They have been a curse to me, she said almost fiercely. There has always been a curse on them. Always. Millie was folding her work slowly. She put it in the drawer and got up. "'You want me to take the case?' she asked. The woman nodded without speaking. She seemed still wrestling with the emotion that had caused her to cry out. Millie opened the drawer at the right and took out an agreement form and passed it to her with a pen, indicating the line. "'If you will be kind enough to sign there, I shall be glad to take the case.' The woman received it with dazed look. She read it through and glanced up quickly. "'But this gives you a great deal of power,' she said protestingly. "'Yes, I do not take a case otherwise,' replied Milly. The woman dipped the pen slowly. "'It is strange,' she said. "'But I had thought of asking you to give me this power.' She touched the paper. "'You wanted me to find out who took the emeralds, "'and then let you decide what should be done with the thief?' Milly was not looking at her. The question was almost careless. "'Yes,' The woman smiled wanly. Of course you would not do a thing like that. She traced her name on the paper, and Millie blotted it slowly. Yes, I should be quite willing to do it. But you need not be afraid to trust me with this. You and I want the same thing, I think. I will only keep it for safety, in case someone else tries to force my hand. She replaced the paper in the drawer and turned to the woman. I want you to drop the case, and any fear or responsibility you may have. Do not think of the emeralds again till I ask you about them. 
"'But I have not told you all,' protested the woman. "'Don't you need to know more than this?' She made a little gesture. "'Sometime, not now,' said Millie. "'You are tired and nervous. "'Go home and rest. Forget everything. "'Tomorrow I shall come to you as seamstress. "'But I have not. "'Your clothes need freshening.' She glanced kindly at the dingy black garments, and the woman's face flushed. "'This evening,' said Millie, "'you will see an advertisement in the paper, "'a first-class seamstress wanting work. "'You will call your husband's attention to it "'and say you will telephone me. "'I shall come out tomorrow. "'I shall, of course, sleep at the house. "'I may not be able to stay more than three or four days. "'If we have not found what we want by that time, "'I may have to send someone else to take my place for a while.' "'but I think we shall find it.' "'The woman's face had grown subtly rested, "'and in it was something of the elusive beauty "'that had startled Millie a little before. "'She stood up and held out her hand. "'I cannot tell you what it means to trust you, "'to trust anyone,' she said slowly. "'I shall sleep tonight.' "'You are not to worry again, remember. "'I only wish you had come to me sooner.' "'Oh, I could not.' "'A little shudder ran through the words.' I could not have come now. I should not have known about you if it had not been for this. She looked down at the letter in her hand. The nurse told her you could be trusted, you see. That was why I came. What was the nurse's name? asked Millie. Did you see her? Yes, she was Miss Stanton. Alice Stanton. She said she knew you? She glanced at her inquiringly. Millie nodded. She was concerned in a case I had last year. She is a fine woman. "'Yes, and Marion trusted her.' She held out the letter. "'I am going to leave this with you.' But her fingers seemed still to retain their hold on it. "'Do you want to?' asked Millie. "'I want to leave everything with you,' said the woman impulsively. Something that was like a smile touched the dark face. "'I did not think when I came I should be saying that to you,' she added softly. "'Go home and rest,' said Millie. "'And tomorrow I shall come to you.' I shall help you in every way I can. When the woman was gone, she unfolded the letter she had placed in her hands and read it slowly and thoughtfully and carried it to the case across the room and locked it away. Then she went to the telephone and called the downtown office and gave directions for an appointment to be made for her with Daggett and Beals, the leading jewelry firm in the city, at 11 o'clock. She hesitated a moment. Then she called the Corbin agency and asked for the manager. After a minute's delay, a gruff, important voice came over the wire to her, and she smiled a little as the importance reached her. "'It is Millie, Tom.' "'I'm at my office, yes. I want to come in about twelve, to talk over the Mason case. Shall you be there?' "'Yes, all right. Thank you.' She hung up and took her hat and coat from the closet and left the office. End of Chapter 6 the dingy window was cluttered with a collection of strange objects, and dark smells and secrets seemed to emerge from the low doorway as Millie entered the shop. The old man who hurried forward from a back room greeted her with an eager, smiling face. He rubbed his hands a little. "'It is a long time we do not see you,' he said slowly. The small eyes and shrugged-up shoulders regarded her kindly. "'How is business?' asked Millie. "'Oh, but bad.' The shoulders shrugged themselves higher and the outspread palms laid it before her. She smiled a little. Always bad, isn't it, Mr. Stransky? I am looking for emeralds. She spoke abruptly, and a swift look crossed the man's face. Emeralds? So? 
The hands spread themselves wider. He watched her face humbly. Listen, she said. I want to find a number of stones, or perhaps a whole necklace. Oh, ho! The hands made a swift, intelligent gesture that passed quickly to the face. That would be the Mason emeralds, he said. Yes, have you seen them? He shook his head with a long, knowing smile. If I see those stones, I rich man, he said quaintly. You have heard of them? He nodded darkly. Mr. Corbin, he offered big money two years ago. He say big reward, no risk. He shook his head slowly, spreading his fingers wide and touching one in swift emphasis. Not one emerald in all two years, he declared. Not one. Millie looked at him thoughtfully. Sometimes, you know, you have managed to find things for me, after everyone else had given up. She spoke with a little slow significance. I know you will do your best for me, she added casually. A swift mask seemed to fall from the man's face. The small eyes regarded her with kindly glance, and the hands and shoulders were quiet. I do all for you, Miss Newberry, he declared. But comes in, I tell you, first. But those emeralds, he shook his head. I think they will not come. No? No, a strange case, said the man. One day safe in box, next day gone. And not one stone comes in. How much do you know about them? asked Millie curiously. They tell us the number of stones and size, yes. Every pawn shop in the city has looked out, but not one stone, he said impressively. Why should they steal and not try to sell? he demanded of her. She shook her head. That's what I am going to find out, if I can. The man's eyes regarded her trustingly. I think you will find them, he said. Yes, I think it, he nodded his head. Thank you. I wish you could help me. How is Mrs. Stransky? Oh, Sarah. He raised his voice to the back of the shop. She want to see you, he confided to the detective. A little, shining-eyed woman came haltingly from the dusk of the rear. When she saw the gray figure by the door, she hurried forward. It is Miss Newberry, she cried. Yes, and how is Jacob? asked Millie, taking the eager hand. Yes, but fine, said the woman. You come in? Not this morning, Millie smiled. I came to ask Mr. Stransky to help me. Yes, the shining eyes consulted her husband's face. He shook his head. Nothing, he replied. Oh, but too bad, said the woman briskly. Not to help Miss Newberry, then she needs something. And she help Jakey, and not tell police. Her lifted hands were full of grateful memory. He is all right, is he? asked Millie. Jacob got good job, nodded the man. An always good boy, broke in the wife. Always so good boy. He get married now, next fall, she announced proudly. I am glad, said Millie. Tell him to come and see me sometime. He like come, said the woman eagerly. Always when he go to see you. He say it like some good time to see Miss Newberry. He's sorry when you say not come anymore. Millie laughed out. Well, tell him I don't say not come. I say come next week or whenever he can. Only telephone me first. I must go now and hunt emeralds. The eyes of the two followed her from the door of the shop. Then they turned and regarded each other gravely. She a good woman, said the man. Like our lady of the water, responded his wife. She hold a big candle and look everywhere. Something in the uplifted hand and fixed gaze of the tiny figure was not unlike the great statue that stands guard at the door of the nation, and Isaac's face held it admiringly. The woman's lips moved softly. 
She say, come, all children, I give good chance, she murmured under her breath. The fixed look broke. A figure stood in the doorway, and she moved toward it. Jakey, it is Miss Newberry. One minute now, she say, come. The youth stopped with perplexed gaze. Now what have I done, he muttered quickly. Oh, but not Jakey. She was half laughing, half crying, with the love and admiration in her gaze. The worn fingers stroked his sleeve. It was little visit. She say, make call. What for, demanded the youth. I'm keeping straight. His shoulders squared themselves. She can't come back on me for nothing, he declared proudly. His father's hand made gentle passes across the straightened shoulders, and his voice was soothing. So, he said, she say, make call, like friend. Oh, sure, laughed the boy. I'd like to call on her, all right. She is great. The shining mother eyes regarded him, and the little figure drew itself erect. Something of the spirit of liberty touched it again as she repeated softly after Jakey, She is great. And again softly, She hold candle high. Look everywhere. End of chapter 7「Chapter Eight of the Green Jacket by Jeanette Lee. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Tom Corbin got up quickly with a smile. Well, it's good to see you, Millie, coming in that door. It's like old times, you know. She shook hands with him and glanced about the office. You haven't changed things much, have you? More dust, that's about all, said Tom. He looked about the room critically, as if he saw it with new eyes and for the first time. Dust doesn't hurt, he declared. Good for fingerprints. He laughed out. Bad for fingers, returned Millie. Spoils the touch. Well, perhaps. You've decided to take the Mason case, have you? He was smiling at her a little cynically. She nodded. If you will give me the data. Oh, I'll give you the data, all you want. They've been right here, waiting for some time. He laid his hand on a huge pile of papers on the table. All those? asked Millie, incredulous. And more, responded Tom. These are the siftings. You'd better draw up. He placed a chair for her, and they bent over the mass of papers, Tom explaining and elaborating as she questioned and made notes, and laid aside such papers as she wished to take with her. It was evident that no pains had been spared, and no details overlooked. To a mind trained as Millie's had been under Tom Corbin's strenuous methods, the piled-up papers represented an enormous amount of faithful work. If it had been possible to solve the case by hard work, the Corbin agency would already have been in possession of the reward offered. Fifteen thousand dollars, said Tom. Were the stones worth as much as that? asked Millie in surprise. Well, he looked reflective. They were probably valuable, but I somehow had an idea that the reward covered something besides the worth of the jewels. Something I could not put my finger on, he added awkwardly. Yes, she was smiling. He shrugged his shoulders. I got into the way of imagining things of that sort, working with you, he declared. There's nothing in it, probably. Probably not, she murmured. The situation as outlined was certainly clear, and lacking in any element of mystery that might explain its baffling character. It lay before Millie in methodical order, each point carefully tabulated and arranged with Tom Corbin's usual skill. The jewel case was always kept locked, and Mrs. Mason wore the key on a little chain. On May 3rd, Mrs. Mason and Marion, her adopted daughter, a young woman about 19, had been going over the jewels, cleaning some of them. Mrs. Mason had gone out for the afternoon, leaving the case on the toilet table unlocked. 
There was no one else at home except the servants, who were all in the rear of the house. Mr. Mason, the husband, a broker in a small way, was in town. The son, a young man of 23, who was assistant cashier in a bank, was in town and did not come home until dinner. The servants testified that no one had called during the afternoon, and Marion Mason testified that no one had been in that part of the house except herself. Mrs. Mason came in just before dinner and dressed hastily. She locked the jewel case without looking at it and put it in the cabinet where it was always kept. She did not employ a maid. No one except herself and her husband were in the room during the night. The next morning, before breakfast, she had occasion to open the box. The necklace was gone. On June 26th, the detective had been called in. Tom pointed to the date with careful finger. That was the real trouble, he said. They waited too long. The scent was cold. More than six weeks old, you see. Yes, foolish to wait. I wonder why they did. Oh, the husband was away a few days, and when he got home he seems to have tried working on it himself. Amateur detective, sneered Tom. He did not find anything, of course. Worse than nothing. By the time we took hold, the thief had had plenty of time to get out and to cover his tracks. If he got out, yes. Millie was looking thoughtfully at a paper before her. How about this son? Did you follow that up? Here they are, said Tom. He sorted a sheaf of papers for her. He was in debt, you see, deep in, earlier in the year. Owed his tailor and gambled some. Dances and flowers and so on. He ran them over swiftly. Here, April 14th, he bought a new car and borrowed part payment on it. Gave his note for 500 to a friend. He had no end of friends and borrowed right and left from them. Spent three times his salary, it seems. But everything was above board. Nothing you could follow up and come to a shady place. Then here, you see, date May 3rd, he must have had a large sum in hand. He drew several large checks that day, and he paid up everything, all the debts, between the 3rd and the 26th. You found where he got the money, of course, said Millie. She was glancing through the papers he gave her. Not a cent of it, not a clue to it. He must have had it in cash. No big deposit check turned in, nothing. Everybody seems to have trusted him, down to the ground. Besides, he pointed to the date. He had the money before the jewels were taken, you see. Yes, unless they misrepresented the date to shield him. I wish they had, chuckled Tom. That would have been easy to check. Like taking candy from a child. They're simple sort of folks. Are they, said Millie, and the gaunt figure in its black garments passed swiftly before her. Perfectly simple. If you go out there to work, you'll like them all. All? By Jove, that's so. The sun's gone. And the adopted daughter is dead, said Millie. You're right. There's no one there now but the two old folks. He seemed struck by it for the first time. You did not suspect the daughter? asked Millie casually. Suspected everybody, replied Tom. Do now, but absolutely no proof. We shadowed her weeks after she went away. Not a sign. And we shadowed the son, too, nearly a year. He was perfection. Tom laughed cynically. I wish I had half as good a record as the men brought in for him. Always home nights, kind to his mother, taking her out driving, watching over her like a dutiful son. One of our men was put on as chauffeur for a while. He said he never saw anything like the fellow's devotion to his mother. Well, I don't know. He pushed the papers from him with a sigh. That case has bothered me more than a little. I wake up in the night sometimes, even now, thinking about it. Though I swore, six months ago, I'd never touch the thing again. How about the pawn shops? asked Millie. Worse than useless. Bad year for emeralds, they say, he chuckled. 
and I guess they're straight. They all have the description of them. Of course, a large part of the value was in the gradation, color, and size. The separate stones would not be so easy to identify either. But nothing has come in. It almost looks as if that necklace had not been broken up, he said thoughtfully. Well, take it, and I wish you joy of your findings, he added almost savagely. I declare. He looked down at the piled up papers before him. If you can put your finger on the right clue in these, he laid his hand on them. I'm almost willing to say I'll sign that paper of yours for keeps. We'd go into partnership, and you should do what you liked with all the cases you handled. It was magnanimous and hearty, and Millie laughed out. Take care, Tom. I might take you at your word. Better wait. Besides, I may fail worse than you have. You couldn't do that, he said generously. But to be perfectly frank with you, I don't think there's much danger you will be able to take up my offer. He was looking at her almost regretfully. Well, I can only try. She gathered up the papers she had selected and placed them in her portfolio. Was the necklace bought here in the city? she asked. Daggett and Beals, responded Tom. I think I'll ask them for a description, said Millie, taking up her portfolio. You have got it there, he nodded to the portfolio. The one Mrs. Mason gave, yes, but sometimes a new description is a help when a case is baffling. All right, said Tom. He eyed the scattered papers on the table from which Millie had made her selection. The mass seemed scarcely reduced. I don't think you'll find many facts we've overlooked, he said dryly. I don't expect to. It's a splendid piece of work. Well, goodbye, Tom. She held out her hand. I'll come in and report when I've made any progress. Tom took the hand and looked down on her from his height. You're a good sport, Millie, but you'll find you're up against it this time. He said it almost apologetically and held her hand as if loath to deceive her. She drew the hand away with a flitting smile. Goodbye. You will see me again, you know, she nodded, and the door closed behind her. Tom looked at the closed door. He shook his head. He looked at the scattered papers on the table, and a shadow of irritation crossed his face. He summoned a girl from the adjoining room. Take them away, he ordered. Yes, sir. Shall I file them again? He shrugged his shoulders. Do what you like with them. They're mere trash to a woman, he said savagely. Oh, yes, sir. She murmured vaguely, and she bore them away. End of chapter 8 Chapter 9 of The Green Jacket by Jeanette Lee This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The clerk behind the glass case near the door in Daggett and Beals looked up a little cynically at the woman in grey waiting for an answer. Mr. Daggett is not at liberty, he said suavely. Can I serve you in any other way? With the slightest emphasis on the other. She opened a green purse. The clerk's eyes rested on the curiously wrought gold fittings. It was an unusual piece of workmanship, and his fingers had a trace of respect as he accepted the card she gave him and bore it toward the inner office. His air was more courteous, even a little eager, when he returned. Will you kindly step this way, madam? Mr. Daggett will be pleased to see you, he said. The door of the inner office closed behind the gray figure, and the clerk, passing through the rows of cases holding jewels of fabulous price, wondered a little uncomfortably whether he had possibly been a trifle rude to the woman at first. She had looked so unimpressive when she asked for the head of the firm that he had expected at best a curt refusal to the card. But he knew his employer's face well. He had studied it for twenty-five years, 
and he had seldom seen a keener look of pleasure than passed across it swiftly when he glanced down at the card. "'Show her in at once,' he had said promptly. The door to the private office remained closed a long time. The clerk glanced at it from time to time and wondered again whether he had possibly made a mistake, and still the door remained closed. He meditated bestowing a little courteous attention on the gray figure when it should emerge, and he hovered near the outer door in readiness for it. The door of the private office at last opened, and the gray figure stepped out into the main room, and close behind it followed the proprietor himself, accompanying her between the cases, stopping here and there to comment or explain, or lift some piece for her inspection. In the most expensive section, they paused by the case containing the most valuable gems in the store. The proprietor took out a set of pearls and held them toward the woman in gray. The clerk, hovering with anxious ear, heard plainly the words that accompanied the gesture. The setting was like this, only much more delicate. It was one of the finest pieces of work we ever sent out. The woman in gray examined the pearls closely. She took a glass from her purse and ran it over the necklace carefully, as if each detail of the exquisite fashioning of the gold interested her. She returned it to the proprietor with a little smile. Thank you, she said. The clerk retreated nearer to the door to take advantage of any favoring chance. But the proprietor accompanied her even to the very door and opened it for her with a little gesture of deference that the clerk well knew was reserved for incomes of at least five figures. He even stood for a moment by the great show window, watching the gray figure disappear in the crowd. There was a thoughtful look on his face and a little smile. And as he passed the case where the pearls lay in royal isolation on their velvet bed, he paused again and looked down at them. It seemed to the clerk that the look of approval he bestowed upon the pearls was not more generous than the one that had followed the gray figure disappearing in the crowd a moment before. The figure moved rapidly down the street toward the busier portion of the town. The green purse had been slipped inside her gown, and there was nothing to call the eye even for a flitting glance. No one who passed the figure could have recalled it, and no one would have noted when it turned into the downtown office. There were two or three pieces of work she must put in shape before she could leave for an absence of several days. It might even be weeks, she thought, as she entered her private office. The case had taken hold on her in a way she well recognized. Sometimes a case stood out from the others like this, and her mind seized on it with a tenacity that nothing could shake. It was the bulldog grip, she told herself. She was conscious of no reason why some cases should pursue her and compel her, often to her own disadvantage, to follow to the end. Often she wished for someone who would forcibly detach her from a piece of work that was absorbing her time and strength, apparently to no purpose. A partner? She thought of Tom and smiled. Perhaps it was the thought of Tom and his disbelief in her ability to succeed that was setting her so grimly toward the solution of the Mason case. Perhaps she had merely a feminine desire to say some day, I told you so, to the man who stood to her for all the efficiency and masculine incredulity in the world. Then the face of the woman who had sat in her office flashed back to her, the unshapely black hands in their wrinkled gloves, the strange, sad face, and she knew that Tom's cynical disbelief in her ability to succeed where he had failed was only a surface ripple on the deep-flowing purpose of her resolve to help the woman who had come to her in trouble. She rang the bell and called in her private secretary and went over the work for the coming week. The secretary was a small, nervous young man who wore glasses and seemed perpetually stooping to something that threatened to evade him. Millie regarded him as a treasure. 
She had tried several women and had rejected them, one after the other, for the lack of some quality she herself could hardly define. She had found it only in Teddy McLean. His mind moved with her own, not parallel to it or following along on the same track, but leaping to meet hers, almost in contest, and out of the encounter she would find her ideas emerging in clear shape. "'I'm going to be away for a few days, Teddy,' she said as he came in. "'The Dexter case will need you,' he replied briskly. "'Not far enough along, is it?' He looked stubborn. "'Foster was in this morning. He said they will be ready to report tomorrow. They have everything safe, no suspicion, all the parties where they can lay their hands on them. "'Better keep them there,' she was thinking swiftly. "'I want my mind free for a few days, Teddy. You'll have to brace up and take more responsibility.' He looked dejected. She nodded. "'You can handle the Dexter case all right, till I get back.' "'How long are you going to be gone?' He was peering down and making swift notes. "'I don't know,' she said shortly. Teddy made another note and looked up. "'Shall I use my judgment about sending for you?' he asked. She hesitated. "'If it's necessary, absolutely necessary, and you're so stupid you can't handle it alone,' he smiled wanly and made the note. "'If you have to get me, telegraph. Miss Alice Brigham, care of Mr. Oswald Mason, Lincoln.' He took it down swiftly. "'That's nearby. Can I telephone?' "'No. Telegraph.' "'Shall I use code?' "'Mercy, no. I'm a seamstress,' she said severely. "'Telegraph. Mother not well. Old trouble. Please come.' "'The skeleton girl's making a lot of trouble,' he said, looking over his papers. "'More than she's worth.' "'What's she doing now?' asked Millie. "'Keeps bothering the life out of us, saying she's got to see you.' "'Well, she can see me, can't she?' He looked at her cynically. "'She isn't worth it.' "'You've made a mistake this time, Miss Newberry.' "'Did I?' She looked thoughtful. "'I'm sorry, I'm not going to be here for a while. "'Could you get her for me now, right off, do you suppose?' He looked a little bored. "'I shan't have to try very hard. "'She's probably out there now, rattling the heads off them. "'Send her in.' He looked doubtfully at his notes. "'I wanted to ask—' "'No, don't ask me another thing. "'You can take care of them yourself. "'If you get stuck, telegraph me. "'I go out tomorrow morning.' Now send in Molly Skelton if you can find her. He departed, grinning. The next moment, the door opened on a girl with high heels, short skirts, small hat, a little to one side, and hands thrust into side pockets as she came forward with short, mincing steps. She nodded brusquely. How do you do, Miss Newberry? They made a high old time about letting me in. You're not due till Thursday, are you? That's the day, said the girl. She leaned her elbow on the desk and stared at Millie with hard eyes. Her jaw shifted the gum between her teeth and chewed on it a little. "'Well, what is it?' asked Millie. "'I'd rather be sent up for good,' said the girl. "'Why? I ain't going to be coming here every Thursday, and all them guys out there,' she waved a hand at the office, "'all knowing I'm on probe. I'd rather be locked up and done with it.' Millie looked at her keenly. "'They don't know what you come for,' she said. "'Nobody knows, unless you've told them.' The girl stared. "'Didn't you tell them?' "'No.' Not that Johnny with the glasses? McLean? If he knows, it's your own fault. He may have guessed. I have not told him or anyone. As far as the office is concerned, you may be a client for whom I am handling a case or a detective coming to make reports. The girl grinned slowly. She chewed for a while. Well, she drew in her breath. That's fair enough. Why didn't you tell me that before? She demanded. She turned on her swiftly. You didn't ask me, said Millie. I supposed you knew. I told you I should be square with you, didn't I? Yes, the girl's eyes dropped sullenly. 
But I don't like it, this Sunday school business, trotting in here, being told what to do. Millie's keen eyes were studying the rebellious face. Who is your new friend? she asked quietly. The girl flashed up a look. I don't know as it's any of your business, she said defiantly. Yes, I think it is my business. It's my business to help you keep straight, and you're trying to bluff me. For the first time since I've known you. You don't want to go to jail. If I took you at your word and told the police what I know, she glanced up furtively. You wouldn't do it, Miss Newberry, she said swiftly. No, I am not going to do it, but I'm not going to let you off from coming to me either. The man who told you to come and try to bluff me was simply making a fool of you. You are a silly child. The girl was staring at the wall of the room, chewing swiftly. The weak lines of her face sagged a little. I didn't want to come, she said slowly, but he kept at me, kept saying to do it. Don't blame the man, said Millie sharply. Blame yourself. Yes, um, said the girl meekly. She looked down at the toe of her shoe and dug it in the leg of the table. How long have you known him? asked Millie. Oh, about a week now. A look of relief crossed Millie's face. You hadn't seen him when you reported last week? Well, I kind of seen him, she replied soberly. But I'm straight. Honest, Miss Newberry, I'm straight. The defiance had left her face. Millie knew that for today she had won. The girl would be putty in her hands. But she would be putty in the hands of the next person, too. If she could see her every day for a while, she could tide her over. But a week? She shook her head. See here, Molly. The girl looked up. You're a terrible bother to me. It's been over a year now. Going on two, said the girl sullenly. And you let Sadie Batston off in three months. Yes, Sadie had a better start than you have, Molly. What do you mean by that? demanded the girl. I mean, her father and mother or her grandfather and grandmother put better stuff into her. They're common folks, the Batsons, said Molly skeptically. Her mother works out. She's cooked somewhere. Yes, but she or someone gave Sadie the power of holding out. You've got it too, but you've got to do more of the work yourself. Nobody has done it for you, apparently. You've got to get a grip on yourself. All right, she said. I've got to be out of town for a while, said Millie. Do you think I'd better send you out of town too? This man will try to see you, I suppose? Yep, he'll see me all right, said the girl with a weak flourish of pride. He's dead stuck on me. What is his name? asked Millie. James Silliman, 346 Mill Street, said the girl glibly. She grinned as Millie took it down. You'll catch him easy. He's done things enough to land him in jail any day. Do you know that? asked Millie, or are you just talking? I ain't just talking, said the girl. Jim Silliman's a bad one, if ever there was. Well, we shall look out for him. I think you would be better out of town for a while. All right, said the girl. Will it be pious ones? I didn't like that minister's family you sent me to last time. She looked at her hopefully. Millie smiled. Then she sighed. She rested her head on her hand and looked down. She was tired. The morning had been taxing, and there was still a personal problem to solve before she could get away. It would probably take most of the afternoon. She looked at the girl doubtfully. I wonder if you could help me, Molly, she said slowly. Help you? The girl turned quickly. What could I do? I thought you might know of someone, some reliable person I could get to stay with my mother while I am away. Our servant has the grip. I need someone to do the work and look after my mother's comfort. She is not very strong. You don't know anyone who is trustworthy, do you? The girl looked at it. She shook her head slowly. Not unless it's me, she replied. 
Of course you wouldn't call me trustworthy. Millie looked at her. I'm always doing things. She went on half wistfully, and Millie's mind worked fast. Her mother's frail figure passed before her, and the girl's shabby jacket and hat and the cheap high-heeled shoes that waited hopefully. I'm a kind of good cook, she volunteered. I believe it might work, said Millie, half to herself. The girl nodded. I'll take good care of her, Miss Newberry. You needn't be a mite afraid anything will happen to her while you're gone. I like taking care of folks, doing for them. Then that's settled, said Millie, with a look of relief. Here is the address. Be sure to be there not later than three o'clock this afternoon. It's out of the city a little way. You take the holly car at Broad Street and get off at Chestnut. All right. The girl slipped the paper into the pocket of her flaunting coat. I'll go home and get my things together. I've got some other togs. You needn't be afraid I'll frighten the old lady with these. I'll take good care of her, Miss Newberry. You see. Her face was a glint with high resolve as she marched from the room. She did not even glance at the young man in eyeglasses as she passed him at his desk. The eyeglasses followed her reflectively. There goes some more of Miss Newberry's good time and strength, he said resentfully under his breath. And the girl, hurrying out of the building, was saying over and over to herself, You gotta get a grip on Molly Skelton. You gotta take a hold. That's what she said. You gotta get a grip. And Millicent Newberry, gathering up her papers in the office, went over what remained to be done. End of chapter 9「Chapter Ten of the Green Jacket by Jeanette Lee. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The eight o'clock morning train to Lincoln was nearly empty. The woman in gray, seated by the rear door, glanced over the few people ahead of her in the car. They were the usual suburban characters: a cook going out to a new engagement in her best hat, an old man with no particular occupation, a little boy and his grandmother, an architect and his assistant and a drummer for laces. Millie's eye ran over them, and her mind settled down to the case that was taking her to Lincoln. She had been at home the evening before and received Mrs. Mason's call on the telephone for the seamstress who had advertised for work in the evening paper. The voice had come hesitatingly over the wire, and Millie had had a vision of the woman in her black garments holding the receiver in tense grasp and listening with half-frightened face for the response to her call. She had thrown into her reply all the assurance and command the voice lacked, and the next words had taken the cue and become conventional and easy, and even a little expectant. "'You will come in the morning, then?' said the voice. And Millie, keeping in mind other ears that might be listening in convenient doorways, had replied, "'I shall take the eight o'clock out from the city. Is it far from the station to your house?' "'About five miles,' said the woman. "'You cannot walk. Wait a minute, please.' She had turned from the receiver, and the murmur of voices, vague and a little blurred, came to Millie's ear. The man's voice seemed to demur a little, and yielded at last half-grudgingly to the woman, and she turned to the mouthpiece. "'Are you there?' "'Yes. The car will meet you, for the eight o'clock from town.' Then she had hung up, and Millie had remained a moment, almost fancying that the surrounding atmosphere held something, some hidden message to give her that the two voices in rapid colloquy and the woman's half-hurried words had failed to convey. Then she had put it all from her and gone resolutely to bed. She must not spoil the one good night's sleep that remained to her, for, once on the case, her nights and days would belong to it. She must be ready at any moment, night or day, 
to follow a clue. She glanced from the car window at the unfamiliar landscape that flashed by. She had never been on this road before. It was not on the main line, and even as a suburban line, it was not important. A brakeman in the doorway called out Curtisville, and she looked at her watch. 8.25. Lincoln was the next stop, and the end of the line. The houses began to crowd close and run together. The architect was rolling up a blueprint, and the grandmother buttoned the little boy's coat with trembling fingers. The station platform, filled with people, passed by Millie's window. The brakeman at the front end of the car was reversing plush-covered seats. With a swift glance over the waiting crowd, she took up her suitcase and moved toward the door. She had noted a handsome car drawn up by the outer platform and a chauffeur with impassive face waiting beside it. She did not move toward it at once, but struggled a little in the crowd that surged toward the train, and the chauffeur came forward. He looked at her and hesitated, and she lifted a meek, seamstress glance to his face and straightened her hat that the crowd had somehow displaced. She was little and helpless and inefficient. "'Is there a car for Mr. Mason's here?' she asked. "'This way,' said the man. He reached down for her suitcase and disposed it in the car and sprang in beside it and waited, almost impatiently, it seemed, for her to get in. "'May I sit in front?' asked the seamstress timidly. "'Oh, all right.' He moved over to make room and adjusted the suitcase a little, and she stepped in beside him. "'We're in a little hurry this morning,' he said apologetically. "'Mr. Mason wants the car for the next train in.' "'He goes in every day, I suppose,' said the seamstress pleasantly. "'Well, pretty nearly every day. Skips a day now and then.' They were skimming through a pleasant suburban district, and the man's gaze was fixed ahead. Millie noted that he had a clear, ruddy complexion, and she liked the look in his eye when it turned to her. But a wide experience in the complexion of criminals had led her not to place too much confidence in signs that might only be skin-deep. She glanced at the lining of the car and made a little motion with her hand. "'Has it been relined?' she asked. "'I've seen this make of car before, but not this lining. It's very pretty.' "'It's this year's model,' said the man. "'They bought it since I came.' Millie's nod and smile gave him a little tribute of thanks for what his reply told her. She settled comfortably in her seat, watching the houses on either side. They were farther apart now, and stood well back from the road, with driveways that wound through pleasant lawns. "'That's our place on the right,' said the man. The road curved sharply just ahead, and he nodded toward a house that showed dimly through the trees. They rounded the curve and passed along a high wall of stone. Then he turned the car skillfully into a gateway in the high wall, and they were passing through the close-set shrubbery and high trees. Beyond the trees, the house came in view again. It stood in open sunshine, painted white, with doors and windows open to the air. It had a hospitable, waiting look, and Millie had a swift sense of its dignity and charm, and its incongruity with the black garments and hunted look of the woman who had sought her aid. "'Pretty place,' said the chauffeur, nodding toward it. "'Very!' she leaned forward, scanning the open windows and the wide terrace that extended along the front and side of the house. The terrace was brick-paved, and surrounded by a low parapet covered with vines and flowers. From an opening at the front, two wide steps led down to the driveway. The whole effect was singularly gracious and pleasing. The house rose from its setting with a kind of restful dignity, and the vines and flowers gave to it the home-like beauty that was its dominating note. Millie's eyes studied the graceful lines with a touch of surprise and incredulity. She had come expecting a gloomy, forbidding place, 
and the house standing there in the sun, in the midst of its vines and flowers, seemed the embodiment of home-like comfort. A figure appeared in the doorway and came rapidly across the brick-paved terrace to the steps. "'It's Mr. Mason,' said the man. "'Would you mind getting out here, please?' He brought the car to a stop by a side path that led to the terrace, and Millie climbed quickly out. "'I'll bring your bag later,' said the man, but she reached up to it. "'I can take it, thank you.' She went slowly up the path to a side door, looking about her at the vines and flowers, and her glance passed carelessly beyond the flowers, and took in the tall, dark figure running quickly down the wide steps, and waiting in half-concealed impatience for the car that approached him swiftly. He threw open the door, spoke a quick word to the chauffeur, and the car rolled off. Millie's eyes followed it a minute. Then she turned leisurely toward the house. A woman who had been standing behind the screen door watching her approach surveyed her through the meshes. "'Are you the new sewing woman?' she asked. And at Millie's response, she opened the door half-grudgingly, it seemed, to admit her. She led the way down the hall to a small room at the left. "'You will work here,' she said, throwing open the door. Millie looked about the room with a quick glance. There was a low fireplace at the right, and at the left two French windows opened to the terrace. Through a door opposite the one by which she entered, she had a glimpse of a breakfast room, the table still uncleared, and through another door at the right she could see the front hall and the long stairway leading from it to the floor above. In the glance of the eye that took in her surroundings, she had turned to the woman with a smile. "'What a pleasant room!' she exclaimed. "'Yes, it's pleasant enough,' returned the woman. There was something almost defiant in the glance and tone. "'You sleep at the top. Do you want to go up?' she asked. Millie motioned to her suitcase. "'I want to get at my sewing things and wash my hands. "'Yes, I'd better go up now. "'Then I shall not need to trouble you again.' The woman made no reply. She preceded her down the long, cool hall and up a flight of stairs at the end. She set her foot firmly on each step and lifted herself by a little perceptible effort. She was middle-aged and bulky, and there was a look of obstinacy and reserve in the wide back that Millie regarded thoughtfully as she followed it up the two flights of stairs to a room at the top. "'Here's where you sleep,' said the woman. She threw open a door. "'Thank you. I can find my way down quite well now. If you will tell Mrs. Mason I am here.' "'She knows you're here,' said the woman. "'She saw you come.' She turned away heavily, and Millie heard the sound of her asthmatic breathing come faintly back as she descended the stairs. Millie stood for a moment, her hand on the door, listening to the sound as it moved along the hall below and passed out of hearing. She closed the door and looked about her with satisfaction. The room was perfectly located. To reach it, she must pass through corridors opening on all the rooms at the rear of the house, and the sewing room below evidently gave her the range of a large part of the front of the house. She stepped to the window and looked out. Below her lay the brick-paved terrace, gay with its vines and flowers, and beyond the terrace sloped a wide lawn, reaching to the trees that guarded the entrance. Beyond the trees and the high surrounding wall, she caught a glimpse of distant hills. It was a peaceful scene, flooded in sunshine. The sunshine poured in at the window where she stood, and the little breeze that came with it brought a hint of flower scents and fresh-cut grass. She turned away from the window and unpacked her suitcase quickly, placing the few articles it contained in the closet and in the drawers of the empty bureau, where they seemed lost in the generous space. The house below was very still. Not a sound broke its quiet as she moved about her room. She poured water into the basin and washed and dried her hands and returned the towel to its rack. 
All her movements were deft and swift, and all her finer senses were reaching out into the stillness of the mysterious house, gathering up its impalpable signs and testing them for the life that lay behind them. She cast a glance about the room and took a chintz-flowered bag from the bed. From one side of its ribbon-hooped handles, the ends of two long amber needles protruded, and through the opening at the top, a bit of green-colored wool was visible. She slipped the hoops carelessly over her arm and passed out to the hall, leaving the door open behind her into the sun-filled room. The doors to all the other rooms along the upper corridor were closed. A large window at the farther end let in a flood of light. Everything was cheerful and airy. There was no hint of anything concealed or mysterious that waited in the rooms below. It was a comfortable country house, well-lighted and well-aired. Its only anomaly was the preternatural stillness that reigned throughout it, above and below. As she went slowly down the stairs, listening for some sign of life, she saw through the railing that the hall of the floor below opened into wide corridors, and when she reached the junction of the corridors, the open doors on either side revealed glimpses of chintz hangings and the dark polished surface of wood. The house and all its furnishings were more artistic and more important than the appearance of her client had led her to expect. As she stood hesitating which way to go, she caught sight through one of the open doors of the dark folds of a woman's gown moving hazily, and the next moment the woman herself appeared in the door. She held out her hands in a swift gesture, almost of welcome, and Millie moved quickly toward her, ignoring the outstretched hands. "'I am the sewing woman,' she said respectfully. "'Are your dresses in here?' She spoke very clearly and distinctly. A faint sound of asthmatic breathing in the distance, that had seemed to halt for a moment, moved softly away. The woman in the doorway had retreated a little, looking at Millie with puzzled eyes. The outstretched hands dropped to her sides. "'I will get what you have ready,' said Millie practically, "'and take it with me to the sewing room.' She stepped quietly into the room, leaving the door open behind her. "'Show me your dresses first, she said. "'I will work on those today.' The woman, after another puzzled glance, went to the wardrobe and opened the large door. "'I have almost nothing,' she said apologetically. The wardrobe was nearly empty. Two or three handsome dresses in the style of a year or two past dangled from the hooks. There were no black garments. Millie glanced toward the black gown the woman was wearing. She stood nearby, waiting, her hands clasped loosely before her. Seen without the black hat and the ill-fitting coat of the day before, the figure was finely impressive. The simple lines of the dress and the open neck without ornament brought out a grace that the clumsy outer garments had concealed. She was gazing at Millie with a little puzzled bewilderment in her face. "'I wanted to talk to you,' she said in a low voice. The words were scarcely audible. "'Yes, we will have plenty of time to talk by and by. Do you want these altered?' She indicated the dresses of outworn style that hung pathetically from the wardrobe poles. "'Oh, I don't know.' The woman took a step forward, looking at them doubtfully. "'I gave away the others, everything, except these. But these were so expensive.' She regarded them uncertainly. "'I don't want to wear colors,' she murmured. "'Very well.' Millie shut the door on the dresses. "'We will work on something else. Perhaps you have some white work?' The woman brought a handful of undergarments— and Millie selected those that needed mending, going through them rapidly. She noted that everything was of the finest material and expensive, as if whatever came near the woman must be exquisite of its kind. 
These will do, she said, gathering up those she had selected. I would rather have a dress. She looked attentively at the black folds of the woman's gown. I could alter that a little. It is loose here. She touched the shoulders. I have grown thin, said the woman. I will put on a kimono if you would rather work on this. I have no other dress to put on. Millie nodded. That will do very well. Bring it to me in the sewing room when you are ready. She moved toward the door with the undergarments on her arm. There was no one in the wide corridors, and no sound of faintly asthmatic breathing came from the distant region beyond. She turned back quickly. Was this the room where the jewel case was kept? she asked. The woman's hand moved to a toilet table between the windows. It stood there. And where is it now? In that cabinet. She motioned to a handsome ebony cabinet that stood by the door. Unlocked? No, I have the key. She lifted a hand to the bosom of her gown. Millie nodded. Bring it to me with the dress. I shall want to come here again later. You will lay out work for me on the bed, and I shall come and go between this room and the sewing room for a while. The woman, who had unfastened the neck of her dress and was pushing it back, paused. I forgot, she said quickly. I shall need this dress to wear. I have no other, and I promised my husband to go motoring with him. When do you go? This afternoon. He will be home for luncheon, he said, and then we start at once. No, that will hardly give me time, said Millie thoughtfully. I do not work very fast. She smiled a little. Her eyes were on the woman's neck. The open gown revealed her throat, white and fair as a girl's, and from the neck a slender gold chain hung down, the end lost in the white folds below. Millie's hand made a gesture. Is that the key? Let me have it, please. The woman lifted her hands to the chain and unfastened it and drew it off slowly. Two small keys depended from it. She held them out with a mute gesture. No, keep the chain. Millie withdrew the two keys swiftly and dropped them into the bag on her arm. She handed back the chain. Put it on again, she said. Someone might miss it from your neck. We must be careful not to put anyone on guard. The woman replaced the chain with fingers that trembled a little. Millie's eyes followed them quietly. Don't be afraid, she said. Nothing shall happen to you, and perhaps when the case is unlocked, the necklace will come back to it. The woman shuddered a little. Her arms dropped to her sides. I would almost rather never see it again, she whispered. I am afraid. Millie placed a hand on her arm and held it firmly. You are not to be afraid. Trust me, and remember, nothing is to be done that you and I do not both agree to. The look of fear in the woman's face dissolved swiftly. Oh, if I had only known you before, she cried softly. If I had known you, she might have been saved. She motioned to a photograph on the table by the window. She was looking at it with moist eyes. Millie reached a hand to it. When was it taken? she asked. Oh, three years ago, perhaps. She stood looking over Millie's shoulder. I have had it a long time, but I only had it framed the other day when I came back from seeing her. She was gazing tenderly at the pictured face that seemed to return the look with one of wistfulness. It's all so different now, murmured the woman. She motioned to the silent hall outside. Sometimes I think I hear her voice, and I start up and hurry to the door before I remember, even now. Millie put down the picture and turned toward the door. I must go, she said. We must not talk together too long. The servants will suspect. They are all at the back of the house, returned the woman. So much the better. Millie stepped into the wide hall. At one end the sun poured in, 
At the other, the branches of a great elm showed dark against the light. She turned toward the front staircase and went slowly down, passing through the intervening rooms to the sewing room. The door from the breakfast room had been closed by someone, and she opened it again. She placed her chair where she could see into it, and out through the other rooms to the hallway and the stairs leading up from it. Sitting in the shaded quiet of the sewing room, the gray figure blended into the quiet of the house. No one passing through the halls or outside along the terrace and seeing it through the open French windows would have given a second thought to the new seamstress. With her head a little bent to the work in her hands and her swift needle plying back and forth in the white garments, she was a model of unobtrusive diligence. One by one she finished the garments and laid them on a chair beside her. The last one was in her hand and she was rethreading her needle to begin when a horn sounded among the trees and the swift whir of an approaching car came to her through the open window. She glanced at the watch on her wrist, 12.45. Sounds of preparation for luncheon had already come to her from a room beyond the hall. Silver and china handled with soft clearness and a subdued murmur of low voices. She laid aside the garment and took up the chintz bag and drew out her knitting. She adjusted the needles with quick touch and began to knit, looking now at the flying stitches and now out through the French window at a car that was passing swiftly, half hidden by the trees. It emerged on the open drive. The man sitting beside the chauffeur was the one who had driven away to take the train when she arrived. He had much the same hurried air as when he left, and when the car stopped he sprang out with a quick nod to the driver and passed rapidly up the terrace. From her place in the sewing room, Millie had a glimpse of him crossing the hall with swift stride and ascending the stairs. His steps turned at the top and sounded along the upper hall, and a door at the front of the house closed with a muffled, resonant sound. As if the closing of the muffled door had been a signal, the whole house woke to life. Somewhere at the rear, an echoing door slammed. Swift feet hurried along the corridors. Voices came from the outer yard in the garage, and presently the low notes of a Chinese gong sounded through the house, wooing the silence with long, pulsing roll, and a black dress was seen descending the stairs. A minute later, the tall, thin figure of a man hurried quickly down. The unrest settled to silence, and Millie's needles held it and went back and forth and knit it into the green wool. Her eyes followed the needles with intent gaze. Presently, she looked up. The woman who had admitted her in the morning stood in the doorway of the hall, a large tray held before her. There had been no sound of her approach. "'Here is your lunch,' she said. She placed it on a side table and went quickly out. Millie moved the table nearer to the place where she had been sitting and where she could see through the French window onto the lawn and along the winding driveway beyond. There were sounds of the finishing of luncheon and a little coming and going on the stairs, and then she saw the car pass swiftly down the drive. The chauffeur was alone on the front seat. On the back seat was the woman in her black hat and veil and coat, and beside her the figure of the man sitting protectingly near to her. Millie finished her luncheon slowly, lingering over the dessert of rice pudding and dates. Before she had finished, she was conscious again of the soft step without sound and the quick, puffy breathing nearby. She did not turn or look up until she had taken the last spoonful of the pudding. Then she pushed the table a little from her. I'm through, she said. Thank you. Then, for the first time, the woman came within range of her eye. This is delicious pudding, said Millie. Will you tell the cook it is the best I ever ate? 
I always thought my mother made the best rice pudding in the world, but this beats it. The woman who had bent to take up the tray paused, almost surlily, it seemed, yet with a little relaxing of the glum face. I made the pudding, she remarked dryly. Oh, Millie stared a little at the face so near her own. Are you the cook? she asked doubtfully. I make the desserts, replied the woman with a note of reserve. Miss Annie likes me to. Miss Annie? Millie gazed questioningly. Miss Mason, she's Miss Annie to me, replied the woman. She returned the gaze of the sewing woman almost hostily and lifted the tray from the table. Millie watched the retreating back with reflective eyes. Can you tell me? The back paused, but did not turn. Do you know whether Mrs. Mason left some things in her room for me to mend? If she did, you'll find them where she left them, responded the woman. I can go up, can I? asked Millie. The woman turned. Do you want me to wait on you? she demanded. No, indeed. Millie glanced quickly at the heavy tray. I am afraid I have made you too much trouble already. The woman's face was a little mollified. I don't mind doing it for you. Her glance passed swiftly to the mended garments piled on the chair. I could have done them for her, as well as you. Millie ignored the resentment, seeking only some sign in the heavy face to guide her. I don't think she wanted me to do them. She laid her hand on the pile of clothes beside her. She wanted me to alter the dress she has on, but she hasn't any other to wear while I am doing it. It is too large in the shoulders. The woman rested her tray against the side of the door, pressing upon it with her bulk to ease the weight on her arms. She's grown thin, she said. But whether there was sympathy or resentment or a kind of fear in the wheezy voice, Millie could not determine. I imagine there will be plenty for two pair of hands. She glanced at the pile of sewing. So any time you are free to help out, I can turn things over to you. The faster we get on, the sooner I shall be done and can go home. The woman looked at her slowly, with eyes that were half veiled, it seemed to Millie. I am busy this afternoon, she replied, and she turned and went quietly down the hall. Only the sound of wheezy breathing came faintly back, and grew fainter, and died away. End of chapter 10「Chapter Eleven of the Green Jacket by Jeanette Lee This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The seamstress went to the French window and stepped onto the terrace. Her arms and back were stiff from the unaccustomed work, and she moved them gently, freeing the muscles and drawing in deep breaths of fresh air. She paced once or twice across the terrace, thinking swiftly. The woman's look puzzled her. There had been something almost hostile in it as she turned away. But perhaps it was only imagination. A detective grew to think things significant that other people passed over as natural. She returned to the sewing room and gathered up the pile of mending, and taking the chintz bag on her arm, went softly into the hall. There was no one in sight, and after a moment's hesitation, she turned toward the stairs at the back of the house. She had decided to use sometimes one staircase and sometimes the other. The servants would soon become accustomed to seeing her in different parts of the house. The sooner she established her habits, the better. But she saw no one as she went up the stairs and along the wide corridor toward the front that led to Mrs. Mason's room. Through the open door, she could see the pile of work, stockings and sheets and pillow slips laid out for her on the bed. But she passed the open door and went leisurely on to the big window at the end of the hall and stood for a minute looking out onto the grounds. When she turned back slowly, her glance fell on an open door at the right, and she checked a swift start of surprise. 
Instead of the chintz hangings and flowered wallpaper she expected to see, her gaze had encountered walls lined with books. Leather bindings covered the walls from floor to ceiling, and books lay everywhere on tables and chairs. On either side the fireplace stood two great leather chairs, and between them a large writing table. It was a man's room, the room of a man of scholarly and aesthetic taste. The impression conveyed to her between the two steps with which she passed the open door could not have been more vivid had she seen the owner of the room himself sitting in one of the deep chairs before the fireplace. The room revealed a personality of unusual interest. She passed down the hall, thinking swiftly. Nothing in Mrs. Mason's appearance had prepared her for the character of the house as a whole, and least of all for this room she had just glimpsed into. It was evidently the inmost possession of the man whose personality planned and dominated the whole. She recalled the owner of the house. There was something almost ascetic in the tall, thin figure she had seen at a distance, but the open door revealed a quiet charm and richness of interest in the life of the man who possessed it. At the door of Mrs. Mason's room, she paused with a swift glance up and down the hall. Then she stepped swiftly in, crossed to the bed, and laid down the pile of garments she carried on her arm. She looked back to the door. The key was in the lock, and as she stepped back and closed it, the lock shot noiselessly in place while her other hand released the handle of the door. Not a sound had broken the quiet, and her step on the floor was very light. She drew the two keys from the chintz bag on her arm and turned to the cabinet by the door, stooping softly to examine it. The lacquer work about the escutcheon of the keyhole was unmarred by any scratch or any trace of tampering. Even under the glass she applied to it, only the perfect finish of its age-worn surface was revealed. It was a beautiful specimen of early Japanese art, and her eye dwelt on it appreciatively, before her fingers inserted the key and the door swung open on the multitude of drawers and little compartments with which it was filled. Her eye ran quickly over the surface of the drawers. It paused at one on the right that showed a little dull in the full light of the window behind her. Her hand reached to it and drew it out, revealing a bronze jewel case within. She lifted it noiselessly and carried it to the window and unlocked it. Brilliance and color flashed from the lifted tray. Diamonds glittered in pins and rings, and on one side a magnificent bracelet glowed with slumberous stones. They darted red, gleaming eyes as she lifted it and turned it in the light. She stood looking down at the wealth shining out from the box, thinking a little grimly of the foolishness that led women to keep such temptation for burglary always at hand, close to the very place they slept. She glanced toward the bed, where the work for the new seamstress lay. She must not waste time. She had assured herself that what she expected was true. Neither the cabinet nor the box itself had been tampered with. Whoever had removed the necklace from the box had had access to it at some time when the box was unlocked. She removed the key, examining it carefully. It was a curious, foreign design, but a duplicate could easily have been made. She dropped it into the bag on her arm. Without doubt, the box was self-locking. She reached her hand to the lid to close it, and stayed the hand. A sound, light as air, had caught her ear. She turned from the window, and her glance ran quickly to the cabinet and to the door beside it. The silvered knob of the door was turning slowly, creeping breath by breath, and a noiseless circle to the right. It came to a stop at last, and she could almost feel the tension and pressure of unseen fingers upon it. She held her breath, watching it retrace the circle and come to rest. She moved silently to the cabinet and replaced the box, locking the door upon it and dropping the key in her bag. 
Then, with a single swift movement, she had reached the door of the room and unlocked it and thrown it back, stepping quickly into the hall. There was no one in sight in either direction, no motion of drapery, no hint that someone had hurried swiftly down the hall. On either side, the open doors led into vacant rooms. What might lurk in them, concealed by furniture, crouching behind ample folds of chintz, she had no means of knowing, and no time at present to determine. She gathered up her work from the bed and stepped into the hall, making her way quickly past the open doors. She did not glance into the rooms on either side as she passed them, and she did not return again to the upper floor. Whatever suspicion had been roused against her must have time to subside. And perhaps there was no suspicion. A curious maid may have seen the closed door and tried the knob and gone away, or the woman who had brought the tray to her. For the rest of the afternoon the seamstress sewed quietly in the room off the terrace. But her thoughts ranged the house, gathering up and focusing the impressions that had come to her out of its open, mysterious quiet, and each time her thought returned curiously to the woman who had admitted her in the morning and who had served her luncheon almost grudgingly, it seemed. Only once during the afternoon did she have a glimpse of her when she came down the hall to the door at the end and stood for a moment gazing out as if looking for the return of the car. Then she disappeared into the back of the house, and Millie did not see her again. But the thought of her remained persistently, and at dinner time, when she brought in the tray and placed it on a table, Millie studied the downcast face with quick glance. There was nothing in the heavy, almost sullen lines to reward her. The woman did not look at her or speak. Perhaps in the half-dimness, coming from the lighted hall, she had not seen her where she sat across the room. She went quickly out. The gas was lighted through the lower rooms, and Millie could see occasional figures come and go. A short, stout man, a little bent and bald, and wearing evening clothes, hovered in the distance. A trim maid came now and then and received instructions from him, and went away on swift feet. Sitting in the dusk of her sewing room, Millie watched the byplay and pondered on the ways of this strange household, in which, with a butler and a maid, the woman who had admitted her in the morning was detailed to make desserts and to carry meals to a sewing woman who happened to be in the house. She glanced at the table where her dinner stood waiting, and rose and put away her work. She closed the doors into the hall before she lighted the gas, and sat down to the ample dinner the woman had provided for her. Evidently her distrust, or dislike, of the new seamstress would not take the form of starvation diet for her. End of chapter 11「Chapter Twelve of the Green Jacket by Jeanette Lee. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Dinner over, Millie turned off the gas and opened the doors again and sat for a while in the half-dusk of the room knitting, wondering whether it would be well to make some pretense of work serve as an opportunity for a little talk with Mrs. Mason before going to bed. The sounds of dinner were long since over. Even the final stir of clearing away had subsided and the butler's stout figure hovering through the lower rooms, turning off lights here and there, had withdrawn. The house had settled to quiet. If she went up to Mrs. Mason's room now, she could speak with her before she went to bed. She wanted to know about the woman who brought in her meals. The look in the woman's face teased and baffled her. A few casual words with Mrs. Mason might clear up the situation and leave her mind free for better uses. She rolled up her knitting and was putting it away, when steps in the hall caught her ear. They passed on to the outer door at the end, 
and she heard the sound of the key turning in the lock, and then other steps hurrying down the hall, and words of subdued protest, and the woman's wheezy voice. "'Miss Annie's in her room. She's tired, and she's going to bed. She told me to lock it. You know she don't like this door open after she's in bed.' The butler's voice acquiesced, and the steps retreated again, passing along the hall by her door. She sat a minute longer, waiting. Then she took up the pile of mending she had finished. She would leave it at Mrs. Mason's room on the way to bed. If things were favorable, she would talk with her for a few minutes. The door of the room was open as she approached, the light shining out into the hall, and she had raised her hand to rap lightly on the side of the door before she saw that the room was empty. The door of the dressing room beyond was slightly ajar, and from the room came a muffled sound that caused her to withdraw her hand and stand motionless. The sound grew to a woman's voice crying softly in little wheezy sobs. I tell you, Miss Annie, I don't like her. I don't like her looks. Then Mrs. Mason's voice in gentle expostulation, and the woman's voice again a little higher. You know how I am, Miss Annie, how I feel about folks. I don't like that woman in the house. The voice rose higher and shriller, and Mrs. Mason's broke across it sharply. Hush, Margaret. Then the voices dropped to a murmur. Millie crossed the room quickly. The pile of work on her arm must serve as an excuse if they came out. She must hear what was being said in the low, rapid tones that went on behind the half-closed door. It was Mrs. Mason speaking, and the tense words drove a little shock of surprise to Millie's listening ear. You must trust me, Margaret, to do what is best. It is all right. The woman is really a detective. Oh, Miss Annie! The voice wheezed and gasped and was silent a little. Can't you send her away? She pleaded softly. Her mistress's voice was firm. I do not wish to send her away. I want her to find the necklace. But, Miss Annie, suppose she... The voice dropped to a long, low murmur. Be quiet, said her mistress sternly and the voices dropped again to low, half-whispered words that not even Millie's trained ear could distinguish. She reached her hand to the door and rapped sharply. There was a sudden silence. Then, after a minute, the door opened slowly. Mrs. Mason stood in it, her loose gown gathered up to her breast, a half-frightened look on her pale face. When she saw who it was, the look vanished. It gave way to quick relief. "'Oh, it is you!' She whispered the words. Come in. She reached out a hand and half drew the detective into the room and closed the door upon them. The other woman across the room stood gazing sullenly at her under lowered lids. Come here, Margaret, said her mistress. She spoke peremptorily, but when the woman crossed to her, she laid a hand on the clumsy shoulder almost affectionately, it seemed to the detective. Margaret Campbell, she said quietly, cares for me more than anyone in the world, I think. The woman's face softened subtly under Millie's eye. She was afraid for me, went on Mrs. Mason, smiling and patting the thick shoulder gently. And I have been telling her who you are. You need not mind her knowing. She is true as steel. The woman lifted a quick glance to Millie's face. The hostility in it had given way, and a look of almost exultation replaced it. The dull eyes glowed a little. I knew you were something different, she cried. I feel things here. She put her ample hand on her wheezing chest and nodded slowly. I knew you was different, she said. Millie looked at her quietly. You knew it when you opened the door this afternoon? 
She motioned to the adjoining room, and the woman's quick eyes regarded her incredulously. "'Did you hear that?' she demanded. "'I saw it,' corrected Millie. "'I thought then it might be you. I hope you can keep a secret.' She was looking at her with direct glance. "'Margaret will not tell,' said her mistress quickly. "'I have known Margaret a long time. I would trust her with anything.' Something odd in the words caught Millie's ear. Hardly a breath, nothing she could define. The chief thing she was conscious of, standing and looking at the two women, so unlike in every way, was that some hidden bond existed between them, and that the servant could be trusted to be loyal to her mistress. She turned to her. "'You can help us,' she said, "'if you are trustworthy. I need to know about the others in the house, the other servants. You can tell me.' "'The other servants are all right,' said the woman sullenly. "'I do not doubt that, but I want to know about them, "'what connections they have outside the house. "'And I want to know everything that has happened in the house "'in the last three years.' "'She spoke with slow emphasis. "'Was it fancy, or did a swift, half-frightened look "'flit from the woman to her mistress? "'You can go now,' said Mrs. Mason quietly. "'I was going to help you,' protested the woman.' "'No, I do not need you any more tonight. Go now.' Her eyes followed the clumsy figure to the door. They turned to Millie. "'She is the soul of devotion,' she murmured. "'I can see that,' said Millie briefly. "'But why did she suspect me?' "'She is Scotch. She has premonitions. I suppose she is what is called psychic.' They both smiled at the incongruous word, and at the clumsy figure so ill-suited to it. But Mrs. Mason stayed her smile— with a half-gesture of reproach. I am ashamed to laugh at her. She is like some great faithful animal. She stands guard over me, and nothing will ever hurt me that Margaret can prevent. She has been with me ever since I was a child. When I married and came here, they could not keep her from coming with me. At first she was cook and general maid, and then when we moved to this house and there was more to do and more servants, she became a kind of general housekeeper for me. She does what she chooses, practically. I depend on her entirely. I think if any danger or illness were coming to me, she would know it long before I should. But she suspects good as well as ill, apparently. She thought I was going to do you harm. She was looking intently at the woman, who flushed a little. She had a feeling, I suppose, that you are not what you appear to be, and it troubled her. Yes, she made a mistake this time. She spoke a little wearily, and put up her hand to smooth back the hair that had fallen over her forehead. "'I am very tired,' she said. "'I have wanted so much all day to talk with you. I keep thinking of things I must tell you. "'Tomorrow you shall tell me. You are tired now. You must go to bed.' "'Very well.' The woman spoke wearily. Then she leaned forward. Her manner changed subtly. "'You have not found anything yet, have you?' She asked it almost eagerly and in her loose robe of wine-red silk, the loosened hair drooping a little about her face, and the quick light in her eyes, there was something vivid and strange. Millie had a sudden sense that a man would care to give jewels to a woman like this. Fine-grained, polished, dull red stones that would flash with quick gleams when you lifted them in the light. "'You did not find anything?' said the woman again, and Millie shook her head. "'It is not so easy as that, finding things.' I wish it were. Sometimes I think it is as hard to catch a thief as to paint a picture or write a poem, she said laughingly. A poem, repeated the woman with puzzled eyes. 
A poem? Yes. For days you think and feel and look, and nothing happens. And then, all in a minute, you have it in your head, and your poem is done. She laughed again. A little sound like a sigh sped from the woman's lips. I had not thought it was like that, she said. I thought you measured foot tracks and used a microscope and took away pieces of dust to analyze. That is what the others did. Who were the others? asked Millie. Mr. Corbin and his men. We had them in, you know. Yes, Mr. Corbin is a skillful detective. She added it almost defensively. That is what Mr. Mason said. He was determined to have him, but he did not find anything. Millie could have fancied there was something almost exultant in the look she cast at her, but before she could question it, the look had faded, and the face in its loosened hair was only very tired and a little wistful and tragic above the dull red robe. I will leave these, said Millie. She deposited the pile of mended garments she still carried on her arm, and the woman looked at them almost helplessly. You work so fast, she murmured. I cannot find enough to keep you busy. Don't worry, said Millie. I shall not work so hard tomorrow. I want to have a good talk with you, if we can be by ourselves without attracting attention. A look of relief crossed the woman's face. I want so much to talk. There are things I have not told you. It will be easy tomorrow. My husband will be away all day. We have only to go to his room. His room? The library on this floor. She moved a hand toward the front of the house. I often sit there when he is away. It has soundproof walls and double doors. You cannot hear a sound in it. The memory of the muffled resonance from a closing door came back to Millie. Does your husband use the room when he is here? Always. He goes to it and shuts himself in. It has been like that for two years now. She held out her hands in a helpless gesture. Oh, you must help me, she said. I shall help you, said Millie. Already I begin to see things more clearly. Good night. The woman's eyes searched and held her a little wistfully. Good night, she said. And as Millie passed up the stairs to her room, the dark, vivid face followed her, and the eyes questioned her, half doubtingly, and somewhere far in behind, it seemed to Millie, a look of fear hid itself. End of chapter 12. Chapter 13 of The Green Jacket by Jeanette Lee. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. She was down early at her work, but early as she was, someone was before her. The door to the breakfast room was closed. Through it, she could hear faintly the sound of dishes or the clink of a spoon, but no voices. Margaret Campbell brought in her breakfast and arranged the dishes on the tray. Then she stood waiting, one hand on the back of Millie's chair, her friendly eyes surveying the tray to see if anything were lacking. Millie leaned back with a little motion of her lips, and the woman bent her head. Almost without sound, Millie shaped the words, Will Mrs. Mason come down to breakfast? The woman made a gesture of assent toward the closed door. I want it open, said Millie softly, and with a nod of comprehension, the woman passed to the door, moving with noiseless step and busying herself for a minute at the sideboard. She came out, leaving the door ajar behind her. Through the crack, Millie could see the back and shoulders of the man at the table. The room was filled with sunshine. The man read his paper and turned it, and stopped to take a drink from his coffee cup and went on reading. All his movements were quick and nervous. 
Millie moved noiselessly from the table where her own breakfast waited. She took up her knitting and seated herself where she could see more easily into the sun-filled room. A mass of vines and flowers in the window made shadows on the white cloth, and the kettle with its blue flickering flame steamed gently. One could not fancy anything harsh or unpleasant touching the brightness of the room where the man read his paper and the kettle hummed softly over the blue flame. There was a little sound in the room beyond and the faint rustle of a woman's dress. The door opposite opened slowly. She seemed a little haggard to Millie in the morning light as she glanced half wistfully at her husband and moved toward the table. He did not turn or look up. When she had seated herself behind the coffee urn, turned his paper and glanced at her absently, as if first aware of her presence. "'Good morning,' she said. Her hands, hovering over the cups and spoons, trembled a little, and she pressed the electric bell by her plate, seeming to steady herself. If the man responded to her greeting, Millie did not hear the words. He laid down his napkin a little deliberately and got up, creasing his paper in quick folds. She glanced up. "'Are you through, Oswald?' Her voice had a note of surprise." He nodded brusquely. I have a busy day. He moved toward the door and paused and looked back. Bradley is going to send out a car this morning, if you want to see it. He waited her answer, not looking at her. She was pouring cream into her cup, and she set down the pitcher quickly. When will it be here? she asked. About eleven. And you are not going into town? Millie felt the anxiety that tinged the question, but if the man felt it, he gave no sign. I shall go back with the car, after we've looked it over. And stay all day? Probably. He raised his eyes and caught sight through the door of the sewing room of a woman knitting. Her eyes were following the flying needles, and her head was a little bent. He gave a gesture of surprise and turned to his wife, moving his hand and lowering his voice a little. Who is that, in there? He stood looking down, listening to the hurried explanation. How long will she be here? he asked. "'A few days. You don't mind, do you, Oswald?' "'Of course not,' he said brusquely. He went quickly out. Millie put aside her knitting and brought her tray to the table and began her breakfast. Through the half-open door she could see Mrs. Mason giving directions to the maid who had come in response to her bell. When Mrs. Mason finished her breakfast, she paused on her way out at the door of the sewing-room. The maid in the room behind could be heard clinking cups. Millie made a little gesture, and Mrs. Mason stepped into the room. "'I am ready to work on your dress today,' said Millie. The words were clear and distinct, and carried to the room beyond, but her glance made a little signal, and Mrs. Mason's hand on the door drew it together behind her as she came in. "'It is all right,' said Millie. The low, even tone might have been proposing a new pattern or discussing gores and seams. "'There will be plenty of time after eleven. Meantime, I want to see the servants. Can you manage for Margaret to be free if I want her?' "'It is so annoying.' "'This morning, of all others,' said the woman excitedly. "'Why should he stay at home?' The clenched hands at her sides trembled a little. "'Why should he stay? Does he suspect something?' "'Hush,' said Millie. "'Your nerves are unstrung. Isn't it natural he should want you to see the car before he buys it?' "'Oh, yes.' The voice stifled with the words. "'Yes, I know I am foolish. But it has been so long, and everything is so different. You saw him?' She motioned toward the closed door. You saw how he hurried, just now, to get away from me. Her hands made a little tragic gesture, then they covered her eyes swiftly, and Millie saw the tears pressing behind them. Listen, you will hamper me if you are excited and nervous. She spoke with decision, and the woman took down her hands. She smiled a little wanly. 
I do not see why I should be like this. I think it is because since you came I am beginning to hope, and I am afraid, too. She spoke in a half-whisper with her glance on the door, behind which they could hear the maid moving about softly. She turned to Millie. I shall be brave. You will see. I am going to tell Margaret to come at once for your tray. I shall not be like this again. You will see. She nodded brightly and went out. Through the French window, Millie could see Mr. Mason crossing the terrace toward the garage. In the adjoining room, the maid had finished her work and gone out. The quiet and peace of the sunshine outside seemed to pervade the house. When Margaret came for the tray, she motioned her to sit down. "'I want to ask you about one or two things,' she said. "'And this is a good time. Are the servants in the house now the same ones who were here two years ago, when the emeralds disappeared?' The woman's face seemed suddenly to pale. She sat down with a half-frightened look and closed her lips firmly. But in spite of the pressure of her will on them, they trembled a little. "'You need not be afraid,' said Millie kindly. "'Mrs. Mason wants you to tell me anything you know. "'She will be happier when we have solved this mystery "'than she has been for a long time. "'You must help me, Margaret.' "'The woman gulped a little and looked at her without speaking. "'Then her eyes filled slowly with tears. "'They had a grotesque, pathetic look in the fat face. "'Tell me,' said Millie, "'was the butler here then?' "'Batson? Yes, Batson was here. "'And Katie, she's the parlor-maid, she was here. "'And Cook, Mrs. Batson, she was here.' and me, and that's all. Millie checked them rapidly in her mind. Are there any new ones? The scullery, she's new. And there are gardeners? Millie glanced through the window toward the garden and the lawn that stretched away to the trees. A horse-driven lawnmower was clicking busily across it. There's three of them, besides the head gardener, Simpson. And there's the chauffeur, he's new. But they all live outside. They're never in the house." Could they slip in from the outside, perhaps at mealtime, without being seen? It wouldn't be easy, not with me around, said the woman proudly. I'm always somewhere. I guess they all know that. She smiled a little grimly. She was sitting erect, a hand on either knee, and the hands were clinched a little. I've always took care of Miss Annie and of Miss Annie's things, she said. No thief could get into this house from the outside without me knowing it. She said the words slowly, and she paled a little under Millie's eye, as if she had been carried further than she meant. "'It was somebody inside, then,' said Millie quietly. "'I didn't say it,' cried the woman. "'No, and we won't say it, yet.' Millie was thinking swiftly. "'How could I see the butler in some natural way?' "'Batson?' Margaret considered it. "'Well, he's around in the mornings, back and forth. "'He doesn't serve breakfast?' "'No, that's Katie.' Suppose I wanted another table for sewing. Would Batson be the one to bring it? If his rheumatism wasn't too bad, conceded Margaret. How is his rheumatism today? asked Millie, smiling. The last time I heard him complain was week before last, said Margaret. Weather like this, he's pretty comfortable, I guess. The sound of the lawnmower that had been clicking busily ceased suddenly, and Millie's glance following it saw that it had halted at the edge of the wide lawn. Mr. Mason was standing beside it, talking with the driver. Margaret's eye rested on them a minute and turned away. Something hostile in it caught Millie's glance. "'Mr. Mason is staying at home this morning,' she said casually. "'It's no comfort to anyone if he stays or he don't stay,' muttered the woman. Millie looked at her keenly. "'What do you mean by that, Margaret?' The woman turned sullenly. "'If you'd seen my Miss Annie when we first come here, beautiful and always laughing and happy,' Her tongue seemed suddenly loosened, 
and her heavy face became alive. There was never anybody like her, I tell you. Just something about her made you feel as if you wanted to lie down and let her walk over you. And he felt it. She moved her hand contemptuously to the distant figure. There wasn't anything he wouldn't do for Miss Annie then, or buy for her. Jewels! You should see the things he bought her, like a queen. She sat looking at it, a great rebellion smoldering in her eyes. And now, said Millie softly, the look broke. And now, she blazed, he treats her like a dog. Do you mean he's unkind to her? Not to speak to her, not to notice if she comes in or goes out. Is that unkind? she mimicked. He goes to his room and locks the door on her. Unkind, she repeated scornfully. And yet he looks like a man who has suffered, said Millie thoughtfully. Oh, suffered. And haven't we all suffered, she cried, and no one to tell what the trouble is or how to set it right. That is what I am here for, you know. Perhaps before I go, Margaret, something will come back to this house, something of the old happiness and love. As it was when Miss Marion was home, said the woman eagerly, as if she saw it again. Always somebody coming and going, running through the hall out there, or calling up the stairs. Or maybe Miss Marion hurrying up to her room and calling, Come and help me, Margaret. We're going for a picnic. And many's the time we had the terrace here, thick with people, and tables for tea, and bats and hurrying to serve them all. Or maybe hampers carried out to the tennis court, there under the trees. Everybody was happy then. Yes, and everybody will be happy again, said Millie cheeringly. Not Miss Marion. A great tear rolled down her cheek, and she did not lift her hand to brush it aside. She was the happiest, she said softly. She had a way like sunshine with her. No, we cannot bring her back to life, but we can make Mrs. Mason less lonely, perhaps. The woman's face lighted, and she lifted a hand swiftly, brushing away the tears. If you can do that for her, I'll bless you till the longest day I live, she said solemnly. And that will be a long while, I hope, responded Millie, laughing. Now, can you find Batson for me? I think I'll have him move that secretary. She eyed the heavy piece of mahogany furniture that stood by the sidewall. I want to put my sewing table there to get a better light on it. Margaret looked at the massive piece of furniture. She shook her head. Batson won't like it, she said. He won't like doing it, and he won't like the idea. A heavy piece like that. Well, send him in. We will see. And as she waited for Batson, she was conscious of a little feeling of thankfulness that Batson was a man, not only because he would probably be strong and could move the secretary for her, but because, whatever his defects, he was not likely to weep. She had a refreshing sense of the stolidity of Batson's figure seen through the distant doorway. She would not need to keep Batson long or question him closely. A few minutes would probably suffice. End of chapter 13「Chapter Fourteen of the Green Jacket by Jeanette Lee. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. She heard a heavy tread in the hall, and she turned her back and stood surveying the secretary. Years ago she had come on the discovery that nothing heartens a possible criminal like the chance to look you over first, and nothing is more likely to throw him off his guard. Whenever possible, she presented a view of herself for deliberate inspection. She had learned, too, not to flash too sudden a look at a man when at last she turned to him. She merely let her glance slide by him casually. If later the glance returned and dwelt on him for a minute, he did not seem to think it necessary to arrange a rigid countenance for inspection. One of the curious things about people under suspicion, whether innocent or guilty, 
that often puzzled Milly was this deep, instinctive desire to present to her a countenance void of all meaning. She did not understand it altogether, but she accepted and allowed for it. Batson's footsteps, slow and a little important, came nearer, and she went over to the secretary and stood looking up at it reflectively. When the tread entered the room, she spoke over her shoulder, carelessly, without looking back. "'Do you think you could move this secretary for me, or is it too heavy?' Batson's figure had come alongside. She could feel him, looking at the sewing woman, who had summoned him in this autocratic fashion. "'Is it too heavy to be moved?' she asked doubtfully. "'Not for you, Miss Newberry,' said Batson's voice deeply. She wheeled and stared. "'Mr. Batson!' she cried softly. She held out her hand. He took it in embarrassed friendliness. "'You are the last person,' she said. "'I hope I see you well, ma'am,' responded Batson. "'Yes, thank you. How is Sadie?' His stolid face lighted. "'You should see her, Miss Newberry,' he said almost eagerly. She nodded. "'I should like to.' "'She come out last week,' went on Batson, "'to see me and her mother. She's a new girl, Miss Newberry. She's got sense.' Batson's hands spread themselves and laid the sense before her largely. "'Good,' said Millie. "'I always believed it would come.' "'Yes. I know you was always saying to us to have patience with her. But she was terrible trying, with all them dancing ideas.' and on the go, day and night. And when it came to that last time, and you caught her, with the goods on her. Batson lowered his voice and glanced cautiously at the doors behind him. Well, I'll own, ma'am, I give up. He looked down at her in grateful disbelief. I never knew to this day how you done it, he said solemnly, but somehow you got her by the skittish place. His face grew thoughtful. I've wondered since then, ma'am, whether all young folks, maybe, don't come to a skittish place like that. "'They surely do, Mr. Batson,' said Millie, laughing. "'And if you get them by it, they'll run steady for a long time, "'perhaps till they're as old as you or me.' "'Batson's eye twinkled. "'That's what I said to myself. "'Steer em by,' I says, with blinders, "'or most any way that comes handy, "'and they'll live straight forever after. "'Seems as if most people had to have a time like that sooner or later. "'It's like the mumps or measles, "'and the sooner you're over it, the better.' "'Millie laughed out. "'You speak as if you knew all about it, Batson. "'Did you ever have an attack?' "'Well, ma'am, I won't say I wasn't once there or thereabouts,' "'he replied modestly. "'Ellen will be wanting to see you,' he added. "'As if by chance, the two ideas lay near together in his mind. "'Millie put out a hand. "'No, don't tell Ellen I am here. "'Keep it a secret for a little while, please. "'And don't forget that to Ellen and the others, "'I am Miss Brigham, who is doing some sewing for Mrs. Mason.' "'He looked at her keenly.' "'You're here after your old work,' he said. "'And after a minute, it's them emeralds,' he declared. "'She nodded. "'Damn em, said Batson fervently. "'I beg your pardon, ma'am, "'but if you knew what this house has been through, "'owing to them emeralds, "'you'd say the same and more.' "'She smiled. "'I'm sure I would. "'Tell me about it.' "'About their disappearing? "'You know they disappeared, don't you? "'That's what you're here for?' "'Yes, but I only know they disappeared. "'Hardly more than that.' It would help me very much to know how the whole thing appeared to a sensible man like you. If you can spare the time to tell me. Batson expanded a little. Oh, I can spare the time. He glanced at the secretary. Maybe we better move that first, he suggested. No, that was only an excuse to see the butler. Go on, please. Batson chuckled. Well, I must say, I never suspected who you was. Not from the first minute you come. When Ellen was making words about having to fix up a tray three times a day, I said to her, 
For the Lord's sake, Ellen, if there's anything Miss Mason takes an interest in, let her have it. But I no more suspected than a babe unborn, when you sent for me, that you was another one of them detectives. Batson relaxed to the delight of free speech. You don't know what I suffered with them, Miss Newberry, them detectives. Why, some of them pretty near put me through the third degree before they was done with me. There was one spell there. I kind of had to make up things. Seems as if nothing else would satisfy him, really. Well, I'm not going to put you through the third degree, and it will be a comfort to know that I can trust you and rely on what you say. Same to you, ma'am, said Batson. I've had a feeling some days here that you couldn't trust anybody. Why, there was one day I got to wondering if maybe Ellen had done it. He looked at her askance and shook his head. I don't ever want to feel much worse than I felt that day, I guess. Sit down, said Millie, and tell me everything. Batson tiptoed to the window and looked importantly out. We don't want to be seen talking together, he said cautiously, and Millie smiled at the far-off echo of the Corbin methods repeated with the muffled emphasis of Batson's expansive calm. He looked to right and to left, and he leaned forward and peered out through the window. A horn sounded among the trees. Maybe the new car, said Batson. Then his face lost interest. It's the mail, ma'am. Excuse me, please. I'll have to get it. He stepped out of the window and hurried across the terrace with bulky importance and down the steps to the car, holding up his hands for the budget of mail the postman doled out. When he turned back, his hands overflowing with papers and letters, he did not return to the sewing room, but passed directly to the front of the house. He deposited the mail on the hall table, bending over and arranging it in neat little piles, and stopping now and then to peer down at a letter or card before his fingers released it. One letter he held for a full minute before he laid it on the pile. He lifted his head and looked toward the stairs. Mrs. Mason was coming swiftly down, and he handed her the letter he had just placed on its pile. She tore it open with eager fingers and stood reading it breathlessly. Batson went on sorting letters, glancing now and then with a kind of respectful sympathy at his mistress's absorbed face. He gathered up a small handful of the sorted mail and departed to the back of the house. Mrs. Mason, standing by the hall table, read on and turned a page hastily, and broke away with a little gesture to seize a parasol from the rack by the stairs. She passed swiftly out of the open door. Millie saw her cross the terrace and beckon to her husband, who had finished talking with the man on the machine and was coming toward the terrace. The rapid clicking of the machine resuming its course across the lawn came to Millie's ear as she watched the man and woman meet on the edge of the terrace. The woman held up the open page, speaking rapidly, and the man reached his hand to it. From her place in the window, Millie could see the look of the wife bent upon him eagerly, with waiting happiness. The reddish glow cast by the parasol on her head and shoulders gave her a radiant look, but the glow in her face seemed to come as much from some inner light as from some without. The man finished the letter and handed it back to her, and they stood a minute talking. Then she turned back to the house. It seemed to Millie as she came toward her that the face had lost a little of its warm glow. But when the woman looked up and saw the seamstress through the window, she nodded with a little smile and came toward her, holding up the letter. "'My boy is coming,' she called, even before she reached the window. "'Stephen is coming. I have not seen him for a year.' She stood outside the window, the parasol behind her head and shoulders, lighting her radiantly. "'I cannot believe it,' she said softly. "'When does he come?' asked Millie. She opened the letter in her hand. The mere action seemed to give her pleasure. "'The ninth, he says. 
That's tomorrow, isn't it? I shall arrive the ninth. He didn't say what train. I must go and tell Margaret. There will be so much to do. She nodded happily and moved away. Even her step was different, it seemed to Millie, watching her as she passed out of sight. And presently, through the whole house, ran quickening life. Doors opened and closed, feet hurried, voices rose, a little excited and eager, and called to each other up and down the stairs. The son of the house was coming home. Millie sewed a little while, then she took up her knitting. She was glad of the advent of the sun. She had been gazing into a deep, dusky pool, trying to pierce through the obscurity to something that lay hidden beneath, deep in the slime and ooze, perhaps, or floating free and nearer to the surface, if she could focus her eyes to it. And now, as if over her shoulder, someone had cast a stone into the pool, and the ripples were spreading on every side. No use to look while the surface was disturbed like this. Perhaps when the disturbance ceased and the pool subsided, a ray of sunshine would strike across it, and she would see for a minute deep into it. She only hoped Batson would not be too busy to come to her. She wanted to hear the story of the theft from Batson's lips. She had an idea that Batson's view of it would be more revealing than that of many more intelligent persons, and she could trust him to give her the truth, as far as he knew it. The last time she had seen Batson, his face had been blanched with fear and filled with a look of pathetic, wounded pride. He had come, with his daughter, at Millie's request, to the uptown office. The girl had been taking petty articles of finery from a dry goods shop. The case had been put in Millie's hands, with the usual stipulation on her part that the culprit when discovered should be hers to deal with. The result had been Batson and his daughter in the uptown office, Batson shivering with misery and possible disgrace, the girl a little flippant and defiant. That was nearly two years ago. She had known that the father and mother were in service in the country, but she had not known where. She had called in the father only because something in the girl's attitude when she spoke of him suggested to her that the fear of hurting her father might have influence with her. The guess had proved a happy one. The sight of her father's abject humiliation had seemed to steady the girl like a shock. Millie had no fear that Batson would not serve her in every way he was capable of. If what he was able to tell her was of little use, it would not be Batson's fault. She saw him through the distant rooms, hurrying about and giving directions, guiding his staff with anxious and important air. Presently, he approached the door of the sewing room and looked in. I am free now, madam, for a little while, if you would like me to tell you what we were speaking of, he said discreetly. Millie nodded, and he came in with deft clumsiness, closing and locking the door, and moving to the other doors and locking them in swift succession. He crossed to the window and looked out in either direction. Millie, watching him, smiled at the elaborate reminder of the Corbin method. Batson spoke to her over his shoulder from his place at the window. If anyone comes to the door, ma'am, I'll slip out here while you're unlocking it, and nobody can get at us this way without me seeing them. He waved his hand across the open space. If anybody steps on the terrace, I'll slip out the door before they're onto me. Millie nodded with amused eyes. That sounds safe. I was afraid you might not be able to come with all the preparation for the son's arrival. He turned to her. You have heard then. Mrs. Mason told me. She had taken up her knitting and was absorbed in complicated stitches. Batson sighed. I hope it's a good thing. It's coming. He sighed again and looked at her a little askance. Sit down, won't you? said Millie. He sat down, half facing the window, his glance free to cover the range outside. 
he placed his hands across the amplitude of his stomach, as far as it permitted, and leaned back and sighed again reflectively. I don't hardly know where to begin, he said. Why not begin at the beginning? Well, I guess the beginning was about five years back, when me and Ellen first come here. Miss Mason had seen us at the employment office, and she liked us, and we liked her. We knew there was four in the family we was coming to work for, a son and a daughter. We didn't know till we got here that the daughter was adopted, and we shouldn't have known then except for the other servants. The father and mother treated her more like their own than most folks do. She had her little riding horse and clothes, and about everything a girl could have. Jewelry? asked Millie quietly. She had just turned the row and was adjusting her needle. She was not noticing him. Patson regarded her slowly. I don't know as I ever thought of that before. I don't believe she did have many jewels. Mr. Mason was always buying them and giving them to his wife. She'd be wearing a new ring or pin or something every day or two. But I don't seem to remember as Miss Marion ever had more than one or two little trinkets. He seemed to consider it a minute. It couldn't have been because they stinted her. She had everything, and more, too. I reckon it might have been because he wanted to keep something special for his wife. He was always fond of his wife. Was? repeated Millie. Batson looked a little embarrassed. Well, ma'am, it seems a queer thing to say about the folks you're working for, and not being supposed to notice anything that goes on. But it does seem as if Mr. Mason had changed a good deal. How has he changed? What do you call changed? asked Millie. Going to his room and shutting himself up, hours at a time, said Batson. That's what I'd call changed. Why, it used to be. Couldn't bear to let her out of his sight, not hardly. When did he begin to change? Could you tell that? It was along about the time the trouble come on, I guess. He spoke slowly, as if trying to place the things he recalled. Pretty soon after we heard there'd been a robbery in the house, it must have been that I first begun to notice anything queer. And when was that? Two years ago. Just about this time of year it was. Miss Mason called me up to her room one day. She was sitting by the window, and I could see she had been crying. Things was all kind of tumbled up, as if folks had been hunting and mussing about the room. And she said to me, she says, Batson, something very unhappy has come to us. Them was just her words, ma'am. My emerald necklace has disappeared, she said. I just stood with my mouth open, looking at her. Batson shook his head slowly. I didn't mistrust anything then. But afterward I see that a detective must have been watching me all the time from the dressing room door. He smiled shrewdly. Well, he didn't see anything, but me standing there looking like a dumb fool. Then, after a minute, Miss Mason told me the detectives was there in the next room searching, and that they wanted to talk with me when they was through. She told them they'd better question me, but I was not to tell the others. I reckon she always trusted me, whether the detectives did or not. Well, when they came out, they questioned me, uphill and down. And after that, as I told you, they kept it up, having me in every day or two and tackling me. Of course, the other servants got wind of it. You can't have men in, ripping up your carpets and measuring windows and running up and down stairs without folks getting to know something is up. But they did not discover anything? Not so far as I know, said Batson. I don't believe they ever really got a notion of how the thing was done or knew anything more about it than I did. He shook his head gloomily, and his eyes gazing through the window seemed to look upon something incredible and unsolved. You never saw a house change the way this did after that, said Batson slowly. Miss Marion got a kind of pindlin' and unhappy, and finally she went away. Nothing was ever said that she wasn't coming back, and her room was always ready for her upstairs, fire laid and some of her little things around, but she never did come back. He looked at the detective. You know she died a couple of weeks ago, 
Yes, I knew Mrs. Mason was in mourning for her. Yes, she's in mourning for her, said the old butler. His glance rested on hers a minute and looked hastily away. Everything went wrong after that, he said. Mr. Stephen, he finally left home and went out west. He'd been keeping pretty steady, too, for a while. He was kind of a high buck, explained the old man simply. I reckon he tried all he could, but he couldn't seem to stand it any longer. I don't know as I blame him, either, he added after a little pause in which he seemed to turn it over. Why not? asked Millie curiously. Well, I felt some of that way myself, said Batson, as if somebody was always watching and suspecting me, and always waiting for something that was going to happen. Only it never did. It weren't any real thing, either, just the way things felt when you went around the house. Of course, I've got used to it now. Some days I don't hardly know I'm feeling that way. But this morning, when the news come, and seeing Miss Mason's look and the way she went stepping around the house so light, it brought it all back to me somehow. And then knowing you was here on the same old business, I've been remembering how things used to be. You've made me see it very clearly, Batson. I thank you, said Millie. You're welcome, I'm sure. It seems as if I'd kind of jumbled things together, telling them, but that's the way they seem to me in my mind, all kind of jumbled up. I never could see straight what it was happened. It seemed as if there was always some little thing that was hid that I couldn't see, and if I could see it, it would make a difference. You have given me just what I wanted, said Millie. I don't want to keep you any longer. I know you are busy today. Thank you, ma'am. He got to his feet. I heard a car just now. I shouldn't wonder if it's the new one they're talking about buying. He looked at his watch and off through the trees, and a beautiful car flashed into sight, speeding noiselessly up the drive. I guess I'll go out and have a look at her, said Batson. He stepped softly through the window. Then he turned and looked back. Better unlock them doors, he said, with a gesture of mysterious and efficient caution as he moved away. End of chapter 14「Chapter Fifteen of the Green Jacket by Jeanette Lee. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. It was nearly an hour before the new car passed swiftly down the driveway with Mr. Mason on the back seat. Milly watched it out of sight and turned to the door. Margaret stood in it, looking at her significantly. Miss Annie says, "Will you please to come up now and see about her dress?" She said it circumspectly and stepped a little into the room to make way for the parlor maid. Who was passing through the hall behind her. She'd like it if you'd come right away, please, she added. And the seamstress rose, dropping her knitting into the bag on her arm, and followed her into the hall. She's up in her room, said Margaret. I'm going up too. She moved aside and allowed the sewing woman to precede her. In the upper hallway, Mrs. Mason, waiting by the door of her room, a look of eager impatience on her face, reached out to Millie as she came up and drew her swiftly along the hall toward the front of the house. Margaret will keep watch, she said. Come in here. She had entered the library, drawing the seamstress with her, and she closed both doors carefully behind them. Millie noted that the doors were of oak and highly polished and very thick. The bookcases built into the room allowed a generous space between the outer and inner door. The woman moved softly across the thick rug to the fire that blazed on the hearth. Sit down, she said quickly. She drew one of the large leather chairs nearer to the fire. But she did not seat herself in it, but stood with one hand on the mantel, looking down at Milly. Her face was flushed, and her eyes were filled with a little light of trembling happiness. The hand on the mantel seemed to press on it, as if to steady itself. Oh, I thought he would never go, she said breathlessly, 
and I have so much to say to you. I want to talk to you before Stephen comes. Think of it, tomorrow. Her eyes, gazing deep into Millie's, had a strange look, almost of apprehension. Tomorrow, she repeated softly. Yes, I am glad for you. Oh, you cannot know, she spoke hurriedly. No one can know what it has been, day after day, month after month, and never to see him. Millie looked from the woman's flushed face to a picture that stood near it on the mantel. She made a little motion to it, with a look of question, and the woman turned to it swiftly. She took it in her hands and gazed at it, and handed it to her quickly. Can you imagine what it would be, to have a son like that and not see him, not even to know? She stopped abruptly and pressed her lips together. Millie looked at her gently. You need not hide from me, she said. No, I shall tell you everything, assented the woman. I want to. Millie studied the photograph a minute and placed it on the table beside her, where she could see it as she leaned back in her chair. She would have the son's face before her while the mother told her story. He has an open face, she said half to herself. The woman relaxed subtly to it. A little sob stole to her lips and broke through in quick words. Oh, he is true. He is true. No one who knows him could doubt it. No, I am sure of that. How long has he been away from home? A year last month. Think of it, a whole year. And he had scarcely been away in his life. We were always together and always such friends. Even when he was a child, we talked over our plans with him. We called him little brother. There was no other child, you know. A shadow flitted in her face and she went on quickly. Then we adopted Marion and we were four children instead of three. I think we kept younger than most fathers and mothers. I was not old two years ago. She leaned against the mantel, and her shoulders seemed to droop a little, as if she were suddenly tired. Sit down, said Millie, motioning to the chair across the hearth. But she shook her head impatiently, annoyed to break the thread that was recalling the past to her. It was when Marion left us, she went on intently. It was then everything changed, I think. My husband grew so strange to me. She halted a minute, and then went swiftly on, as if fearing to stop. He shut me out of his life. He is a stranger to me, here in our home. She moved her hand with a little gesture of fierceness. Are you sure the change came then, when she went away? asked Millie. She paused, as if the idea arrested her. Then she shook her head. It was then I first knew. She seemed to hold it. Perhaps he was different before that, a little different. Everything was changed by the robbery. The detectives in and out. The home sense was gone. Yes, our home was really broken up before she went. She said it consideringly. Yet I always think of the change as having come the day she left. I remember so well that morning. My husband shut himself alone in his room. All day I did not see him. Stephen had gone with Marion into town to see her off, and I was alone. She shuddered a little. I had never been alone in my life. I do not mean physically alone, you understand, but in my heart. There had always been my mother, and then Oswald. But that day there was no one in the world. I thought my heart would break. She looked at Millie, and there was a strange passion in her eyes, as if the memory of that day haunted them. I know they say hearts do not break, she said, but sometimes there is a pain. Her hand clutched the black dress on her bosom. Sometimes it is like a consuming flame here, she said swiftly. Then you do wrong to think of it, said Millie practically. Sit down. I want you to tell me everything you can remember about the necklace. How your husband came to give it to you, and when it was, where, everything about it. There may be something important, some little thing that will give me the clue I want, 
if you can remember. If I can remember, repeated the woman with a wan smile, I cannot forget. She sank into the chair and covered her eyes a minute. Then she looked up wearily. You are right, she said, in thinking there was something important in his giving it to me, though many people would not think it so. But Oswald and I have always been close in spirit, and we both knew his giving it meant something significant in our life, though we did not put it into words. The emeralds were his words, I think. My husband chose to speak in jewels instead of words. She said it with a faint smile. He is not an ordinary man. He is like a poet. She glanced about the walls crowded with books, every shelf and table filled with them. This room has been our life, she said slowly. When we built the house, he planned this room for us both. It must be on this floor, he said, where I could come to it easily, instead of down below where other people have libraries. He wanted me to be always near him, and when he was away I sat here with my work or my book. Then the baby came, and my husband brought a new chair and placed it for me there, where you are sitting. It was low and roomy with little rockers, and I always nursed the baby in it and sat there and played with him. He was a part of our life in this room. She sat staring before her, seeing the distant picture of the baby in the room, and Millie was touched with a strange wonder at the poetry and the life her words revealed. She wondered a little whether all men and women have this sealed fountain of poetry and longing that only wells up to the light when some harsh blow breaks the seal and it gushes out. They sat in silence, looking into the fire, and after a little the woman's voice went on. I was sitting there one day with Stephen in my arms, crooning to him. He had been nursing and had fallen asleep, and I had not disturbed him. I was looking down at his little head. You know how soft and beautiful they are. She cast a sweet look at the other woman, and I was filled with happiness, not thinking, but just looking down at him and happy, when I heard a step at the door, and then his voice, Don't move. He came over here to the firelight, with something in his hands and held it up, and the glints in the stones struck out and startled me. He stood there playing with it and making it shine toward me and the child. It seemed as if the colors flashed back and forth across us when he turned it in his hands. He was like a child himself, she said with a sigh. Her voice had grown half tender. And then, at last, he came over to me and stood above me and dropped it down on my neck, and the lowest link came down to my breast, close to the child's head. I could see it gleam there when I looked down. But he said again, Don't move, don't touch. And he went across and sat down and looked at us a long time. Just looked, with his eyes half closed, till it seemed as if I were wrapped in a flame of light. The eyes and the gaunt face raised themselves slowly and looked at Millie. You have never been married, she asked gently. And when Millie made a quiet, gray gesture of negation, the woman's eyes held her thoughtfully, as if her memory spoke in them. It is very wonderful, all that part of life, she said. The words seemed remote and untouched, and she looked down at the slightly reddened knuckles in her lap and rubbed them a little and clasped her hands. I did not dream then that the jewels would one day make me suffer. I saw only my husband's eyes and felt the child's head against my breast. And by and by he came over and knelt by me and gathered us to him almost fiercely and whispered to me that he would always keep me like that. Nothing should change. There should be only the child and me. He would give me everything in the world. We would travel and I should always be close to him. He wanted nothing in the world but me, as I looked with the firelight shining on me and on the jewels. 
She shivered a little. I shall never forget the words. A woman could not forget them, with his low voice and his eyes on me. They seemed to pierce me till I shriveled under them. Something strange and unhappy seemed close to me. I wanted to tear off the jewels, throw them away, but he would not let me. He kept whispering, You are mine, with my emerald shining on you. The woman gasped a little. She was leaning back in her chair, her face very pale. The tears were stealing down. Presently her lips moved, and Millie bent to catch the half-breathed words. I have been punished, she said softly. I have paid for my jewels, yes. She brushed aside the tears and sat up. Even then I knew. She was speaking almost fiercely. I knew. I longed for other children, to hear them running and playing with Stephen, in the hall out here and in the garden. She seemed to listen a moment to the voices that had not come to her. Then she went on quietly. I did not tell Oswald. It was not till long after, one day, I begged him to let me adopt a child, a little girl. So Marion came to us. She was only a little younger than Stephen, and they were like brother and sister together. I used to sit for hours at a time, not moving or thinking, just listening to their voices at play. She drew a long breath. That is how the necklace came to me, she said in a different tone. I did not wear it often in society. It was far too expensive for us, more expensive than we had any right to. I often put it on at home when we were alone, or we held it in our hands here in the firelight and watched it sparkle and change. My husband justified his extravagance. He said it was an investment instead of stocks and bonds. I think we enjoyed it more than most people enjoy their stocks and bonds, she said with a little smile. She sat looking dreamily into the fire. Perhaps the stones still gleamed there for her faintly. And this necklace was stolen? asked Millie quietly. She started from her dream. It disappeared, I told you. Her eyes turned to the photograph on the table. She looked at it a long time, intently, and the eyes of the picture seemed to return the look. She glanced away from them with a little helpless gesture. There is something I have not told you, she said. Yes? The word waited without comment, but the woman seemed to find it impossible to speak. It is Stephen, she said at last. She motioned to the picture. But you must not think, you must not suspect, if I tell you. Nobody can be certain. She threw it out defensively. I shall not suspect, said Millie. That is not my business. I only want to know the facts. But this fact does not mean what it seems to. That is why I have been so frightened and anxious. She leaned forward. You know that Stephen was in a bank in town before he left home? She whispered the words. Yes, was there trouble? She shook her head. Nothing that was ever known, but my son overran his salary. He was extravagant, like his father, she added with a little sad smile. He had debts, and he borrowed $3,000 from the bank. She said the last words quickly, and stared at the detective as if challenging her thought. Millie returned the look with a smile. No, I'm not thinking anything. Go on. Who knew of his borrowing the money? Only me and Marion, she said softly. She looked at her again, still with a little defensive glance. Did he tell you both of it? He did not tell anyone. He expected, of course, to return it in a day or two. Of course, assented Millie dryly. But Marion came to know. She called at the bank one night to drive him home. She came in quietly. At first she thought there was no one there, and then she saw Stephen 
in the safe with his back to her. He was taking out some bills. She saw him crowd them down into his pocket and reach again, and then she turned and hurried out. She was in a panic that he might hear her or see her, but she got out safely, and in a few minutes she went back for him. She said he looked so happy and innocent when she came back that she thought it must be a bad dream. She worried about it till she was nearly ill, and then at last she told me. The mother sat staring before her. And then, said Millie. She moved and lifted her eyes. A week later, she said slowly, the necklace disappeared. They waited a minute in silence. And you believe Marion stole the necklace and got the money for your son? said Millie. The woman hesitated. I have always believed she took it, she said. There was a soft tapping sound somewhere in the room, and they started. The woman cowered in her chair, looking behind her with frightened eyes. It is someone at the door, said Millie. She motioned to the inner door with its heavy, polished surface, and the tapping came again, a little louder. The color flashed back to the woman's face. It is Margaret, she said swiftly. She would not let anyone else come to the door, except over her dead body. She laughed a little tremulously, and hurried to the door and opened it. Lunch, Margaret, very well. We did not hear the gong. I will come. She turned back to Millie in her chair by the hearth. Could you have your luncheon with me? she asked almost pleadingly. I dread to sit down there alone, with all the memories I have called up. You must be brave, said Millie. She touched her arm, soothing her. Be brave a little longer. The servants would think it strange for you to have the sewing woman into luncheon. Go and eat your luncheon, and then come to the sewing room, and we will get to work on the dress and make it fit you. She smoothed the wrinkles on the black shoulder gently. We must not wait too long, she remarked, or happiness may get ahead of us, and it will not need to be changed. The woman looked at her gratefully a minute, then she left the room with quiet step. When she had gone, Millie took the photograph from the table. She studied it, holding it from her, and placed it on the mantel and looked at it again. The open, boyish face looked back at her, revealing nothing. End of chapter 15「Chapter Sixteen of the Green Jacket by Jeanette Lee. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. It was Margaret who brought the black dress when luncheon was over with the message, "Miss Annie is lying down. She's going to take a little nap if she can. That's good, replied Millie. She took the dress and ripped the shoulder seams and laid it aside to wait for Mrs. Mason. When, a little later, she appeared in the doorway wearing the dark red robe, her face was pale. I could not sleep, she said. It will rest me to be with you. She watched Millie's fingers adjusting the folds of the dress. How skillful you are, and you are not really a dressmaker? Millie smiled. Oh, yes, I am a dressmaker. I learned the trade. I thought then I should always make dresses. Now it is ready to try on. She slipped it over the woman's head and drew the folds in place and pinned them skillfully. There, that is much better. She stood back to look at it. Now we can finish it quickly. She gathered up the dress and slipped on her thimble, with a glance at the woman who, with her hands idle in her lap, was looking at her wistfully. Here, you can help. She detached a bit of the trimming and fitted it in place. You can run on this braid while I do the seams. It will save time. Yes, here is an extra thimble. The woman settled contentedly to the bit of work in her hands. 
The rhythm of the needle passing in and out through the black cloth seemed to tranquilize her, and her face became quiet. I like to sew, she said, smoothing the braid under her fingers. I used to sew when Marion was home. We used to spend hours together, and even when she was off with the young people, I always felt she might come back any minute and take up her work by the other window. I have scarcely touched a needle since she went. She broke off, gazing before her. Then she went on sewing, her needle moving swiftly. Were any of the young people in the neighborhood intimate with her? asked Millie. Did they come and go in the house? Not in the house. They lived out of doors, on the terrace here, and on the tennis court. And there were drives and picnics often, and dances in the winter. But no one who ran in and out of the house more intimately than the others? pursued Millie. The woman hesitated. Yes, Elise Marshall was here often. She was almost like a daughter in the house. The words were low, and Millie caught a hidden tone in them. Perhaps you hope she might be some day, she said gently. I did hope it, yes. I tried one day to say something to Stephen about it, but he turned away. And did not say anything? He said, I shall get married when my debts are paid. We never spoke of it again. Was he so deeply in debt? Nearly ten thousand dollars, said the woman. Millie held the work in her hands and stared at her. But how could it be so much, living at home, with no establishment to keep up? He had a good salary? Yes, I don't think it ever occurred to Stephen that he could deny himself anything he wanted. His father was generous with him, too. That was his way. The boy and I must have everything always. That was the way he ruined us, I think. She spoke softly. But even so, Millie spoke thoughtfully, he was hardly more than a boy. Twenty-three, said his mother. The picture I showed you was taken on his twenty-third birthday. She seemed to hesitate a little. She looked down at the bit of sewing on her lap and smoothed it with her fingers. He came to me one morning, very excited. He had a great roll of bills in his hands. He told me he had found five thousand dollars in the pocket of his coat that morning. The coat had been at the tailor's being pressed and had just come home the day before. But who could have... There was a note with it, went on the mother quickly. He showed it to me. It was typewritten, not signed, and only said a friend wanted him to pay his debts and settle down, become the man his friends believed him capable of becoming. The giver did not wish to be known. He did not want the money to come between their friendship. It was a free gift. We talked it over, and I advised Stephen to do it. When did this money come to him? It was Wednesday, May 3rd. I have reason to remember the date. Why? It was the next day that the necklace disappeared. Then it was taken after he had the money. Yes, that is what makes it so puzzling. A little click registered itself in Millie's mind. What did you do when you found it was gone? At first, as I told you, I tried to keep it quiet. My husband thought that was best. He said I was sure to find it somewhere. I had laid it down and forgotten. Then, all of a sudden, he seemed to change, and insisted on having in a detective. Then Marion had to be told. And your son? No, we never told him. It was almost a whisper. From the very first, I suspected Marion, though I tried hard not to be unjust to her. But I could not conceal the change in my feelings. Marion felt it keenly. At last, she went away. Did the others know where she had gone? No. My son was very fond of her. She seemed wrestling with something. Then she spoke in a low voice that could scarcely be heard. He wanted to marry her. I was glad to have her go. I could not let him marry a thief. And he did not marry the other, this Elise Marshall? 
No, he became restless and went away. He took a position in a branch of the bank he worked in here. It was better pay and a better position. She looked at her appealingly. I think he was glad to go, glad to get away from the sadness and mystery of this house. She sighed, and her hands rested idle in her lap. There was no one else except Marion whom you could suspect, asked Millie. No visitor or one of the servants? Absolutely no one. The necklace was too valuable for a petty thief. Millie broke off her thread and held up the finished work. There, it is done. Would you like to put it on? Yes, I will go to my room. She took it and hesitated, and then spoke quickly. Do you suppose I might have tea brought here, on the terrace by the door? I often have it here when Mr. Mason is away. The servants would not think it queer, and then I could ask you to take a cup with me? Very well. Put on your dress and come down quickly. Something in the woman's face arrested her attention. It was as if she had been under a long strain of some kind, and were suddenly released. When she reappeared, she had tucked a scarlet flower into the folds of the black dress. She touched it lightly as Millie looked up. That is what you have done for me, she said. I put it on to thank you. She led the way to the terrace, talking happily, and arranged the cups, chatting with the seamstress as if she were a casual guest of the day. Millie, who had brought her knitting and was seated opposite her in the low wicker chair, regarded her over her needles with a quiet smile. The conversation in the sewing room had lighted up many things that had puzzled her, and the woman's attitude revealed more than the words she had spoken. Millie, recalling the conversation, gathered up the words and knit them carelessly into the flying wool as it passed through her fingers. The pattern was growing almost intricate. The woman, leaning back in her chair, watched the swift-moving needles that knit the pattern. "'What is it you are making?' she asked. Millie laid down the green knitted meshes and spread them a little on her lap, looking at them reflectively. "'I think it will be a jacket,' she said. "'Don't you know what it will be?' The woman's laugh was puzzled and happy. "'No, not exactly.' She spoke slowly. She was still spreading the meshes under her fingers. "'You see, I always have a piece of work in hand. A new piece for every case.' She looked up. "'Oh,' the woman sat up. Millie nodded. "'Yes, this is yours.' The other looked at it more closely. "'But you have made mistakes,' she said. She pointed to the scattered doubled and pearled stitches that crossed the even pattern. Millie's touch ran over them lightly. "'You do not think they spoil it, do you?' "'No.' The woman looked at them in a little perplexity. "'They make a pattern, almost,' she said wonderingly. "'Almost,' said Millie, smiling. She took up her needles again. "'You see, I cannot tell how long I shall have to work on a case.' Sometimes it is short, and then it is a jacket, and if it keeps on and grows longer, I call it a sweater. The woman's smile played with the idea. And if it is very long, I suppose it has to be a kimono, she laughed out. A knitted kimono, and suppose it is never finished, she cried. Then I put it away, said Millie, and it is nothing. The woman looked at her curiously. Did you ever have one like that, she asked softly. Yes, there is a very long one in a drawer at home. It has lain there for years. Perhaps it will never be finished. But I shake it out now and then, to be sure the moths have not got at it. She laughed, and the other's face lightened and smiled at her wistfully. I hope this one will not be shut away in a drawer, she murmured. She moved her hand to the flying needles. This one? Oh, this one will be finished soon. It will not be as short as some I have made, mere shoulder capes, some of them, hardly more than scarfs, you know. But this will be quite a presentable jacket. 
She spread it out again and looked up with an assuring smile. A laugh broke from the woman's lips. Then it held itself. She turned quickly. A shadow had fallen on the table. Her hand gripped the arm of her chair. The man had come upon them suddenly around an angle of the house. He could not have seen them till he was close upon them. For a long moment he stood staring down at his wife and at the look of happiness in her face. Then his glance traveled to the gray figure in the wicker chair and to the amber needles that had not paused in their flight. He lifted his hat courteously. I did not mean to disturb you. He turned away and entered the house by another door. Slowly the woman's hand relaxed its grip on the chair. She sank back with a sigh. Millie's needles went on with even touch. Her eyes followed the retreating figure thoughtfully. The man's gaze had seemed to her infinitely sad as it rested on them, a look of loneliness and hopeless regret. The woman's hands lay relaxed in her lap. Her eyes were half veiled, but to Millie, the glance behind the veiling lids was fixed on her intently. Mr. Mason came home early, said Millie. She glanced at the watch on her wrist. Twenty minutes to six. Yes, he must have walked across the fields from the station. It is only two miles that way. He often used to do it, before we had the car. All the animation had gone from her face. It had a tense look of being on guard, as if the sudden appearance of her husband had recalled some constant sense of danger that might withdraw for a minute, but never wholly left her. Millie looked across at her. There is one more thing I want to ask you, she said slowly. Yes? The figure in the chair stirred slightly and seemed to stiffen a little. You told me the other day, said Millie, that the amount your son borrowed from the bank was three thousand dollars. Were the emeralds worth as much as that? She leaned forward, speaking the words low. They could not have been heard beyond the other chair. The woman sat up. A swift flush spread over her face. She lifted it quickly. You must not think, she cried under her breath. I do not think, said Millie. But were they worth as much as that? Oh, more, much more, cried the woman. She covered her face for a moment. I do not know how valuable they were, she said at last in a low voice. I only know my husband said we would not come to want as long as I had my necklace. She hesitated. I shall never forget his face the morning I discovered they were gone. I had not realized till then what the jewels meant to him. They had always seemed to me like playthings to do what I liked with. You said it was he who insisted on having the detectives? Yes. You did not want them? No, oh no. She clasped her hands quickly. Why did you not want them? The question was very gentle. I was afraid. It was also bewildering. I could not be sure who was guilty. It might be... She broke off. Your own son. Her lip was trembling. Two tears were rolling down her cheek. Millie got up and put away her knitting, stabbing the needles through the ball. You must be brave. I think we shall find out who took your jewels and where they are. The woman's hand reached out. But suppose... Millie shook her head. You need not fear, whatever we discover. I am going now for a little walk, and you must rest before dinner. As she passed her, she touched her shoulder gently. Do not think of anything while you rest, except that your son is coming in the morning. End of chapter 16「
even at early daylight, while Millie went about her room dressing in leisurely fashion, sounds of activity came from the house below, and through her window came the whirring click of the lawnmower going back and forth, and a subdued murmur of voices. She went to the window and looked out. A phalanx of men in orderly rank was moving along the paths and borders, weeding and hoeing and pruning. The scissors and hose and trowels and rakes flicked in the light with a little irregular tattoo of sound, and the bent backs of the men had an intent, absorbed look. When she descended the stairs, a battle and bustle of eagerness pervaded the house. Batson was everywhere, urging and directing his forces with solicitous presence. To Millie, the house and grounds had seemed in perfect condition the day before, but out of this movement and stir of preparation, something new seemed to emerge. Even before she reached the lower hall, she felt its presence. Freshness everywhere. New muslin curtains at the great windows at either end of the upper hall. Fresh sash curtains glimpsed through open doors. And flowers in every room. The dark pool had become a rippling pond in the morning sunshine, and the little running waves glinted in the freshening breeze that blew across it. Downstairs, the doors at either end of the long hall stood open, and a little wind drew back and forth through the house. She felt it gratefully on her face as she passed into the sitting room. Through the door to the breakfast room, she caught a glimpse of Mrs. Mason standing by the sideboard, arranging a mass of crimson roses in a great silver bowl. When she saw Millie, she nodded to her almost gaily and lifted the bowl of roses for her to see. She carried them to the table and adjusted them a little and moved back to survey them fondly. She moved to the door. It's a wonderful day, she said happily. When does your son come? returned Millie. He will be here at ten. There was a telegram at ten o'clock this morning. The words were like a little singing refrain as she moved to her place at the table. From her seat, Millie could see the empty chair and Mr. Mason's paper folded beside it, and presently he came in. He was a little haggard, as if perhaps he had not slept well, but he walked with quick step. He bowed almost formally to his wife as he came toward the table and took his seat. Did you sleep well, Oswald? The questioning voice had a note of happiness, and her face turned to him with a smile. Fairly well, he said politely. He opened his paper, shutting out the face. Her lip trembled a breath. Then the light returned to her face. She prepared his coffee and filled her own cup and drank a little, with absent gaze, as if other food had nourished her, and this were only a pretense, the mere form of eating, conceded from habit. I have been thinking, Oswald. Her voice broke across his paper, and he laid it down with courteous air. She leaned forward a little, her eyes scarcely seeing him, for the vision that filled them. She was speaking rapidly. Why couldn't we all ride over this afternoon, Stephen and you and I, and take tea with Elise? I have not seen her for so long, and Stephen will like it. It is too soon, replied the man, almost curtly. He resumed his paper again. His face had a grayish look as he took it up. But Oswald, she protested, too soon? What could you mean? Such old friends. Surely we can drive over and say, how do you do to Elise the day he comes? I'm going to call her up and see if she will be home. She went swiftly toward the adjoining room to the telephone. He turned sharply. Annie, he called. Yes, Oswald? The response was absent and intent, and spoken aside from the phone. Yes, Oswald? I don't want, he began, but her voice broke across it joyously, speaking into the tube. Is that you, Elise? 
Stephen is coming this morning. Did you know? Yes, this morning. And we want to come over to tea, if you are going to be home. What is it? Yes, we are all coming. I have not seen you in an age, dear. Yes, I know. The voice grew tender and seemed to follow inaudible words with murmuring assent. I know, dear. But that is past. We are coming now. Yes. Goodbye. She returned with radiant face. She will be at home, she said. I think that was unwise, said her husband swiftly. The haggard look he turned to her was almost stern. She regarded it with puzzled eyes. But Stephen, it will please him, she cried. You do not know what will please Stephen, he said softly. Why, Oswald, Stephen! She held the name with a little beseeching hurt and tenderness. You speak as if he were a stranger to us. Perhaps he is a stranger. A year is a long time, said the man. Oh, a year! She clasped her hands tensely, gripping the misery of that year, crushing it back between them. Stephen will not have changed, she said softly. He waited a moment. He seemed to hesitate to hurt her, and the words when they came were not harsh, only a little sad. He had changed before he went away, said the man. She was looking at him with mute eyes. The brightness had gone from her face. He got up. It is time to go. I have an errand at the bank. Before he comes. He took out his watch and looked at it hastily and moved to the door. Millie saw him passing through the rooms and up the stairs, and it came to her suddenly to question whether Mr. Mason was a much older man than she had supposed. The figure going up the stairs stooped a little and moved uncertainly, as if with an effort. And in the adjoining room, the wife, with the little look of contented abstraction that had come back to her face, sipped her coffee and trifled with the toast. She seemed a young woman, twenty years younger at least, than the bent figure going up the stairs. End of chapter 17「Chapter Eighteen of the Green Jacket by Jeanette Lee This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A little hush of waiting seemed to lie upon the house. All the sounds of expectancy had died away. Outside the men had withdrawn from the paths and borders, and their voices came faintly from the kitchen garden beyond the garage. Inside, Batson's shirt-sleeved figure and red, perspiring face were no longer visible. Only through the long hall the little breeze drew back and forth, and now and then the glimpse of a black dress passed quickly through. Mrs. Mason could not remain upstairs in her room, where she went immediately after breakfast, and she could not remain on the terrace to which she came a few minutes later. She moved aimlessly toward the kitchen garden, and came back and stood by the terrace balustrade, looking off on the trees where the driveway emerged. She passed down the steps from the terrace and gathered a little handful of flowers and came back along the terrace, looking at them, and arranging them with an absent smile. A few of them fell from her fingers, unheeded, and she trod on them as she came forward. She approached the French window and looked in. "'They will be here soon,' she said. Millie looked up. "'Yes, wouldn't you better rest a little?' "'Rest!' She laughed and reached out her arms in a careless gesture. The flowers slipped through her fingers. Rest! I am resting. The road off there rests me, and the sun, and every little sound. They all say he is coming home. She stopped with a catch in her voice. Millie looked at her critically. 
She put down her work and came over to the window and stood beside her. The woman was motionless. Her eyes were fixed on the curving driveway. Millie put out a hand and touched her gently. See, you are crushing the flowers. You are spoiling them. She removed them from her fingers. Give them to me, she commanded. The woman relinquished them, looking dully at the bruised petals. Now we will get some water for them. Come. Millie drew her into the room and sent her for a vase and stood over her while she arranged the flowers and placed them in the water. She looked up with a faint smile and nodded. Thank you. I needed just that. I understand. I will be quiet now. She left the flowers on the table and got up. I am going to lie down till they come. I will be good, she said. Then the house droned in quiet again, and Millie went on with her sewing, glancing off now and then to the curving drive or across to the distant hills. A car came round the curve, and she leaned forward a little eagerly to scan the younger of the two men on the back seat. He was shorter than his father, but there was the same look of alert poise in his bearing as the car swept up the curve and paused at the foot of the steps. Almost before it had ceased running, his foot was on the step, and he had crossed the terrace and was at the foot of the stairs, holding his mother in his arms. Through the door, the seamstress saw for a moment the look that passed between the two. Then they turned, and, with his arm about her, they moved along the hall, talking in broken words. The father joined them a moment later, and they went upstairs together. There could be no doubt of the happiness in this homecoming. The woman in the sewing room had only to see their faces to be sure of that. Yet over it and through it all was a kind of constraint, something stiffened by strangeness or disuse, or something held back through fear, something that dared not trust itself to be wholly at rest. After a time she saw them out of doors, walking about the grounds. Then they passed to a tree on the other side of the terrace and sat down. She could not see the tree from the sewing room. Only the sound of voices came to her, and now and then laughter. A little unreal and hesitating, it seemed to her. But the scent of a very good cigar that drifted across to her had nothing unreal in its fragrance. After a time, the figures of the mother and son appeared on the terrace outside her window, where the shadow of the house fell across the bricks. They paced back and forth in the shade, talking quietly. Their words came to her, indistinctly at first, then a little louder, the son's voice in protest, it seemed to her. But, mother, I cannot. Let me have a little time at home first with you. But it will seem strange, Stephen, and unfriendly, the voice was pleading. We do not want to hurt Elise, she added after a minute. It will not hurt Elise, he replied firmly. Elise has always understood. The words had a secure ring. Come, mother, you must lie down and rest. I must take care of you, just as I used to. He bent over her tenderly, and she lifted her face for a kiss. Then she turned and moved blindly toward the window of the sewing room. She stepped in, facing the seamstress. Outside on the terrace, Millie could see the son lighting his cigar and placing it to his lips. The mother's face was helpless and distressed. Stephen will not go, she cried. She was vexed like a child but there was a deeper protest in the disturbed face. Millie came close to her. Let your son remain at home, Mrs. Mason, she said quietly. The woman looked at her. You too, she exclaimed. Her eyes were puzzled. I want to talk with him alone when he can feel there is no one around. This may be the best chance we shall have if you both go. The mother looked at her a little wistfully. If you say it is best, I will do it. 
I trust you. Yes, it is best, said Millie, and you will not be sorry. It is the way you can help. The mother looked at the figure pacing thoughtfully on the terrace, the smoke drifting from his cigar and floating lightly off. She gave a little apologetic smile. I cannot bear to have him out of my sight, she confided. And I feel the same, said Millie with a half smile. Oh, breathed the mother. She made a motion to the window as if to protect him. You think you will discover something, she cried softly. I think so. I hope so. The woman looked at her sharply, and her face paled a little. Then it recovered its smile, and she shook her head. You are quite wrong, she said. He is as innocent as I am. I believe it fully, said Millie. You can trust him to me. Go now and rest. End of chapter 18 Chapter 19 of The Green Jacket by Jeanette Lee. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Stephen Mason finished his cigar and tossed away the end and entered the house. A little later, Millie heard him talking with his father. The voices were relaxed and easy. The little note of constraint seemed to have vanished. Then the car appeared and they went toward the steps. The son looked back and saw the mother in the doorway and sprang to escort her to the car. There was something very winning in the air of devotion with which he led her across the terrace. Her hand on his arm seemed to rest with a little weight, and the figure bending to her was full of affectionate care. He placed her in the car and stood waiting for his father, one hand on the door of the car, the other thrust carelessly into his pocket, laughing and talking with her. Mr. Mason, who had turned back to the house for a minute, came quickly down the steps and got in. The son closed the door upon them and stood back, watching them drive away. He waved his hand to them and returned it to his pocket and watched the car out of sight. Then he turned and came slowly up the steps. On the terrace near the French windows at the side of the house, a gray figure was seated in a wicker chair, knitting busily. He scanned it with a little start of surprise. Then he crossed the terrace and stood looking off. Presently he turned and strolled toward the front of the house. The woman who was knitting looked up from her work and bowed slightly and beckoned him with a little motion of her hand. He returned the bow formally and came forward with a puzzled look, smiling a little. "'I am wondering who you are,' he said courteously. "'You look so at home sitting there with your knitting. I could almost fancy you had always been there, and I had never seen you till now.' "'An invisible lady,' she laughed. "'Oh, no, I weigh a hundred and thirty-two. I wanted to speak to you. Will you sit down, please?' He took the chair she motioned to, and the little look of bewilderment and half-amusement waited on her wishes. "'My mother did not tell me we were to have a guest in the house,' he said courteously. "'I am not a guest. I am the seamstress.' Her eyes were on the needles flying through the green wool. He surveyed her with a look of pleasure. His figure in the chair relaxed. "'I remember now. Mother did say something about a seamstress helping her. But,' he turned a little and let his glance rest on her, "'she did not tell me what you would look like.' She lifted her eyes. "'I look like a seamstress, I hope,' she returned easily. "'Well, perhaps,' he seemed to consider it. "'I've never seen many seamstresses. Perhaps.' There was a silence between them for a minute. The man was wondering about this quiet, self-contained working woman who had summoned him so unconventionally. And the woman was noting that the face opposite to her was lined and sad. The face of the youth in the picture in the library upstairs was carefree. Its openness seemed to have nothing to conceal or regret.' 
But this face opposite her held in its tense lines something a little tragic. It was the face of a man who had suffered deeply, who perhaps was suffering now under the quiet look of reserve. She turned with a little gesture of revealment. I am not a seamstress, she said quietly. No. His glance held it. I am here to help your mother. Her eyes were on his face. You know she is in trouble? He bent his head without speaking. His face was a little wondering, perhaps a little watchful. Will you explain to me how you are helping her? He asked. The reserve in his voice had deepened, but it was not unfriendly. I want to tell you. That is why I spoke to you. I want to talk to you about your mother. She came to me in my office the other day. You are not a doctor, he broke in. Or a nurse, he added doubtfully. She smiled. I might be called a mind nurse, perhaps. He stared. I help people who are in trouble. They often come to me. I am a detective. The hand on the arm of his chair gripped it suddenly. He sat looking off across the hills, the little smile on his lips regarding them slowly. Her hurrying needles purled a double stitch and another and finished the row before she looked up. I am very glad you came just now. I think you can help, more than anyone in the world, perhaps, to solve the trouble. He turned and looked at her. Yes, he said inquiringly. You are very near to your mother in spirit, I think, and you will have seen things that no one else, perhaps, would have noticed or remembered. He threw out a hand with a quick gesture. I know nothing, he said with emphasis. I wish to God I did. The last words were under his breath. You know your mother is not well? He looked away, as if he would not have her see the pain her words caused him. She is well enough to be about, he said. Well enough to go motoring. He moved restlessly. She does not say she is ill. He broke off. What is it you want of me? He asked in a low voice. He had sat up in his chair and was leaning forward, his arms resting on his knees, looking down at the brick pavement between his feet. She studied the downcast face a minute. Will you tell me everything you can remember that happened here about two years ago? Your mother has told me that the trouble, whatever it is, began at that time. If I can see things as they look to you, it may help me to understand everything. He looked at her queerly for a minute. Then a look of resolution crossed his face. All right. He said it quickly and paused as if considering where to begin. A thought touched his face and stayed with him. Why didn't my mother tell me who you are? He asked keenly. Millie smiled back to him. You may trust me. Your mother did not tell you because she has given everything into my hands. May I speak to her about it later? If you like. But I advise you not to. If you will all go on living as if I were not here, as if nothing had happened or were going to happen, I can finish my work sooner and go away. Her fingers adjusted the flying wool and shook it free. And the man's eyes followed it thoughtfully. It is hard to begin, he said, because nothing happened. We simply became unhappy. Two years ago, we were the happiest family in the world, father and mother and Marion. He turned with a swift look. You knew there was an adopted daughter, my sister? Yes, your mother spoke of her. But tell me whatever comes to you. I want to see it all through your eyes. What was she like? Marion? He seemed to hold the name a moment, as if it echoed a little sadly to him. She was beautiful, he said slowly. The most beautiful woman in the world, I think. The sadness lingered in the words. He turned to her. You know she is dead? Yes. He remained lost in thought, looking down at the brick pavement, and the sadness in his face deepened to sternness. He roused himself and shook his head impatiently. 
The strange thing is I do not know what happened, he said. We were all happy together, always planning things, never away from each other, never a thought we did not all share, and then something changed. What was it? He hesitated and went on. I think it was my mother's feeling for my adopted sister. She became almost harsh to her. My mother. He seemed to dwell on it wonderingly. My mother would not harm the smallest thing in the world, yet she suddenly became harsh with Marion, cruel almost. And there was no reason for it? The question was searching and gentle, and again he hesitated slightly. Yes, there was a reason, but it seemed incredible to me. I have never been able to believe it. I loved Marion, he said slowly, and my mother discovered it. From that moment, it seemed to me, everything changed. But why did she object? The question pressed home again, but he shook his head, and the puzzled look between his eyes deepened. I do not know. I have never been able to solve it. I only know she fought it bitterly. She had thought I would marry someone else, he said half reluctantly. Elise Marshall, where they have gone this afternoon. But I never cared for Elise, except as a jolly good friend. There has been no one but Marion for me, always. He sat looking at something irrevocable, and again the stern lines settled in his face. And there was nothing else that happened? asked Millie gently. He shook his head. Nothing, he said confidently. Absolutely nothing. Nothing about you that might have worried her? A little disconcerted look crossed his face. There was something, he admitted, but nothing that worried her. She did not know it, in fact, until it was practically over. He spoke with an ease that even to Millie's watchful sense had no note of concealment. His mind seemed running back to the events of that time, gathering them up. I'd been in debt, you know. I had to borrow a lot of money from different friends. I finally borrowed from the bank I was in. Three thousand dollars. Borrowed it? Yes. He looked at her. Did you give security? He turned as if startled that she should ask him. He hesitated. Then he laughed a little. Well, the truth is, no one knew that I had borrowed it. It was only a temporary loan. I expected to pay it back in two days. Of course, said Millie. He smiled at the dryness of her tone. You understand, he assented. I was caught. But it would have been all right if things had gone as I expected. You did not make the money, you mean. I made it, but not till long after. I knew the bank examiner was due and the money must be there. Perhaps that was what troubled your mother, she suggested. He stared at her. Mother? Oh, no. She never had a suspicion. He shook his head. She knew you were in debt? Yes, we talked about it sometimes. It was only half a joke with us. She used to try to make me promise to save and pay up and start straight. And I was always meaning to, after this one more time. He smiled ruefully. Then finally I had the chance. It was a curious thing. He seemed to recall it a little wonderingly. I found one morning in the pocket of my coat a roll of pills. Five thousand dollars. Enough to repay the bank and put everything straight. You found it? echoed Millie incredulously. People do not find five thousand dollars in their pockets, do they? I did, he said stoutly. But who put it there? Did you ever know? There was a note with it. A friend wanted me to have the money, but he did not want it to come between us. The money was mine, to pay my debts with. Did you do it? He nodded. Pretty glad to. I went to mother first. I always told her everything pleasant that came to me, and that was pretty pleasant, I thought. But I wasn't quite sure it might not be a trap of some kind, so I talked it over with her. She said to use it, and perhaps sometime I would find out who it was and could pay it back. You never have? No. Nor any idea who it was? 
Well, there is a friend I often think might have done it. Alan Sargent. We were great chums, and he knew I owed a great deal. He had a chance at the coat. It was at his tailor's being cleaned. I know he was in the shop the afternoon before it came home. I've talked with him, but he swore he knew nothing about it. He knew I hadn't the money to pay back, anyway. Perhaps now I have some, he'll own up to it. He's coming out tomorrow, I hope. The swift flying needles made a sudden little jump and click, and settled again to even rhythm. Did he know you had borrowed the three thousand from the bank? No. The tone was sober. Did anyone know? No one in the world but my father. I went to him as soon as I found I might need the money. You expected he would get it for you? He laughed shortly. I did not expect. I knew. There is no one in the world like my father, he added. His shoulders straightened a little. You didn't dread to tell him then? He shook his head proudly. There is nothing I would mind telling him. He is not like other men, he added slowly. And through Millie's mind there flashed another voice. My husband is not like other men. He is a poet. How is he different? she asked curiously. He paused, seeming to try for words, and shook his head. He looked at her. You do not know him? he asked. I have only seen him at a distance. Then you cannot know. He looks like a businessman, doesn't he? Commonplace? There is nothing striking about him, surely. And yet, when you know him, I cannot put it in words. Perhaps it will tell you better than anything I can say that when I was in trouble, I went to him. Was he angry? I have never known my father to be angry with me. He spoke slowly, as if he were thinking of it, and his voice was full of affection. He told me not to worry. He could get it for me, if worse came to worst. He could sell a block of houses. I should have the money. I felt sure I should make it speculating. Did you? Yes, but that was later. I have more than enough, now that I have no use for it, he said soberly. He seemed lost in thought, and the look of sadness returned to his face. Millie glanced at it, and then at the hand that half reached to his breast pocket and drew back. You may smoke, she said quietly. He smiled gratefully and drew the cigar from his pocket. He lighted it and sat watching the smoke drift away. What happened then, after you had the money? Nothing that I expected, he said bitterly. I had thought we should all be happy again. I had made up my mind to give up my extravagances and cut out speculating. I was going to marry Marion and settle down. I thought we should be happier than we had ever been. I seemed to see things in a clear light. All life seemed larger and things opened out. I began to notice children on the street and to think of them here in the old house, scampering through the halls and calling out when I came home. I could always see my mother with them. She worships children, he said wistfully. I got to seeing the house like that, filled with children and new life and happiness. And now, he motioned to the empty rooms behind them. He sat smoking in silence. The landscape stretched away, serene in the late sunshine, and behind them rose the gracious house, with the secret in its empty rooms. The man stirred a little and glanced at the gray figure knitting with quiet fingers. It's curious I should be telling you all this, he said consideringly. They are things I have never said, even to myself, before. I shut the door on them and locked it when I went away from home. Why did you go? asked Millie. She did not tell him that many doors that had been shut and locked on secrets had opened to her touch, and that confidences gave themselves almost as freely to her as the wool that was slipping quietly by her needles and weaving its strange little pattern in the stitches of green wool. Instead, she turned as she withdrew the amber needle from a last stitch and glanced at him. He was lost in thought. 
Why did you go away? She repeated gently. He roused himself. I was restless, afraid I would slip back into my old ways. The house was too lonely after Marion went. I got the bank to transfer me to their branch in Brockton. I told my mother it was a better opportunity. It was, but I really went because of Marion. She was never out of my thoughts. He looked down at the cigar between his fingers and knocked a bit of ash from its tip. I could not understand Mother's feeling about Marion. It was almost as if she were afraid to have me marry her, some taint in the blood. She never spoke openly, only in vague hints. We did not know what kind of people she came from, she said. We did not know what she might do some day. Did she say this to Marion? Not in words, he said quickly. But Marion knew that in some way she was standing between my mother and me. I have tried to think it was only a kind of mother jealousy, he said slowly. He raised his glance to her. Do you think a mother could be like that? Millie shook her head. Not your mother, she replied. No. He seemed to muse on it. How well you understand her. Thank you. He leaned forward. What was it, then? Why should she have been so cruel to her? Millie waited for him to go on. I thought then that I would never forgive her for what she did, he said slowly. But I have forgiven it, long since. I have learned how to forgive, I guess. The lines of suffering in his face deepened a little. She did not oppose your going? No, she did not suspect. The bank offer was a good opportunity, and I think she began to be afraid for me. I was so restless and moody. She even urged my going, and my father wanted it, too. Millie looked up. He knew. Everything, said the young man. It was he who advised me to find Marion and marry her. Your mother was hard on the child, he said to me one night when we had been sitting in his study a long time, talking. If you love her, marry her, he said. Make her happy. I shall never forget his words, nor the look in his face as he said them. There is no joy in life like that of a happy marriage, with mutual love and trust, and no hell on earth like a marriage without it. He said it with such intense bitterness that I was startled. I left home a few days later and joined Marion. She was my wife for nearly a year before she died. He glanced about him and off to the distant hills and moved his shoulders a little, as if a burden rested on them. I cannot tell you how strange it seems to be here, just as when I was a boy, alone with my father and mother, and that year of happiness between, it almost seems like a dream to me. It was dreamlike in its perfect happiness and in its awakening, he added under his breath. There was not a shadow on it except Marion's longing to be friends with my mother, and even that came just before she died. He glanced at her. Yes, your mother told me, and how happy it made her. Marion was devoted to her. She would never let me be depressed about the trouble. She said it would all come right some day. She was always saying, You will be with them again, and happier than you have ever been. Even when she was dying, she said it, and she made me promise to come home soon. So I am here. He looked about him a little wearily. But she is not here. She will never be here again. Are you sure? said Millie gently. He tossed away his cigar a little impatiently. Oh, I have thought and wondered till I am not sure of anything, he cried. We burn out and are tossed aside. He motioned to the bit of cigar smoldering at the edge of the bricks. He reached into his pocket for another and cut the end with a grim look on his lips. Yet even I have felt her presence in the house, returned Millie. He looked at her under his lowered brows, and the hand that was lighting the cigar trembled a little. My mother said something like that this morning. He threw away the match. Perhaps it is true. I would give a great deal to believe it. 
and yet you, who never saw her, are the one. He stared at it, and put his cigar to his lips, and blew away a cloud of smoke. I cannot believe it, he said. There was a faint burring sound in the distance. He bent his head to listen, and looked toward the drive. They are coming. He got up. Millie reached a quick hand to him. I must see you again, she said swiftly. What you have told me is very important. Will you make an excuse to see me again, as soon as you can, when your father is not here? He glanced at her keenly and nodded. Then he turned and moved toward the steps and stood smoking and looking off at the approaching car. As it drew near, he ran down the steps and opened the door. He came up the steps between the two, laughing and talking gaily. In the open sunshine, the great house before them, the car driving rapidly away, vines and flowers all about, the little group made a pretty picture. No one could have fancied that a shadow rested on them, or on the house, as they passed within the gracious doorway, open to receive them. After dinner, they all sat on the terrace for a while, the father and son smoking, the mother resting back in her chair and looking at them contentedly. Presently, she left them and went into the house. Millie saw her enter the doorway and hesitate a moment, and then go slowly up the stairs. In the half-dusk of the sewing-room, she sat listening to the voices of the two men. She could not hear the words, but the voices had a friendly, relaxed sound, and there were long spaces of companionable silence. She watched the stars come out above the two figures, and the ends of the cigars gleam in little points of light through the dusk. She did not light the gas in the sewing-room, but sat knitting and waiting, on the chance that the sun would make an opportunity to come to her. Upstairs she could hear Margaret's footsteps going through the hall and her wheezy voice, and then at last Mrs. Mason's voice bidding her good night, and the house settled to silence. Outside the two cigars still gleamed faintly, and the terrace was wrapped in darkness. Only along the sky to the east an even light spread itself. The moon would be rising soon. Millie rolled up her knitting and put it away. She was tired. A night's rest was imperative if she was to be ready for her work tomorrow. She wanted to take these things that Stephen Mason had told her and carry them into the world of sleep. She would not dream of them, but somewhere in the night she knew they would arrange themselves in orderly sequence, and when she woke, something would lie ready to her hand. Almost, even now, she could reach out and touch it, but each time something shifted beneath her fingers and escaped her. She would go to bed. She put her work into its bag and gave another glance at the two figures on the terrace and went upstairs. The long hall seemed very light as she came out of the dimness of the sewing room, and at the top of the stairs she saw a bright light in Mrs. Mason's room. The door stood open to the hall. The next minute, as if her step had been hearkened for, Mrs. Mason appeared in the doorway. She stepped quickly into the hall, and Millie moved toward her. The face questioned her as she came toward it, and a gesture of the hands reached out to her. "'Did you have your talk with Stephen?' she breathed. "'Yes, a good talk.' "'Did he tell you anything?' "'A great deal.' The woman seemed almost to withdraw a step. "'What was it?' she asked. "'He gave me a clue, almost the first thing I have felt sure of.' Millie paused a moment. "'I think we are very close to discovering who took your emeralds.' "'Oh!' She seemed to shrink from her. Her lifted eyes gave a swift, questioning look. Then she passed into her room and closed the door. In that moment's look, her face had gone white, but beneath it was a look of trust, a trust that gave itself and everything it held into the unquestioned care of the woman before her. End of chapter 19
Chapter 20 of The Green Jacket by Jeanette Lee. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Millie slept soundly with a sense of deep refreshment, but suddenly she found herself awake, the moonlight streaming into the room. She got up and went to the window. The whole landscape lay in the softened light, like some other world. The terrace was vacant, only the two chairs where the smokers had sat stood near together in friendly relation. There was no sign of life in the world. The very flowers on the terrace seemed asleep. She looked at her watch on the table. Five minutes to two. For a minute longer she stood looking out on the magic night. Its quietness soothed her spirit. The burden she had undertaken to lift seemed lighter, and her thought, traveling swiftly to the three people who were sleeping in the quiet house below, dwelt on them with a little feeling almost of tenderness. They seemed to her so helpless, caught in a tangle that only her patient skill could release, and they trusted her. The mood that was on her was at once a triumph and a scourge to her spirit. She knew that she would accomplish her purpose for them. Already she saw the happiness that was coming to the three who lay asleep. But she saw, too, the effort that must be made, and she felt the gathering concentration of her whole being that must lose itself for a time in these other lives, become part of the mystery it sought to solve, almost of the bone and tissue of these three people, of whose existence, a week ago, she had known nothing. No poet brooding on his lines was ever smitten with fiercer fire or shrank with keener sensitiveness from the final effort of concentration, the final uniting of himself with the mysterious forces of life, than this woman whose work lay in the shadowland of crime. Only by the intuition that guides all creative life and work did she know she was coming close to a moment when she must yield herself, and at the same time must guide with steady hand forces more powerful than herself to a successful issue. She did not say these things to herself. She did not think them. She only stood in the moonlight, looking down at the quiet world and steadying herself to it. Something that was not sound or breath passed swiftly across her vision, and her gaze rested on the brick pavement below. A block of light, faint, but deeper than moonlight, lay there. She glanced along the windows of the floor beneath. It was as she had guessed. The library window was lighted, and the curtains were not drawn. She threw on a wrapper and went swiftly down the stairs, her feet noiseless in the soft slippers she wore. The wide hall lay in the moonlight, no sign of life, and the library door was closed. She moved to it without sound and stood listening. The thick doors gave no hint of what was happening in the room behind them. She retraced her steps quickly to her room. She would dress and go down outside. Perhaps from a distance she could determine what was happening in the room with its deadened walls. She entered her room and crossed to the window and looked out and turned away. The block of light was gone from the pavement. Whoever was in the library had drawn the curtains together or had turned off the light. The door had not been opened. Of that she felt sure. However quietly it might have been done, her ear would have caught the sound. She left her door ajar and lay down on the outside of the bed in her wrapper and slippers. When the library door opened, she would see, from the turning of the landing, who it was that had called her from her sleep. And when she opened her eyes, the sun was shining full into the room and resting on the bed. She got up, blinking a little, censoring herself for having fallen asleep. Signs of life were astir below. She went to the window and looked out into a daylight world. No mystery, no subtle sense of solution almost at hand. Clear, shining daylight, with the sun well up in the sky. A step sounded on the pavement below. She looked down, drawing the curtain with its thin folds across the window. 
On the terrace, the son of the house, his hands in his pockets, stood whistling softly, almost happily, it seemed to her, and looking off on the landscape. She dressed hastily and hurried down. In the adjoining room, the family were already at breakfast. Through the closed door, she could hear faint sounds. Presently, the door opened. Mrs. Mason stood in it. She stepped into the room. "'I have to go away,' she said with a little vexation. "'I told Elise Marshall I would help with the Red Cross work, "'and she has telephoned that they want me this morning. "'I did not mean to be away today. "'Shall you need me?' "'No, I have plenty of work to do.' "'She said it without emphasis, "'but the woman started and looked at her almost suspiciously. "'Millie waited while the eyes searched her face. "'Are you satisfied?' she asked, smiling. "'The woman bent her head. "'Yes, I know everything will be right.' "'But I am anxious. I cannot help it. "'I had a dream in the night.' "'She spoke in a low, hurried voice. "'I dreamed we found the emeralds.' "'We shall find them,' said Millie. "'Yes.' "'She checked herself swiftly. "'Through the door they could hear the two men talking casually. "'Millie nodded with a little gesture to the door and raised her voice. "'I have plenty of work, Mrs. Mason, "'and if it gives out, I will work on the green jacket. "'I want to finish it before I go.' The woman smiled wistfully and turned away. She paused a moment by her son's chair as she passed through the adjoining room. She put her hand on his shoulder. "'I am sorry to be away,' she said. He jumped up and accompanied her to the door and opened it for her to pass through. She looked up at him hopefully. "'You could drive me over and say, "'How do you do to Elise?' if you liked.' He shook his head. "'Not this morning, mother. I have something to do that can't be put off. Tell Elise I sent all sorts of messages, won't you?' She smiled at him, and her hand touched his sleeve, almost protectingly, it seemed. "'I'll tell her, yes. Perhaps I will bring her back with me to luncheon.' "'Good, that will be fine.' He bent and kissed her, and returned to his place at the table. His father, who had just finished, and was on his feet, looked at him, smiling. "'I am sorry to leave you, but Jackson has just sent word from the garden. Some more of his blunders, I suppose. I had hoped we could walk to the links by and by. But you're going to be busy, you say?' The little moment of hesitation in the son's manner gave way to quick response. "'It will not take long, I hope. I'll try to be ready, sir.' He waited till his father's step had died away. Then he stepped quickly to the half-open door. "'You wanted me to see you,' he said. "'But my father—' "'I know,' responded Millie. "'And I shall not keep you long. I only wanted to ask you whether anything in your wife's manner ever gave you reason to suppose she knew why your mother had changed toward her.' He shook his head. "'She could not have known.' "'Or she would have told me. We talked of it freely.' "'Did you send for your mother to come to her when she was ill?' "'No, it was Marion who sent. She had the nurse write. "'As soon as she knew.' He stood staring before him. "'They did not tell me, till the very last. I suppose she was getting well up to the day she died. She would not let them tell me.' He spoke in a low voice. Millie got up and stood beside him. "'Why did you send for her?' she asked. He looked at her, startled by something in her manner. "'Why, to be friends again,' he said. "'She loved her dearly. She wanted to be reconciled to her.' "'There was no other reason?' His forehead knit a little. "'There might have been, of course. She only told me she had sent for Mother, and she must see her alone. I went away. When I came back, she told me everything was just as it used to be between them. Then she made me promise to come home.' He had turned a little and was looking off to the hills as if beyond them lay something his vision could not penetrate. "'You know she wrote a letter to your mother?' He bowed. "'I mailed it myself after she died.' "'Did you know what was in it?' "'No.' 
She took a copy of the letter from her dress and handed it to him. As he read it, she saw the tears in his eyes. He brushed them away. She did not think of herself, even then, he said. What was it she would not tell? His face was thoughtful. Can you imagine, he broke out, why she would not tell, whatever it was? She pointed to the note. She was under a pledge. But who? What? He started and turned. His father was in the French window. He regarded the young man for a moment. Did you want me, father? I always want you, Stephen, said the man gently, with a smile. He stepped quickly to his father's side. I am ready, sir. He slipped a hand through his arm affectionately, and side by side the father and son walked away. End of chapter 20「Chapter 21 of The Green Jacket » by Jeanette Lee. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. When Mrs. Mason returned a little before luncheon, she was accompanied by a young girl who seemed to be very much at home and very happy in the place. As she stepped from the car, she glanced about her with a wanted look, and on the steps of the terrace she stopped to gather a rose from beside the steps. She held it in her hand as they came toward the house. In the hallway, Millie saw her turn toward the room on the left, as if she were accustomed to the house, and Mrs. Mason, with a word and a little smile to her, passed directly up the stairs. A little later, Stephen Mason came quickly down and entered the room on the left. There was a sound of laughing greeting, with murmured words, and a little later, their low voices in earnest conversation. Millie laid aside her work and went into the hall and toward the rooms at the back of the house. She had not been in this part of the house before, and she opened doors at random. Through one she saw Batson's shirt-sleeves engaged on some intent task, and through another Katie filling a tray with glasses and silver. At the farther door, which proved to be the kitchen, the cook, engrossed in the last details of luncheon, gave her only a hurried glance and returned to her stove. Millie passed her, so close that she could have reached out her hand and touched her. But Ellen Batson, who had never seen the detective who had made a woman of her Sadie, saw only the gray sewing-woman and resented, a little impatiently, the invasion of her kitchen. In the pantry beyond the kitchen, Millie found Margaret putting the last touches to a dessert, her stout shoulders and broad hips filling most of the available space between the shelves and shutting out the light from the window. She gave an absent, preoccupied glance over her shoulder at Millie's step. Her face lighted. "'In just a minute, Miss Brigham,' she said. She slid the dessert carefully to a plate before her and placed it on the shelf at the right. "'Now I'm through.' She dusted a little flour from her fat fingers and came out, closing the door carefully behind her and following Millie through the kitchen to the outer hall. "'I've left it on the shelf to the right,' she remarked as she passed the cook. Ellen's grunt of response was curt, almost inaudible. Margaret closed the door and stood facing Millie in the narrow passage. "'Was there something you wanted, Miss Brigham? I'm through now.' She puffed a little, as if the steam of concentration generated by desserts changed slowly to the relaxed breathing of common things. She looked at Millie with approval. To no one had the change in her mistress seemed more apparent than to Margaret, and Margaret was in a position to know who was responsible for the look of relieved and quiet happiness that was coming back to her face. "'I was just going up to Miss Annie when I had finished,' she explained. "'But I can wait if you want something.' "'No, I only wanted her to come to the sewing-room a minute or two before she goes to luncheon. "'Will you tell her? Only a minute.' "'The woman nodded. "'I'll hurry and see if she wants any help.' "'And her broad figure got itself under way. "'Millie watched it going down the hall, almost floating as it receded on its way, "'with a sheer momentum of weight. 
She returned to the sewing room, gathering up her work, and put it one side. The sound of the Chinese gong came before she had finished, and almost at once Mrs. Mason's hurried step was at the door. "'Margaret told me. I have only a minute.' She was flushed and anxious. "'It was Miss Marshall who came with you, wasn't it?' "'Elise, yes.' A happy look came to her face. "'She has come to luncheon, and to spend the afternoon.' Millie nodded. "'I want a chance to see her. Not for long. Just to see her. Can you arrange it?' The little light left the woman's face, and she drew back a step. But Millie put out a hand. "'No, you must not distrust or fear anything. I only want to see this young woman when she does not know she is being observed. Only a few minutes, and if possible, with your son. Could you have tea served out here on the terrace, where we had it the other day? Then, sitting here with my work, I can easily see you all.' Mrs. Mason assented with a quick smile. "'I shall ask you to come out and join us,' she said. "'Very well. That will be better yet.' Her companion nodded. "'It will be almost like old times,' she said softly. "'A party on the terrace, and there will be another guest, a friend of Stevens who is coming out from town, a Mr. Sargent, Alan Sargent.' She did not see the little start of surprise the other gave at the name. She was absorbed in her own emotion and thought and was moving toward her impulsively, her hands outstretched. "'I cannot tell you what your being here does for me,' she said quickly. "'Even if we never find anything, even if we never know, you have helped me.' "'Oh, but we shall know,' said Millie confidently. "'Every hour that I am here I feel more sure of it, and more thankful that I came to you. We shall let a flood of light in on this house.' The woman turned away. "'I must hurry,' she said. The voices had come into the front hall, and Millie, returning to her seat at the table, saw Mr. Mason descending the stair. He took the young girl's hand in his and bent above it, with an air of almost courtly devotion. He placed it in his arm playfully, as if the little attention were a form of comradeship, and led her toward the dining-room. Millie saw the mother join the son, and they passed out of sight in the wake of the others. When she had finished luncheon, she went up to her room for a little rest. She must make herself presentable if she were to be asked to join the party on the terrace. She had no other gown except the grey one she was wearing, but when she had rearranged her hair and tucked a bit of white mull into the open neck of the grey gown, she had a sense, as she turned away from the mirror, that there was something almost festive about her. It might be the little touch of colour in her cheeks. She turned again doubtfully to the mirror and surveyed the colour, and brushed the powder puff across it, and drew her hair into more discreet lines, and nodded to the grey figure. She had subdued everything except a little light in the eyes, whose clear fire seemed to shine from some hidden source within the greyness. When she reached the sewing-room, the others were already assembled on the terrace by her window, laughing and talking, and Batson, moving with discreet, happy steps about the table, was arranging the kettle to his mistress's hand, and giving a last sharp scrutiny to the wick. He adjusted the windshield to guard the flame, and withdrew on important feet. The party about the table gathered closer, talking gaily, and helping each other with the familiar happiness of friends who have been long separated. If any memory of the girl who had once been the merriest of the party came to them, no sign of it touched the laughing group. Each one gave without stint, and if the giving urged itself a little beyond the note of spontaneous happiness, for the sake of the rest, perhaps no one but the quiet woman in the room beyond the open window noted or felt it. The hostess glanced about her with contented, happy look. "'Is everyone served?' she asked. She beckoned to her son. 
Ask Miss Brigham to come out, she said in a low voice, glancing at the open window nearby. It is very lonely for her here. He moved toward the window, and she turned the lowered voice to the young man sitting beside her. I have a delightful seamstress, she said. It is a shame to keep her shut up in there. Such a beautiful day. The gray figure had appeared in the window, and the young man whose head was bent carelessly to his hostess's murmured words looked up and sprang to his feet with a little exclamation of pleasure. He came toward her with outstretched hand. Why, Miss Brigham, she finished quietly, nodding with a little smile. You did not expect to meet Miss Brigham here, did you? I certainly did not, he said slowly. The look of stupefaction in his face gave way. But I'm mighty glad to see you. He led her to a chair that stood a little apart from the others and made her comfortable, looking still slightly dazed and uncertain, but with a beaming face. So you know Miss Brigham, said his hostess, with a quick look at him, as he returned to take the cup of tea she poured. Her voice had a questioning note under its quiet composure, but her smile was undisturbed. She glanced up at him. I did not suppose anyone here would know her, she said. He took the cup from her, smiling. I ought to know her, he said with a boyish laugh. I've been seeing her at least once a week, for over a year now. There was almost a ring of challenge in the laughing words, and Millie accepted it with a quiet smile. Yes, Mr. Sargent and I are old friends, she said, taking the cup of tea he handed her. He returned to his hostess's side, and Millie passed out of the focus of attention. Her eyes followed the laughing group with friendly interest. They had given her the moment's courteous welcome and turned again to each other and their mutual affairs, oblivious to the gray presence that reached out and surrounded them, little guessing that they were living more vividly in its searching consciousness than they had ever lived in their own experience. The seamstress finished her tea and set down the cup and drew her knitting from its bag and passed into complete obscurity. Only now and then she lifted her glance to the young girl, who sat a little distance from her, leaning back in her chair and talking with Stephen Mason. To her surprise, the girl was not frivolous or petty. There was a poise about her that Millie had not been prepared for, and when Stephen Mason moved to the table and the girl's eyes followed him a minute, a sudden flash of understanding came to the seamstress over her needles. The girl was not only in love with him, that had been obvious to her from the first, but she was infinitely sorry for the man whom her eyes followed with a look of deep pity. The girl knew everything. Millie's needles passed with swift stitches through the green wool, drawing it up, transforming it into shape and comeliness. Almost of themselves, the needles were weaving for her a story that stretched away to the future for the man and girl. With his mother's cordial aid and the look in the girl's eyes, one did not need to guess what time would bring to Stephen Mason. She drew out her needle a little impatiently and readjusted it with almost regretful touch. Suppose the search were to lead her. She thrust it back and looked up. Alan Sargent had detached himself from his hostess and was standing in front of her, looking down with a little admiration and amusement. May I get you another cup of tea? he asked, motioning to the empty cup on the stand beside her. Yes, please. He brought it and she sent him for a plate of cakes and when she had taken one with a word of thanks, he stood balancing the plate a little awkwardly and looking down at her whimsically. "'How long are you going to be here?' he asked. Her hand touched the knitting in her lap. "'Till I finish this.' The words carried a little smile, and he recognized her meaning with a start. He gave a quick glance from the knitting to her face, 
and then to the group near the table. A little low whistle broke from his lips, so low that it might have been only fancy that the lips shaped it, before they returned to the whimsical smile. Alan Sargent was himself the proud possessor of a sweater, made of heavy wool, dark gray in color, and man's size. It had been presented to him on the day of its completion, the day he made his first visit to Millie's office, nearly a year ago. He regarded the green jacket respectfully, and turned and glanced again at the happy group about the table. "'Is it nearly done?' he asked soberly. "'You never can tell,' replied Millie. "'I hope so.' He set the plate of cakes on a little table at hand, and thrust his hands into his pockets, and stared down at her, and glanced almost imperceptibly at Stephen Mason, who was chatting with the girl beside him, a carefree look in his face. He glanced back to the gray figure drinking its tea. "'Who is going to have it when it is done?' he asked. She handed him her cup and took up the work from her lap. She lifted her eye and ran it over the group about the table, the young man and the girl chatting happily, the woman leaning back in her chair and looking at them with rested eyes, and the tall, distinguished man who had risen from his place and was speaking to her as he turned away. Millie's eyes returned to the needles. "'I think I shall keep it myself,' she said quietly. "'That means you will fail,' said the man. He gave a quick look at her. "'No, I shall not fail.' Her eye was on the older man, who was stopping for a minute to speak to Elise. "'I shall not fail, but I think I shall keep the jacket for myself.' "'Aren't you neglecting Miss Marshall?' she inquired politely. He smiled with a nod of assent, and reached for the plate of cakes. He was used to being managed by Millie. The older man had left the others as Sergeant crossed to them, and was approaching the seamstress with a glance of kindly regard. "'You are always busy,' he motioned to the work in her hands. "'I have to be,' she said with a little smile. "'A woman's work is never done, you know.' She was having a moment of quick satisfaction in the approach of this man. She had almost fancied he resented her presence in the house, and surely in this friendly group. But nothing could have been kinder than the glance he bent on her, and the gray eyes smiled at her without pretense, only with sadness far back in them, it seemed to her, that did not change. He took the chair beside her, and they sat a moment in companionable silence. He glanced at her. "'I want to thank you for what you have done for my wife.' he said courteously. I have not seen her so happy in a long time. He looked across to his wife as he spoke. She was sitting, looking down at the hands in her lap, a little smile on her lips, and there was something singularly beautiful in the smile and in the downcast face with its almost angular outline. You have done her a world of good, he said in a low voice. She was almost startled at the intensity of the tone and its friendliness. Mrs. Mason is glad to have her son at home, she responded quickly. It is more than that, he rejoined. There was a puzzled note in the words. He seemed to dismiss it with a little sigh, and glanced again at her work. When you are not sewing, you knit, and when you are not knitting, you sew, he said lightly. Yes, the needles went quietly on. Have you always been a seamstress? he asked after a minute. That depends on what you mean by always, she parried. I learned the trade when I was eighteen. "'Not so long ago,' he returned politely. Fourteen years,' she replied. He sat a few minutes longer chatting with her, and then, with a word to his wife, he excused himself from the group, only turning back at the door to speak again to the young girl by the table. "'We'll drive you home, Elise, when you are ready. We will all go.' He made a little gesture that included the group, and looked at them inquiringly. "'That will be pleasant, yes.' 
and just back in time for dinner. You will stay, Alan? He glanced toward the young man, who took out his watch with an inquiring glance, and replaced it almost impatiently, it seemed. Thank you. I will see. His voice hesitated. His glance had rested for a flitting moment on the gray figure absorbed in its work. Mr. Mason nodded cordially. Better stay, he urged. He entered the house, and the two young men resumed their talk with the girl. Millie, watching the by-play with absorbed, inattentive eyes over the mazes of her knitting, was making sure of two things. The girl was not vain. She had no overweening vanity that would lead her to covet the possessions of others, not even beautiful jewels. She was plainly dressed with a quiet charm that seemed the note of her personality. No, she was not vain, and she was not a flirt. She played off the attention of the two men with a grace of social attractiveness, but with no trace of coquetry. She got up after a few minutes and came over to her hostess, and bent to her with a little smile of affection. "'I really must go,' she said. "'I've had a wonderful day.' The woman reached up a hand and touched the cheek that was near her own, almost wistfully. "'Thank you, dear. We will go with you,' Mr. Mason said. "'Come and get your things.' A little later, Millie saw them cross the terrace to the car that waited below. The girl, glancing at the solitary figure, detached herself from the group and came to her and held out her hand in a pretty gesture that had neither affectation nor condescension in its kindness. "'Goodbye,' she said. "'I am sorry I did not see more of you.' Then she hurried after the others, and Millie saw Alan Sargent, who had waited to place her in the car, close the door upon them. He stood shaking his head and smiling at objections from within the car as it started slowly off. He turned and came quickly up the steps and crossed to her side. The car was out of sight. "'Well,' he said. "'Very well,' she responded. "'Don't fence,' he replied quickly. "'What is it? Who is it? Why are you here?' "'Sit down,' said Millie. She pointed to a chair. He drew it up reluctantly. "'I'm glad you stayed,' she said. He laughed shortly. "'Nothing could have dragged me away. You could not have pried me off. Is something wrong with Stephen?' he asked quickly. She looked down at the green jacket and then up at the questioner. "'I don't think you have quite the right to ask that, have you?' "'These people are my friends. Stephen Mason is the best friend I have in the world.' "'And I am his friend, too, I hope, and yours.' "'Mine,' he said swiftly. "'You are more than a friend to me, Millie.' She gave him a startled glance and held up her work, warding something off, but he would not be stopped. He was speaking swiftly. "'I told you I was coming to see you, to ask you something, didn't I? I cannot wait. Will you marry me? I love you.' The words swept at her with a rush, but the knitting went quietly on. Her head was bent to it, and the eyes were on the swift stitches. "'Will you?' he urged. "'I can't get along without you, Millie. I found that out when you told me it was the last time.' He bent toward her. The head above the stitches shook itself gently. "'You are all wrong,' said Millie. She drew out the needle and held it, and looked up at him. "'You think so, because you see me here with other people now. But you would be sorry.' He looked at her intently. "'Why do you say that?' She still held the needle and regarded him reflectively, her eyes full of the friendliest, kindest feeling. He leaned forward. "'You do love me,' he said swiftly. "'Not in the least,' she replied promptly. "'Not in the way you mean.' "'But you're fond of me?' "'Very.' She said it incisively, with a little laugh. "'Then why?' A look came to his face. "'Is there someone else?' He wheeled on her, searching the look in her face. She inserted the needles and bent to them. The slightest possible flush came to her face and receded swiftly. 
He watched it with a jealous eye. Is it Stephen? he said incredulously. Stephen Mason? She laughed out. Don't be foolish, Mr. Sargent. Alan, he corrected. Alan, she assented easily. There's nothing foolish about marrying Stephen Mason, he recurred. He's a fine fellow. You trust him, do you? She lifted a quiet glance, and something keen waited behind the questioning look. Trust him? I trust Stephen Mason sooner than I trust myself. A look of relief crossed the waiting glance. I hoped you would say that. So you are thinking. I'm thinking of nothing that you are thinking of, she said decisively. She gave a swift glance. Have I given you good advice this last year or so? You have saved me, body and soul, and such as it is, I am offering it to you. Will you take it? There was a little humorous smile in the face that turned to her, and she surveyed him with quiet eyes, the strong, eager face with the little smile on it, the vigorous figure and well-fitting clothes, and she shook her head. I only ask that because I want you to understand that what I am going to say is true. She surveyed him again. You are too good for me, she said softly. He sat up swiftly. I say. She held up a hand. The knitting had dropped to her lap. I'm trying to be quite honest with you, Alan, because we have always been honest with each other. He nodded in quick assent. You do not need a woman like me. After what you have done for me? Wait, that was my part. But when you marry, it will be some less tyrannical person. He smiled, watching her gray softness. Someone who will look up to you and worship you. That sounds fine. His shoulders straightened with a humorous shrug. She nodded. You are going to be strong, a leader among men. You will not slip again. He was watching her curiously. And the strange thing, said Millie thoughtfully, is that you will be hard on all wrongdoers. The curious look in his face deepened, as if searching itself. You will be hard on your sons, she went on softly, if they are the least bit wild. You will want to save them from what you have been through. You will never quite understand. She looked at him thoughtfully again. You will never quite understand that whom the Lord loveth, he lets slip. She smiled a little to his quick look. You will be everything that is strong and good, and I want you for a friend always, but not for a husband. She held out her hand with a gentle laugh. He took it slowly. You're a brick, Millie. And you mustn't marry a brick, she responded. The curious look in his eyes still regarded her. So you want to marry someone who isn't as good as I am, he said a little cynically. Who is not as strong, corrected Millie. Someone that blunders, she hesitated, and who needs me and doesn't know it, perhaps. Well, he got up slowly. It will not be hard to find a man like that. The woods are full of them. He looked down at her quickly. I won't pretend to say I'm broken-hearted. I admire you more than any woman I've ever known. So much, he laughed shortly, that when you tell me it is not wise to marry you, I believe you. He held out his hand. Goodbye. She took it and held it, as a man might. It is goodbye for today. I shall see you in town. He nodded and turned away. You won't get rid of me merely by refusing to marry me. Have you called a cab? She was practical and friendly. I'm going to walk. I often walk over to catch the 610. He lifted his hat and turned away. And Millie, her knitting in her lap and her hands folded on it, watched the strong, well-knit figure striding swiftly across the fields, receding in the distance till it became a mere speck and vanished. And she knew that part of her own life went with it, a power that she had given freely when it was needed, a power she would give again and again to her chosen work when it called her.
End of chapter 21
and drew it forth from its hidden place. The detective reached back a hand and drew to the outer door softly, turning the key noiselessly in its lock and dropping it into her pocket. Then she pushed open the inner door without sound and stepped into the room and crossed to the figure that bent forward, caressing the jewels with intent look. The back of his chair was toward her, and as she came up, she laid one hand on it lightly and touched his shoulder. The figure remained for a single moment immovable. Then it turned. The necklace slipped with a clatter to the floor, and his startled glance raised itself to the bending face. It changed to relief. Oh, it is you. He looked quickly toward the door. I did not lock it, he said incredulously. No. Her voice was very quiet. She moved to the chair on the opposite side of the hearth. Something in the movement seemed to reassure him, and he bent to the necklace and picked it up and laid it on the table between them, as if it were a trifle of no interest. She did not look at it. His fingers, almost of themselves, stole out along the surface of the table and regained the necklace, and he sank back in his chair with a slight sigh. "'I am glad you have come,' he said quietly. He was silent a minute, looking broodingly into the fire. "'I do not know why you came, but now you are here, I think I should like to talk with you a little.' "'Yes, I saw your open door. I thought someone was in trouble, perhaps Mrs. Mason.' His face lighted a little. "'You have done something for her I cannot understand. I told you how you have helped her.' His eyes lifted themselves and studied her face. "'There is something restful about you,' he said softly. "'I could trust your face.' I need someone to trust. Yes, you can trust me. I shall never tell anyone whatever you may care to tell me. He turned the necklace slowly. This is all wrought in with what I want to tell you. He held it up. Her eyes sought the stones as if for the first time. It is a very beautiful thing, she said wonderingly. Yes. The word was a breath of sigh. He held it toward her. Have you ever seen more beautiful work than that? She took it in slow fingers and turned it in the light of the fire, and looked at it reflectively, and handed it back to him. He took it with quick fingers, almost as if to protect or to conceal it. She used to wear it, he said. I gave it to her, long ago. He was silent a moment. I am in great trouble and perplexity about her, he said softly, and there is no one I can tell. The words came slowly, as if they hurt him. Could you not tell your son? He shook his head. "'Not Stephen,' he said quickly. He looked at her again. "'But I have thought. I have watched you with my wife. She likes to have you in the house. You are doing her good. I have not seen her so happy for a long time. She is almost her old self.' "'I should not call Mrs. Mason a happy woman,' said Millie thoughtfully. "'No, but happier, far happier. She seems to be more rested, more at peace.' "'She is glad to have her son at home,' responded Millie. Yes. He turned the necklace absently, and his eyes resting on it seemed to follow his thought. It was Stephen's leaving home that hurt her so. She loves the boy devotedly. I have seen that. Why did he go? It is a long story. If I tell it to you, you may see nothing in it. He looked at her musingly. But you are a woman. A woman may understand what I have been helpless to solve. He touched the necklace softly. When I gave this to her, I was the happiest man on God's earth. "'My husband is a poet,' came softly to Millie's ear. "'He is not like other men.' "'I worshipped her. "'There was nothing I would not have done for her, or given her. 
I brought it home one night and found her here by the fire, holding the child, and when I gave it to her, I vowed that I would make her happy always. She should have no care that I could keep from her. We would travel everywhere. She should have the best the world could give. She and I and the child. The eyes, set deep in the careworn face, looked out at her with mysterious flaming glance. It seemed to me a wonderful thing had been given into my hands, the happiness of a beautiful nature. His hands were gripping the necklace a little. He held it up. This necklace I clasped about her throat was not more beautiful. They were mine to guard and keep safe. The two were somehow linked in my mind. He looked at her questioningly. Can you understand how I might come to think of it, of the necklace like that? It was not merely an ornament I had bought for her. It was her happiness and her beauty that nothing must harm. Can you understand that I could feel like that about a chain of jewels? Perfectly, said Millie. She must have been very beautiful. Ah, and I said she should never change, he said fiercely. And you have seen her. The mockery in the words touched her face. The necklace is not changed, she said gently. Perhaps... Wait. He held up a hand. Wait till I tell you the whole. You shall hear the whole first, before you judge. But she is still beautiful, said Millie quickly. As I know her better, I am coming to think she is the most beautiful woman I have ever seen, though I did not think so at first. I thought her plain, and there was something infinitely sad in her face. But now it seems to me rarely beautiful. He looked at her gratefully. You see it too, he said. I thank God that you say that to me. I have not seen it for a long time. The deep glowing eyes looked into space, beyond her, beyond the room, back through time. Yet for years, her beauty was the only thing in the world to me. Wherever we went, people turned to look at her, and I would think, mine, mine. I was like a miser with his gold, only I wanted the world to see my gold, and to know it was mine. He sank back in his chair, as if watching the illusion, as if its very evanescence were precious to him. I did not dream then that anything could ever touch the security of my pride in her, that utter possession of her soul that knew her mine. His voice sank to a low note. He roused himself. I do not need to go over it, the happiness we lived, her beauty, and her sweetness. It is all bound up in this. It all comes back to this at last. He shook the necklace lightly in his hand, and the stones shimmered in his trembling touch. Until two years ago, there was not a cloud in our life. Then one day, my son came to me, telling me he was in difficulties. He paused as if thinking swiftly. I do not need to tell you what the trouble was. It was nothing vitally wrong. He glanced at her hurriedly, though you might think so. He told me he was in debt and might need money, three thousand dollars. Of course, I promised it to him. I did not happen to have it in hand, nor any collateral I wanted to tie up. I would have to sell something, and I planned to let a parcel of real estate go. But it was rising in value, and I ran over everything available, and the idea of the necklace flashed to me. My wife had not worn it for months. She would not miss it. I made up my mind to use the stones for collateral, but I hesitated for a day or two. The necklace had a special meaning for us. Then Stephen came the next day and said he must have the money at once, and I decided what to do. He looked down at the necklace, handling it softly, passing it through his fingers with a wistful look. I could not bear to tell my wife, and at last I decided to have false stones substituted. She need never know. I should replace them soon. The stones would be as safe in McAndrew's hands as in her jewel box, and I could have them reset when the emergency was passed. I fancied I could do it perfectly. I could deceive her. 
He smiled wanly. She always wore the key on a little chain on her neck. She kept guard on precious things, he said, and in the low words there was a little touch of bitter scorn. I unlocked the case and took out the necklace and hid it safely in my traveling bag and returned the key to its chain while she slept. You did not think she would miss the necklace? He assented with a gesture. I knew the chance, but as I told you, she had not worn it for months, and I had my plan made. I was going to New York the next morning. I would be back in a day. If the setting were delayed a little and she discovered the loss, I had only to quiet her till the necklace was ready. But curiously, she found it out at once, the very next morning before I left. I was in the hall with my bag, the necklace in it, when she came hurrying down to tell me of the loss. I had no time to stop. The car was waiting. I had only time to make her promise to say nothing to anyone till I came back. I told her she had mislaid it. We should find it somewhere when I return to help her look. In fact, he smiled a little ironically, I had picked out the very place where I expected to find it, in the chintz folds of a chair in her room. But I only made her promise to say nothing and hurried off. He sat looking before him, then he roused himself. I went at once to McAndrews with the necklace and asked for Greenwald, with whom I had an appointment. They know me well at McAndrews. I have bought many things of them. I am somewhat of a connoisseur in jewels. I care more for them than most people, he remarked quietly. And at McAndrews they understand that. I am not a mere customer. Greenwald in particular understands me. He is a man of rare discernment in the value of stones. Not the mere money value, he said with a slight gesture of disdain. I know Mr. Greenwald. He is a rare man, she assented. He turned with a quick look. Then you understand. It does not seem to you absurd that I should think of jewels as alive, almost as sentient things. His voice deepened, and his eager eyes glowed a little. It is not an accident that they are called precious stones, he cried. Something hidden in them shines, some precious secret that glimmers to us. He sighed a little. And it always escapes us, he said with a smile. The necklace had fallen to his lap. He did not touch it as he went rapidly on. I gave the emeralds to Greenwald and told him what I wanted. They were glad to do it. I had not bought it there, but I did not want to take it back where I had bought it. I had a feeling of pride, perhaps, or it may have been a fear that my wife would come to know. I did not want a shadow to touch the beauty of the necklace in our lives, so I gave it into Greenwald's hands, and he took it to an inner room to have the stones appraised. He took it away from me. His figure seemed to shrink a little, and he paused and lifted the necklace and placed it on the table between them. His hollow eyes looked across at her. He told me these were false. He touched the stones and pushed the necklace toward her. They sent out little gleams of light. Millie leaned toward them. But they are very beautiful, she said wonderingly. They are a damned good imitation, he replied under his breath, and almost fiercely. They deceived me, that says something. I would have sworn they were genuine, as true as her smile. He said it bitterly, as true as the life she must have been living. He struck his hand on the table. For how long, he cried. When was it done? Why? She knew that all I had was hers to spend as she liked. My money, my soul was hers. She could have cut it in little bits to trim her gown, and I would not have cried out. But this? He looked at the little blinking stones where they lay. How can I know why she needed the money? His voice sank to a whisper, and she wore it, close to the child's head, our child. His hand clinched suddenly. How do I know even that, that the child was mine? His head dropped forward to the table. 
He was sobbing in deep breaths that strove to hold themselves, and his outstretched fingers touched the necklace and pushed it from him. His breath grew quiet. The woman leaned forward to the necklace and took it in her fingers. She held it thoughtfully, her eyes full of deep compassion. When at last he sat up and looked at her across the table, his eyes thanked her gratefully. "'I think I should have gone insane,' he said, "'if you had not come just now. I began to be afraid of myself, afraid to be alone with my thoughts.' "'You have not told anyone before? There has been no one you could talk to?' Her look traveled from the stones to his face. He stared at her earnestly, his eyes seeming to dull a little, as if a mist crossed them, and the gaze changed to deep sadness. "'I have told one person, yes. She is dead now.' "'Was it Marion?' He stared at her. "'Did you know Marion?' He put out a hand. She shook her head. "'Your wife has told me of her. I wondered.' He nodded. "'Yes, it was Marion.' He sighed a little. "'She was a dear child, and I was harsh with her, cruel almost.' Her face was intent. "'Will you tell me why?' she said softly. "'I grew afraid of her,' he replied swiftly. "'But why?' "'She knew.' He looked at her with deep eyes and motioned to the necklace. "'Knew that your wife?' "'No,' he held himself in check. "'Had she known that, I would have wrung it from her. "'She only knew what I had done, and that only by an accident. "'I sat here one night after I had come home with the necklace, brooding on it, "'torturing myself with questions I dared not ask. "'I heard a step, just as I heard yours tonight. "'It was Marion. "'She had seen I was in trouble and had stolen down to comfort me.' She saw the necklace before I could conceal it from her. I had to tell her everything. I swore her to secrecy. The detectives were in the house even then, but I knew I could trust her. "'Why did you call in the detectives?' asked Millie curiously. "'You knew where the necklace was.' She lifted it in her hands. He smiled at it a little sadly. "'I knew where the false stones were, yes. I wanted the others. I thought if I could find what she had done with them, I might—' He broke off. It came to nothing. I began to be afraid at last the detectives might stumble on the truth about me, and I called them off. You had not thought that Marion might have taken them? She asked slowly. That she might be suspected? He stared. Marion? He shook his head. You have never seen Marion, he said simply. She was like a crystal gem. He pointed to the stones in her hands. The emeralds are my wife, he said. They may deceive, but not the crystal. She was Stephen's wife, he added after a minute. I was almost glad when she went away, he admitted. It was a relief for a little, to my torture, that no one knew. But afterward I missed her sorely. I was glad when the boy told me he was going to her. Now she is dead. He sat brooding on it. Life is finished, he said slowly, for all of us. There's a curse on this house that not even an innocent girl's devotion could remove. Perhaps it is our punishment. His voice sank lower. The words came brokenly. I wanted to keep her perfect without change, he whispered. And I loved a mirage. It was only a mock love. Why did you never ask for the truth, she demanded. You could have forced her to tell you. She stopped at the little cynical smile in the eyes turned to her. You have never loved anyone, he said quietly. Why, I... She flushed a little. Never, he returned, or you would know. I wanted to keep the semblance of love. His hand moved to the green stones. I had these, at least, and sometimes, with the firelight on them, I have been almost deceived. He shook his head. 
No, you must not rob me of my mock jewels. He reached at a hand. I will keep at least a semblance of love. He turned to her almost fiercely. Suppose I did compel her, stripped the secret bare, exposed her, shivering to the truth. What have I gained? What have I gained? He repeated brokenly. She mused on it. But suppose you give the false ones up, yield them once for all, asking nothing in return. He regarded her intently. What do you mean? He asked almost breathlessly. Suppose you restored the jewels to her case. He stared at her. But they are worthless. Suppose you try it. Put the case on her toilet table, leave it in plain sight, and the emeralds in it, where they were before. She got up and laid the necklace beside him on the table. Try it, she said. You have nothing to lose but mock jewels. You may have everything to gain. She moved from him with quiet step. At the door she looked back. He had lifted the necklace and was looking at it with half-wistful eyes. And the stones seemed to glimmer mockingly in the firelight. End of chapter 22「Already the threads were gathered up and the unseen hands that guided the pattern were shaping it to a finish. The talk in the library the night before had shown her that her part was nearly done. When she had returned from the library to her room, daylight was already beginning to glimmer through the window. She had thrown back the curtains and stood watching the change from the mystery of dawn to full sunrise. Below in the shrubbery, birds had broken into singing and from the grass a thousand shining drops flashed back the light. Emeralds everywhere. She had pressed her hands for a minute over her eyes, shutting them out, her heart lifting a prayer of thankfulness. Then she had bathed and dressed and gone for a walk through the grounds, and had come back to find her breakfast waiting on its tray. They were all late this morning, and she had eaten her breakfast and taken up her knitting. Her thoughts were busy with the lives that belonged to this gracious house, and the mystery that was lifting from it, withdrawing its shadows before the coming sun. Stephen Mason entered the breakfast room and glanced at the empty table with a little look of surprise. He went to the window and stood looking out and waiting, his back to the room. When his father came in a moment later, he wheeled quickly. Good morning, sir. I thought it was mother coming. He went to the table and drew back his father's chair. The older man accepted the courtesy with a little nod. There were dark circles under his eyes, and the eyes were heavy from lack of sleep. The straight shoulder seemed to stoop a little as he came forward. The son was looking at him with solicitous glance. Did you rest well, father? The man assented with quiet look. I rested, yes. He waited a minute. I rested, but I did not sleep. I got to thinking. Your mother is late this morning. He glanced across to the empty place. Shall I speak to her? She's never late. No. He held up a hand as the son made a little move. Don't go, he said. She will be down directly. I stopped at her room to leave something for her. She was in the dressing room. She told me through the door she was almost ready and said not to wait for her. The son seated himself. Will you have an orange, sir? Oswald Mason reached out for the fruit and laid it on his plate and looked down at it with absent gaze. He took up the paper from beside his plate and put it back unopened. His hand seemed to tremble a little and hesitate. 
he turned quickly to the opening door. Halfway across the room, his wife was holding out her hands piteously. In the open jewel box, the necklace flashed to him. Oswald, she cried, my necklace, it has come back. Someone has put it back. It is here. He sprang to her, and leaning on him, she came to the table, and they stood looking down at the jewels lying in the box. Suddenly, she sank into a chair, great sobs shaking her, and the man stood looking down at the broken figure. The son had not moved from his place. He seemed to watch some strange, inexplicable scene in which he had no part, and to which he had no clue. The woman raised her head and looked at his father. The tears lay unheeded on her lifted face. That poor child, she said slowly. That poor child. The face quivered and dropped again to her arms, and over the bent head the son's glance sought his father. The man made a little imperious gesture of negation and stooped to her. He did not speak. Only his hand, resting on her hair, stroked it gently. She lifted her face at last. A quiet shudder went through her, and she laid her hand on the box, and lifting the stones, held them toward him. They are false, she said quietly. He did not speak. His hand held itself tense and waited. She looked down at the jewels, speaking hurriedly, as if urged by some inner need. I sold the others, our emeralds. I pawned them to get the money for Stephen. The son started with quick motion, but again his father's hand restrained him. Wait, he said quietly. Her voice was very low. I pawned them, and I thought Marion was a thief. She said the ugly word clearly, and seemed to stare at it. Marion, a thief? How could I? Her husband bent to her, as if the low voice must deceive him. He searched her face swiftly. You thought that Marion took your emeralds? he cried. She? Why, it was I, I who took them, he said gently. You? But why? To pay Stephen's debts, he answered. I wanted the boy to have another chance. Start fair once more. I knew I could replace them later. You would never know. It might mean the boy's life. Then, when I took them to McAndrews, they told me they had already been reset, and these were only baubles. He moved his hand to them contemptuously. Yes, I had them put in at Daggett's, where you bought them for me. She raised her hand to draw his face to hers. Where you bought them for me, she repeated tenderly. He looked at them thoughtfully. Suppose I had taken them to Daggett's. Would they have told me, I wonder? Oh, no, they were my own. They saw you give them to me when you bought them. I swore them to secrecy. They would never tell. In the sewing room, the gray woman smiled and knit a double stitch in the work in her hands and listened to the voice in the room beyond. They would never tell. They knew they were my own. She scanned the face, so near her own. You are different, she cried. You love me, Oswald. He took the tear-flushed face in his hands and gazed at it, and bent and kissed the forehead. Forgive me, Annie, he said gently. But I have nothing to forgive, she cried with puzzled eyes. It is I who have been cruel. Her lips quivered with the pain, and the tears stole down her cheeks. If only there was something I could do for her, say to her, something I could do for Marion, she cried softly. Her face dropped again to her hands. The younger man rose swiftly. He moved to her side and laid his hand on her shoulder and bent to her gently. Mother, there is something you can do for her and for me. She looked up, breathless. There is a little child, her child and mine, that needs your care. Then the woman broke into sobs, deep and silent, as if all the bitterness of life were breaking up in her. In the sewing room, Millie knitted a stitch 
and another, and drew out her needles and dropped them softly into the basket beside her. The green jacket was done. End of chapter 23「Chapter 24 of The Green Jacket」by Jeanette Lee「This LibriVox recording is in the public domain」Tom Corbin looked up as she came in「See here, Millie, I've been thinking about what you said Sit down You look tired」he added kindly She took the chair he offered What was it I said? she asked The other day, you know Tom nodded The other day? Her brow wrinkled What was it she had said to Tom the other day? It seemed to her it was months, years, since she had seen Tom. He regarded her kindly. You said sin was a disease, he quoted impressively. Yes, well, it is. She leaned back in her chair. She had placed her green jacket on the back, and it made a comfortable rest for her head. Tom looked at her expansively. I believe you're right, he said. It sounded all foolishness to me then. But it's kept coming back, till I've got a hunch. You may be right, you know. She smiled a little wearily. If it's really a disease, we ought to be able to cure it, he said thoughtfully. We can. And prevent it, he added. She sat up. The tired look left her face. We can, Tom, she said swiftly. And it's better worth doing than anything in the world. Yes. How would you begin? he asked cautiously. I'd like to begin with their ancestors, she laughed. Most of them come of lying and thieving stock, or anyway, from ancestors that have a taint of white lies in their blood. All this experimenting with white mice and black mice is well enough, she said quickly. But what if two white liars marry, and all the descendants with black hair are black liars? Tom laughed out. Go on, he said. She nodded. Why don't we take hold of things a little nearer by? We clear up the slums, but we don't touch the slums of their minds. We're cowards. We don't dare teach morals in the schools. What children need in school is not so much practical arithmetic, they need a little practical living. You had examples when you went to school, I suppose, about buying bonds at so much and selling at so much. And what percent did you make? She glanced at him. Tom grinned. I just guess I did. It was a green book we studied him out of, he said thoughtfully. Ever need them since? asked Millie quietly. Lord, no. I don't buy and sell. I pay Baker to do it for me. If you had had exercises in lying, it would have been some use to you, perhaps. Millie's eyes were dreaming. Exercises in lying, retorted Tom. I didn't need them. Yes, you did, said Millie. You don't half know how to lie. You're a regular bungler at it. You could call them exercises in truth if you wanted to, but lying would sound more attractive to a boy. I bet it would, said Tom. Or a man either, he added. It's a little stupid, I think. Millie was threshing it out. Not to use a thing a boy is as keen about as he is about lying to help educate him with. Can't you see a class of boys that have been going to sleep over fractions, just coming all alive over an exercise in practical lying? Tom chuckled. Let him try it for a while, said Millie. Let him watch out for lies for a day. See how many examples, different kinds, they can bring to class. The way they bring flowers. The one that brings the largest collection has his name on the board, or has a badge to wear home. I say, said Tom. His face considered it. Watch folks around them, their fathers and mothers? Millie nodded. Everybody, the minister, the grocer, the newspaper reporter? Phew, whistled Tom. That's their real education, isn't it? said Millie. That's what they're doing every day, blundering along by themselves, while we teach them. 
how many bricks it takes to build a wall six feet high, allowing a quarter of an inch for mortar and ten bricks to a row. Her voice was filled with the scorn of it. Tom laughed out. We spank them for telling lies and hush them up. So they learn to lie in secret. It's disease, said Millie. Shut up inside them. We ought to air it out, bring it into the light, and put truth alongside it. Show them the big and beautiful things that men have done together by being square. Send a class down to study that bridge on Water Street that was put up by jobbery ten years ago. There isn't a boy seven years old that can't see what's happening to it. Instead of having them work out how many tons of concrete it takes for the foundation, let them ask a few questions as to how much concrete can be adulterated and stand up, and how it feels to live in a city where everybody cheats all he can. Talk about lying, she said with a quick flash of indignation. Boys love the truth. Look how they play their own games on the square. They have to bless them. They save their lives for grown-ups. Most of them, they watch us and think that's the way we like to play the game. She was looking at him severely, and he nodded with a little look of guilt. Once let him get the idea, she went on, that lying and telling the truth is a kind of game that goes on all the time everywhere. And every time you sneak, you lose a point. And every time you're on the square, you make one, and you've got 'em. So you have," assented Tom with a little thoughtful laugh. "But it won't work." "You're a back number," said Millie mildly. She closed her eyes and leaned back in her chair. She had had her say, and it had rested her a little. But she was very tired from the strain of the last few days. Tom looked at her compassionately. "How about the mice and emeralds?" he suggested. "You haven't found anything, I suppose." He was looking at her cynically with a little superior smile. Millie's theories were all right, but he liked to remind her now and then that it was facts that counted. Didn't find anything, he repeated. She shook her head. Nothing to speak of, she replied. I told you you'd never find the mason emeralds, he chuckled softly. Yes, you told me. She sat before him, looking a little meek and very tired. He regarded her with kindly, tolerant eyes. She seemed suddenly, to his masculine gaze, a frail, pathetic little thing. He felt a swift rush of impatience at the foolishness and the invincible spirit of it, of all women, never knowing when they were beaten. See here, Millie, you're used up. I am a little tired. I believe I am tired. She relaxed in her chair and leaned her head against the green jacket that hung across the back. The soft wool touched her cheek. The cheek was a little pale. Tom glanced at the pallor of the cheek and got up and went to the cupboard and mixed something and brought it to her. Drink that, he commanded. She looked at it doubtfully. Do you think I need? Drink it, said Tom. She drained the glass meekly and returned it to him. He sat looking grimly at her tiredness. I told you you'd never find the mason emeralds, he commented, swaggering a little. I have not seen even a glimmer of the mason emeralds, she assented soberly. He gazed at her compassionately and judicially, and his face softened. She was very small and frail. He settled himself in his chair. Well, you failed. I hope you're satisfied. The tone was kindly and tolerant, and she smiled at him. Yes, I'm satisfied. A hint of a sigh breathed into the words as she relaxed subtly to them. I'm quite satisfied, she repeated gently. His look held kindness and worldly wisdom, and for a moment Tom Corbin knew all the serene satisfaction of a successful masculine career. Then slowly. Something penetrated his complacency. A softening pity held him, and suddenly, before he knew or could stem the tide, the pity was overflowing its bounds, changing to a mysterious force 
that swept him like a leaf on the wind, like a mere speck of dust in a whirling cyclone, he and his importance were hurled forward, born in a mighty rush of desire to protect and care for the fragile figure sitting so quietly before him. Tom Corbin gripped the arms of his chair, and little beads of perspiration came to his forehead. He took out his handkerchief and removed them softly. He glanced at the gray figure almost hostily. But the softness of the pose and the tired lines of the figure melted him like wax. He leaned forward. Millie, he said. She opened her eyes. She seemed to have been half dreaming. It was very restful in Tom's office, in spite of the clatter in the rooms beyond and the noise of the street. Her open eyes gazed at him inquiringly. Yes, she said. He got up and went to the window and stood for a minute, looking down on the hurrying street. He wheeled and came straight to her and stood before her firmly. Will you marry me, Millie? I want you to. He said it simply. She sat up and pushed back her hair a little. Tom, she said, almost in vexation. He nodded. That's what it's come to. I did not expect it. He laughed a little grimly. She got up from her chair. I must go, she said hurriedly. Not till you give me your answer. He moved between her and the exit, and she looked at him with eyes in which the tears were very near the surface. Tom, she said protestingly, I am so tired. He nodded. That's why I asked you. I want to take care of you. Don't you see, Millie? He held out his arms in an awkward, tender gesture. Don't you know how you need me? She looked at him severely, almost sternly, and after a moment the arms dropped to his sides. But you do need me, he said stubbornly. She moved toward the door. He no longer stayed her. His glance followed her quietly. When may I come and see you, Millie? You must give me an answer, you know. There was something strong in the quiet assurance of the words, but the tone had lost a little of its happy protectiveness. She looked back to him almost wistfully, it seemed. Come when you need me, on business, she replied, and with that she left him. It was an hour after she had gone that Tom found, fallen on the floor by the chair where she had been sitting, the green jacket. He stared at it and took it up and held it at arm's length. Then he smoothed it gently and smiled. He would have to send it back or carry it to her himself. He stood looking down at the green folds. He could see Millie the way she would look when she took it from him. He could see her put it on. The gray figure, wrapped in its warmth, seemed to stand before him, and as he gazed at it, his hands almost of themselves seemed to reach out to something. There was no pride in the gesture, only a half-unconscious need in the hands that reached out and fell to his sides. He put down the jacket and ran to the telephone and called a number. "'That you, Millie? Yes, it's Tom, at the office. You left something here. I want to bring it to you. Will you be there if I come right up?' His eyes smiled as they listened. He spoke quickly. I thought you might need the jacket. And besides, Millie, are you there? His voice listened. Yes? Well, stay right there, please, till I come. I need to see you. On business? Oh, no, only me. Tom Corbin. I need to see you. He hung up and took the green jacket and held it at arm's length and looked at it with a little grateful smile. Then he opened the door and went quickly out. End of Chapter 24 End of The Green Jacket by Jeanette Lee.